Today, mate, 40 here. We're, we're going out live on YouTube, going out live across Twitter, going out live across Rumble, going out across live across my Facebook profile and my Facebook page. So, let me get things together. Here's Peter Zion and what's going on with Jim. here coming to you from Colorado. Uh, today, I want to Thanks, talk a little Peter. bit about what's going on in Germany domestically and in terms of with foreign policy. Now, one of the first things to remember about the German system is they did not create it, which is one of the reasons why it's so stable. Uh, after a series of wars that culminated in the World Wars that dragged the Americans into European affairs for two significant conflicts, there was a joint committee put together by the French, the British, and the Americans to write the German Basic Law, which is basically their constitution. And in it, uh, it has a bicameral system, so there's the Bundestag as well as the Bundesrat, uh, one that represents the states of the Bundesrat, and one that represents people in general election, that's the Bundestag. But you vote for a party rather than a person, and that encourages the parties to be relatively broad in their ideology. In addition to needing a majority of the party seats in the Bundestag and ratification by the Bundesrat in order to get a government formed, there's something called a vote of constructive no confidence. Now, in most parliamentary systems, whether it's France or United Kingdom or wherever else. If a majority of the people in the parliament say that this government is done, the government is done. But in Germany, you can't trigger new elections. You have to come up with a different governing coalition. So you have to convince the parties that make up the seats in the Bundestag to form a new alignment. And the idea was that Germany had had a series of political whiplash moments that had led to the rise of the Nazi party. So if by making it constitutionally impossible for you to have a knee-jerk election, the idea of it would be that the Germans would tend towards moderation and tend towards working with one another and by extension working with the Western allies as well to prevent any sort of a rebound such as World War II. This is becoming very relevant in the German system right now because the current coalition is becoming incredibly unstable. So you've got Olaf Scholz, who is the chancellor, who is the head of the Social Democrats, which is a center-leftish party. And he is allied with two parties. One is the Free Democrats. So if you can imagine a libertarian, business-oriented party, that would be it. And the Greens, who are just what they sound like. Now, the issue for the disputes is over foreign strategic policy, which is kind of ironic because Germany has not had a foreign strategic policy of note since World War II. It was something that was expressly banned basically, um, by a general agreement of the Western Allies that Germany didn't have a foreign policy, that it couldn't have a strategic policy, it couldn't have a functional military, and therefore there could be another, never be another war. So anytime that the Germans have had a policy, someone else has steered it. Well, we're now in a situation where Europe is facing a military and a strategic and an environmental and an economic crisis all at the same time because of the Ukraine war. And navigating that is going to require some leadership. And leadership means that some people are not going to like what's being done. And that's definitely the case of what's going on in Germany today. So there's two big issues on the German docket. The first one is the Ukraine war. The Germans, like most of the Europeans, like most of the Americans, realize that if the Russians win in Ukraine, that's not the end of it. They just keep advancing west until they get to where they feel more secure. And that means conquering all or part of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, maybe even in Finland. Uh, and since most of those countries are NATO members, there will be a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. And since we now know that the Russian military is not all that, there will probably be mixed in play. So arming the Ukrainians to prevent that Russian event advance is not a, it's not a nice to have. It's an issue about the strategic survival of the entirety of each individual member of the NATO alliance. And that has sunk in in most parts of Europe and most parts of the United States, with the exception of the Putin wing of the Republican Party, of course. Uh, and to that end, the coalition partners of the Social Democrats, so the Free Democrats and the Greens, want to provide the Ukrainians with any weapon system that they can prove that they can use, which is more or less the position of the alliance as a whole. But the social. Okay, so the primary focus today is, of course, going to be on the American elections coming to you live from Sydney. But we have coverage coming at you from around the globe. All right, here's uh, Fox News. Polls are closing all around the United States of America. Going to keep an eye on everything. Just want to make sure that we're going out live on Rumble, Odyssey, and. Democrats. How does. Tradition going back 60 years, believing that diplomacy and economic integration can forestall the need for any sort of military confrontation. And, you know, you've got to respect the idealism, but in its current time, that is a questionable issue because the Russians certainly don't feel that way. 
Uh, so the Greens and the Free Democrats are looking for a much stronger position from Germany, particularly on weapons transfers, because they see this literally, accurately, as an issue of national survival. You know, leave aside the war crimes and the human rights and the energy security. They see this as about survival. And the right... But the Social Democrats, of who Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor, is a member, sees it a different way. And so he's been dragging his feet and providing bureaucratic obstacles at every possible opportunity to prevent high-scale weapon transfers to go, particularly leopard tanks. <clears throat> uh, the second big issue is with China. Uh, the Germans, because of the Social Democrats, have always sought to have a constructive political and economic relationship with countries that are rivals and the thinking that you could bring them around in time. Now, obviously, in the case of Russia, that is imploded. And the Social Democrats, just like everyone else in Germany, have walked away from decades of investment. They have by far been the number one investor in the Russian space for quite some time. The question is now what? The entirety of the German economic model is based on metabolizing cheap, reliable Russian energy. With that gone, the Germans need a fundamentally new way to power their economy. And Olaf Scholz, a social democrat, going by this old strategy that commerce makes friends, is turning to the Chinese. So as the rest of the West is starting to identify that Chinese is a genocidal state that has devolved into a one-man dictatorship that makes the Kim Dynasty in North Korea look positively egalitarian, Olaf Scholz up and went to China to say how his hi, how are you to the... Uh, to the Chinese Premier Xi and even offer him congratulations on his appointment for a third term, which was basically crowning himself emperor for life. From the Social Democratic point of view, they need an alternative economic poll. China can perhaps replace Russia. And from the SDP point of view, they still haven't gotten past the idea that commerce makes friends. Now, the Free Democrats opposed this. The Greens opposed Okay, that's uh, Peter Zayer with some analysis on what's going on with West Germany. Let's see what's going on in America. 43. And why? Because each side has its own description of what those threats to democracy are. So you have conservatives and Republicans saying, you know, a, uh, a government that doesn't, you know, gives away a half a trillion dollars without passing a law through Congress or one party rule or uh, the politicization of the DOJ or the FBI. All of these kinds of things are seen by people on the right as threats to democracy, as well as the January 6th. Uh, attack on the Capitol is seen by people on the on the left and right as a, as a threat to democracy. Kellyanne, that's a great point. I, I mean, that's the world that we live in, where each side has the issues that they're most fired up about, and it kind of seems like they're living in two separate countries almost at times. You've looked at the Fox News voter analysis as we get a gauge of what's on people's minds. What do you think so far? So, Martha, this country, no doubt, is divided. Our Senate is divided. Washington is divided. Some of our households are divided. But the country is not divided on the biggest issues that are motivating them to the polls in these midterms. Over 70% of Americans tell the Fox News pollsters and other pollsters that they are very or extremely concerned about crime, about inflation, about immigration and border security. And yet the Democrats have taken a huge gamble on creating this parallel universe and talking about something totally different. We'll see if their gamble pays off. The other thing that is not in doubt is that you're dealing with a very unpopular president whose disapproval rating has been over 50% for a year. Independents are leaning far more toward Republicans. Will they show up? I think for independents, the big question in midterms is not just for whom to vote. Okay, so this is an interesting election in that it is very much running in Republicans' favor. The issues that people are most concerned about, such as crime and the economy and woke madness in schools, Republicans are on the right side of. So you would think that Republicans should do well. You would think that there's a red wave coming. So apparently the first polls won't close for another 33 minutes. So let me know if you're catching any information out there that's significant uh, about these elections. I, I just found this really racist group, uh, Citizens for Sanity. You may have seen their ad during the World Series, et cetera, et cetera. 
Raphael Warnock and Joe Biden believe men can get pregnant. They believe a boy can become a girl by giving him female hormones and surgical amputation. Tell Warnock and Biden, hands off our kids. Political liberals are destroying Latino communities. We now have record illegal immigration from over 100 different countries, from places as far away as Pakistan and Sri Lanka. Our schools and hospitals are overwhelmed. Joe Biden and his soft on crime policies are setting predators free in our communities. And while Biden and his left-wing friends push open borders and open jails on us, they live in gated mansions. We are Americans, but liberal elites treat us like servants. No mas. Citizens for Sanity paid for this ad. Okay, Citizens blanco. for Sanity. Joe this Biden is... and his liberal friends treat black Americans like second-class citizens. They... Okay, this is Stephen Miller's group. I mean, their ads are awesome. Spend billions on illegal immigrants while our cities fall apart. They send a fortune to Ukraine, but nothing for our children. They let violent crime explode while they live in gated mansions. And these crazy liberals even tell our kids that surgery can turn boys into girls. I have three words for Joe Biden. Count me out. Paid for by Citizens for Sanity. Left-wing politicians are pushing sexual agendas on our children. X-rated drag shows for kids, pornography in elementary schools. Now they want to charge you with a felony if your school wants you to change your kid's gender and you don't agree. Legally require movie theaters, restaurants, and other businesses to let men use the women's restroom. The radical left has lost their minds, and it's only getting worse. Stop the insanity. Citizens for Sanity pay for this ad. Good stuff. President Biden just said out loud what the aims and objectives of his administration's policies are, which is regime change in Russia. When you're calling for regime change in a nuclear state, that's a policy that you might want to think through before you do it. And with that $40 billion aid package now signed, more U.S. weapons will be on their way here soon. The spending bill also brings the total U.S. expenditure on Ukraine to $67 billion. For God's sake. This man cannot remain powerful. We know where this escalation leads. It leads us closer and closer to the brink of a nuclear war. But at the end of the day, we've got to realize we're at war. The world is closer to Armageddon. The White House is reinforcing President Biden's recent warning of the possibility of nuclear Armageddon. Oh, wow. <laughs> Biden has driven us to the brink of nuclear war. Stop the insanity. That's a good ad. That's powerful. A record 300 Americans are dying every day from drug overdoses. Many are children. It looks like candy, but inside, fentanyl smuggled across the border. Deadly in the smallest amounts. But Arizona Senator Mark Kelly voted against more border funding. Kelly voted against more border agents. He voted against border security over and over. Thanks to Mark Kelly, drug cartel profits are up 2,600%. Whose kid will be next? How did we get here? Low wages, high inflation, record crime, illegal immigration from places as far away as Pakistan. Our cities are a mess. Public services are a nightmare. But instead of helping us... Joe Biden has sent $66 billion to Ukraine, weapons worth billions more. And now, Joe Biden says his fight in Ukraine could lead to nuclear Armageddon. World War III. You know what I say? No mas. Citizens for Sanity paid for this ad. Not a good ad. That's amazing. 
Groceries up 13%. Gas up 36%. And crime is... Okay. I'm going to pull my ad to get act together. I'm going to send an invite after David. So hang with me. Post this. And just to put another bit of cayenne pepper in the ointment, uh, Schultz overruled both of his coalition partners in the days leading up to that summit when he basically allowed the Chinese commerce giant uh, Costco to purchase a significant portion of the Hamburg pork. Now, if the Free Democrats, if the Greens are not happy with this situation to the point that they want to overthrow their own government, they can't just go into the Bundestag and say, we oppose this government and have a vote of no confidence. No, no, no. They first have to enter coalition negotiations with another party, most notably the Christian Democrats who have ruled the country for the bulk of the last 15 years. So it is public. It is obvious. It would give Schultz a chance to change his mind or the Social Democrats a chance to have a party congress themselves to see what they're willing to budge on. But before you get too excited, either way, number one, this is not a quick solution. And number two, because the Greens and the Free Democrats would have to enter into coalition, there's no guarantee that they would get the flexibility and the power that they would want on the backside. Right now, they control the foreign ministry and the economics ministry. These are like the two things that they care most about. There's no guarantee they would get that. Remember, foreign policy is a subset of all of the policies that the government has to care about. And so the Free Dems and the Greens would be taking a big risk if they wanted to go this way. But the option is on the table and it's starting to be discussed in Berlin. All right, that's it for me. Until next time. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for holding down the fort while I put my act together. We've got polls closing in 27 minutes in the United States. We've got Duvid, I believe, coming onto the show. So let's get a little bit of uh, Stephen Cockett here. Multi-way conversation of Goodfellas. Sports is obviously I bet when, I bet. Right, This is the Hoover Institution show, Goodfellas, with H.R. McMaster, economist John Cochran, and historian Neil Ferguson. When you call your wives... And yet again, tell them, and yet again, you tell them that you're going to be late for dinner because you're still at the office taping a Goodfellow show. That they actually believe it. Steve, we're going to stop them out. We're going to say, all right, all right. The war. Yes, where, where's it going? Is, but, 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 we have, but we have dinner together with our spouses. The topics of conversation are slightly different. Not that, not that different. But not that different. <laughs> just, just to be, just to all be right. clear. All right. So, so um, you've done enough to eke out some miserable Pyrrhic victory. So um, everything starts with the bravery and ingenuity of the Ukrainians. That's why we're in the place we're in. Those people are dying as we speak, as we're taping this show. And uh, they're willing to die for the freedom of their country. And it's an amazing story. It's inspiring, and it's made possible many other consequences that we're benefiting from. So everything starts with the Ukrainian people, and we have to remember that. This is their war. They're doing the fighting. They're doing the dying. And, and Putin is being degraded, and Xi Jinping is being humiliated, and the European Union resolve is coming. You want to talk about equations? I know I'm stepping on your turf here, but <laughs> we have an equation. It's Ukrainian valor plus Russian atrocities equals Western unity and resolve. So the more valor and the more atrocities, and they keep coming, the more we have Western unity and resolve. So, but it starts with that Ukrainian valor. So where are we in the war? Uh, Ukrainians are incredible at information war. It's just breathtaking. I don't know if we're ever going to get to the level that they're at, but I've been going to school at what they've been doing. And it's their Ministry of Defense. It's everything. It's, 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 it's the whole society, but it's even the institutions that we didn't think very, were very agile have turned out to be amazing. So they I'm come up with this Walter. battle plan. Welcome. Uh, in, uh, first of all, they, they uh, prevent their capital from being taken. You know that Putin uh, dusted off the Rumsfeld Iraq plan. Remember that? The Rumsfeld Iraq plan, he dusted it off, and he says, okay, I'm going to invade a gigantic country with a force that's too small. I'm going to decapitate the regime, and then they're going to welcome me with flowers. And everything. So I've heard a ton of commentary on Ukraine, but this is, these, these are new perspectives that I haven't heard before. It's going to be hunky-dory as soon as I decapitate the regime. So we, our military was breathtaking. We went in there and we crushed Everything, every asset the Iraqis had. We decapitated the regime. Uh, our performance was so stunning that the Chinese went into a tizzy and the Russians went into a tizzy from the Iraq war, which was televised. But the plan didn't work in the end because 
uh, we didn't flip the society just by decapitating the regime, and the force was too small to own the country in a stable way. Saudi gains, yeah. Right. And so the Rumsfeld battle plan didn't work, but Putin dusted it off and said, we're going to do it again. So they invade a gigantic country with a force that's too small, and they try to decapitate the regime, and the idea is that people are going to welcome them with flowers. Honestly, it's very analogous. The difference is they had lots of collaborators that they thought were going to help with this, which was They had people who talked. I never thought of this analogy. I never saw this. Took money. Right. To, to pretend to be collaborators. Failure of that collaborator. I could have done that, but I never take money from the mafia. <laughs> Your friends. Your friends. <laughs> but anyway, so the Russian army is not the American army, so they didn't destroy the assets. The Russian army, uh, also, they didn't capture Kiev. They didn't decapitate the regime because the Ukrainians resisted successfully. So, uh, and also, they didn't have enough force to occupy the country. And so it was the Rumsfeld battle plan, which failed even worse than the Rumsfeld version of it, because Rumsfeld was actually successful on the battlefield in the initial stages. To some extent, the Soviet Afghan. Yes, you've heard me talk about that, that Afghanistan in, uh, in 79 was a coup, not an invasion. They replaced, the, they, they murdered the existing Afghan president, they installed their own puppet, and then they decided to stay around and protect themselves with some security force, which was about 80,000 in the beginning, and it grew into invasion. Or as the coup grew into an invasion unintended. As George Soros once said to me, um, an investment is a speculation gone bad. So <laughs> an invasion is a coup. Musk about that. Yeah, so, <laughs> Actually, I don't think anybody needs to tell him. I think it's pretty clear. But an invasion is a coup gone bad in, in the Ukrainian case, right? Okay. So now let's switch. The Ukrainians defend themselves. Russians make some gains in the east, slogging uh, through a, a couple of pounds, etc. But they're not. Uh, they don't have a combined arms operation at scale capability that they're going to take. They're not. Uh, they don't have a combined arm. Okay, David, how's it going, man? Hey, Brokashem. Brokashem. So. Uh... What are you? What have you been doing, or what have you been reading in the last three days since I spoke to you last? Well, I told you I read that uh, memory book from uh, the, that woman you've been sharing about uh, the Myers Briggs personality test. Oh, oh, okay. And how do you like it? I finished it. It was, it was pretty interesting. It was an interesting history, and I never really looked into it. And thought about uh, you know how this test became so popular, and uh, you know relation to. I'm reading a lot of books on uh, the psychology of self, and you know because I guess she was like a non psychologist that uh, put herself in there and then created the most popular personality test. So there's quite an interesting history to it. And. Now, now, the test doesn't really have any real-world scientific or even psychological validity, as I understand it, but it appeals to people's self-absorption. Is that correct? Well, I mean, psychology, so if you want to say it has scientific validity, if they make claims that aren't shown to be true, like the either-or, so I mean, it's almost exclusively based on Jung and they make claims that uh, are more than uh, you appears to be true, like the immutability of personality traits, uh, the polarity of ex of personality traits. Um, but the test seems to have quite a bit of utility. In uh, you know, they might exaggerate uh, the claims, the utility, and then the woman who put it together, how she got it. Uh, um, you know, so so widely accepted, took decades of effort, and uh, you know now they made a, I don't know, they said a multi-billion-dollar industry. They have certification, and it's one of the, you know, most given tests in the world. So they, you know, I mean, obviously like the SAT test or IQ test, but the Myers Briggs is one of the most uh, given tests, probably the most popular of all personality tests. But I'm not sure that there's any other personality test that's. Uh, 
more proven or uh, more scientific. I mean, the five personality types uh, might uh, you know test a little bit better, but uh, you know that includes uh, a number of what's on the Myers Briggs. So, was there something important about Myers Briggs aside from its success? But does it does it give give useful insight for individuals? Well, my mom took it for career placement, and I took it, and if it's just a vehicle to understand yourself and understand relations, um, possibly get along with people better, it was, uh, you know, originally possibly used for, you know, dating and marriage, but mostly for career placement and employment, and, uh, you know, it appears to have some utility, you know, so I, I already knew about it, uh, I think, I think I've, my parents had one. I read about it, you know, so I like, I didn't officially take one, but I took it to know, know I was an INTP uh, by the time I was like 14, 15. And, uh, you know, based on that, it was probably useful for decisions I made that, uh, you know, like scientific research um, and, you know, just knowing like, well, how come I'm not like everybody else? How come when everybody else, you know, appears to be, talking about sports or interested in, uh, you know, the things that most people aren't, aren't, aren't interested in that, uh, that I'm not interested in them. And then also that I've met other people that share interests. And a lot of times they're also INTPs. And what, what were the things that you learned from the book that uh, surprised you or intrigued you? Well, surprising just the story of like, a woman and her daughter. I didn't know Briggs, like her husband, was a uh, you know, part of uh, the Manhattan Project and procured the uh, uranium for the Manhattan Project. And you know, the daughter had written like a some sort of mystery novel that was popular, and it was kind of this obsessive mother that uh, had a belief about personality types. And then she read Jung, and she actually wrote to Jung and had correspondence with Jung. And then when Jung came to America, she went to New York with her daughter to uh, meet Jung. Uh, but you know, she kind of just persisted with uh, typing people, assuming that people had types. Uh, and she changed psych uh, personality testing, that generally personality testing was based on abnormal psychology. And so this was personality testing that wasn't focused on abnormal psychology and saying that all the personality types are normal in uh, different approaches to life. But, uh, you know, mother who obsessed over it for 30 years with index cards, and then her daughter obsessed with it. And then, you know, in her 40s, that her daughter, who was, you know, failing as a writer and like a homemaker, decided that she was going to take upon um, her mother's passion, and uh, and they developed a test you know, like the questionnaire, and uh, she really worked on it with uh, giving it to people. And then when she developed the test, she, uh, you know, traveled around the U.S. Uh, giving it to people, a lot of it at her own expense. Uh, you know, she did tens of thousands of the first test, grading them by hand, everything by hand. So, I mean, it's a, it was an interesting, uh, compelling story about the, you know, the woman Briggs and her daughter Meyer, that uh, spent decades of their life putting this test together and then uh, decades uh, getting it out there. 
and uh in her lifetime like uh the personality standards committee already realized that there were problems with it but worked together with her because she had already had one of the most popular personality tests i think she first one of the things she first started was medical schools and she literally drove around the nation um convincing medical schools to take the test and then she used that data to uh perfect the questions and after she died i think it became more commercial so uh um now you know people get official myers-briggs training and uh, you know there's seminars and regional uh uh you know stuff stuff on it so uh you know, you know i've studied the the psychology and the history behind it so i mean, I, I would put it up there with uh i mean it's probably the single most successful psychological test besides for intelligence tests uh you know like the sat and the iq test and i'm not sure if you'd say that uh you know the iq test is more accepted than myers-briggs i mean you said it's not scientific but uh i mean the psychologists maybe would agree that it's not scientific and maybe they but uh you th- is there anything in psychology that uh you think is more accepted, like IQ tests? Yeah, IQ tests. So IQ tests have tremendous predictive validity. So if you take a group of eight-year-olds who have an average IQ of 100, you got a pretty good idea of their lifetime abilities, right? You can already get, get a trajectory for people. So the people who test at age six with, with an IQ, say, of 100 or less, they're never going to be university graduates. And on the other hand, people who test at age six with a 130-plus IQ, they can be university graduates. They can be very high-achieving. People with, who tested at 100 or below IQ are never going to be high-achieving. So IQ tests have tremendous predictive value, and then they also have tremendous explanatory value. So just knowing how smart someone is, it's like knowing what their cognitive capabilities are and what sort of life path that you can, what are the life path possibilities that you can expect for them. So they're, they're predictive, they're explanatory, they, they replicate in test after test after test these, these predictive and explanatory values of IQ tests are replicated again and again and again. So probably the most replicated tool in the social sciences. So that's why IQ tests, they they just have stunning predictive and explanatory power, far more than Myers-Briggs. Like Myers-Briggs doesn't really give you any predictive or explanatory power. It's just something that appeals to people's self-absorption. Yeah, but I'm not sure that IQ tests are scientifically accepted in the you know controversy. Uh, you know, even SAT tests moving away. I mean, you know, we've talked about that, and you know, maybe we give more validity to IQ tests than uh, the general public. Um, I was just watching the Yale uh, new course on Genius, the Yale online courses, and uh, you know, like you know, they're very clear that Genius does not have anything to do with IQ. And uh, you know, I agree with what you said, and I've, I've actually been reading a few books on uh, IQ tests and genius and intelligence and psychometrics in general. But I was just making the point that uh, even IQ tests are not generally uh, accepted as scientific and have uh, substantial controversy around them. There's probably less controversy uh, from a scientific perspective. 
IQ tests are more accepted to be scientific and have more predictive power, but there's much more public controversy around IQ than Myers-Briggs. And if you wanted to put like, okay, Myers-Briggs is a nice test. It has, uh, you know, might be useful to help you decide how you want to live your life. Um, that the direction is to look at like SAT and IQ tests in the same way, despite, uh, you know, the statistical evidence that, uh, you know, you just said. So there's a comment in the chat that IQ tests max out around 140. They don't. So people whose IQ tests above 145 tend to produce exponentially more patents to have exponentially more academic and other forms of achievement than say even people 130 to 145. So there's no gradation of IQ at which achievement taps out. People, the smarter they are, the more likely they are to produce cognitive breakthroughs. And there's, there's no point. So Malcolm Gladwell tried to make this point. Another you know, pop intellectuals have tried to make this point that uh, IQ you know, tops out at 120 or 130 or 140. And after that, it doesn't matter how much more you have, but it does. It's, it's pretty definitive that the smarter you are, the more cognitive breakthroughs you'll make, you, you'll make. You'll be likely to make. You'll have the ability to make. That if you take a group of people with an IQ of 145 to 160, they're going to come through with more patents and more other indices of cognitive achievement than a group with an average IQ of 130 to 145. What what books on IQ have you been reading, David? Um, you'll have to. I'd have to look because these these are just books I downloaded and and uh, bootlegs. They're not ones I actually bought. Um, you know, so I've skimmed through them rather quickly. You know, like I, I mentioned, I read those. Uh, I actually bought. I, I bought those. Uh, you know, books from Whitney Webb. So I was reading a book recently on. In fact, I'm in the middle of it on uh, the French concept of genius, and uh, you know, how the French viewed and understood what it means to be genius, not necessarily on uh, IQ. I've read a handful of books, you know, just online about the history of IQ testing and uh, also from the psychometric point of view, how they go about uh, you're trying to make the test uh, the most efficient. Um, but as I didn't buy these books, and so I kind of just skimmed them very quickly online. Um, I uh, Just on the point, the Myers-Briggs is also predictive not necessarily in success, but in uh, career choice. And there is significant statistical evidence that various personality types um, dominate different professions. So I'm not necessarily clear that they would be better at certain professions, but uh, there is statistical evidence that uh, various careers have larger percentages of various personality types. And okay. you know, that's why this, we use it for, uh, um, you know, by psychologists largely use it for career recommendation. And when you take it, then they, they give you a list of careers that might match your personality. Okay. Is there, I'll go to the super chat, uh, $10 from Moonman. Thank you so much. Midwit public discourse does not like to linger on the topic of IQ, but every organization that's serious about screening for talent employs tests that measure G general intelligence. 
the, the, the chat says that Duvid is just wrong. But uh, Duvid, do you deny or does that not make sense to you that the smarter someone is, the more likely they are to produce cognitive breakthroughs? Well, I think Moonman's incorrect that uh, it's illegal to uh, use IQ test in employment. Um, I mean, they might have similar ones, but I mean, it's been, uh, uh, I think, for decades already that they, they used to. My father got a job. That's why we came to Michigan as a manager in Frito-Lay that was almost exclusively based on an IQ test. And I, I'd have to look up. I'm pretty sure that uh, it's actually illegal in the United States to use IQ tests for employment. No, I accept the evidence by saying it's statistical. So if you say like scientific, um, it's not scientific in the way that we know that IQ is true or works. It's scientific in the way that we have strong statistical correlations that IQ doesn't change much over a lifetime. And IQ is actually, I mean, like you said, the single best predictive um, element in terms of a person's success and a whole bunch of things. So, you know, there's probably, you give a whole list of things where IQ is the single most predictive uh, uh, factor if you wanted to know uh, what's going to happen with a person's life. But it doesn't make it scientific. It just means that uh, that it has statistical, strong statistical correlation. Okay. So anything about the elections that you're wondering about or interested in? Yeah, a lot of, I mean, just to close the chapter on IQ, because I did read some books on psychometrics. So, you know, a lot of people think like they make IQ tests. And, and the reality is they don't make IQ tests anymore. IQ tests are perfected by statistics and what's more predictive. So IQ tests have been around for over 100 years and they don't have like really smart, clever people, um, you know, design tests that, that work better. They use statistical evidence of what type of questions are more predictive. So in that way, I mean, you know, to use the word scientific, but IQ tests become more and more predictive because that's actually how uh, um, most of the tests are are made, if you understand what, what I'm saying, that, uh, you know, so they, give, you know, because IQ tests are given to so many millions of people and because they've been uh, measuring, uh, you know, various factors of people over their lifetime, that they're constantly reworking the questions in the way that, uh, you know, that IQ is meant to measure to be the most predictive as opposed to, uh, you know, a group of scientists determining what they think intelligence is. It's statistically determined. Okay. And there's a terrific paper on, on this very topic that uh, discusses the IQ threshold hypothesis, the idea that after IQ 120 additional IQ points don't translate into higher achievement. This is false. Even among the top 1%, meaning IQ above 137, the higher your IQ, the more likely you are to have a great cognitive achievement. But uh, back to the elections, is there anything that you're paying attention to or interested in in today's elections? Yeah, man, all of it interesting. Like, I'm not a voter. I mean, honestly, I, I think it's indicative of larger trends, and I don't think it matters that much that, uh, you know, I, you know, I think the Republicans are probably going to win pretty big, maybe even the Senate, uh, you know, possibly quite a few gubernatorial races. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, so in Michigan, that you know, they have Proposal 3, which is abortion, that is expected to, you know, the state constitutional amendment is expected to pass with over 
but uh, you know, we'll see. Rashida Tlaib will be my congresswoman with the new redistricting. Brenda Lawrence retired, and she was a different district, but uh, there is a Republican running against her, but uh, you know, he stands almost no chance. Uh, you know, all of the races in Michigan, you know, the governor's race, Tudor Dixon, um, you know, remote possibilities, Whitmer's a huge favorite, uh, Benson, the Secretary of State, and uh, Dana Nessel, the Attorney General, these are all, you know, hotly contested races, but all the, you know, local elections, Congress uh, people, and, uh, you know, across the country. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what issues you're finding interesting, you know, just the overall like the ADL measure of, uh, you know, they say there's over 100 Republicans that, you know, so to say, are election uh, uh, election truthers and, uh, you know, the likelihood that the Republicans are going to take the Congress and over 100 of them will be truthers. And then, you know, what's that going to mean for, you know, because I think the Congress people vote their majority leader themselves and then they'll pick, uh, um you know, the heads of the committees. So almost everybody's almost predicting the Republicans will win. So the question is, uh, you know, the break, the breakdown of the Republicans and how many Trumpers and how many truthers or how many uh, extremist Republicans are there. And will it be enough that uh, they will, you know, have a significant representation of uh, committee chairmanships and the Senate also, where, you know, if the Republicans win. So, um, you know, all that, and I think their abortions, uh, you know, big deal. Many states have uh, ballot initiatives on abortion and also Secretary of State. Like, we talked about that going back, and I mentioned Jocelyn Benson in Michigan was uh, a board member of the uh, SPLC. And, uh, you know, she was spouting this voter registration SPLC agenda um, like a decade ago, and she ran for Secretary of State um, you know, really because she wanted to get Trump out of office, even saying so. And so the Republicans were kind of slow on that and, uh, you know, disregarding the importance of Secretary of State and, you know, for uh, regulating elections. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of Secretary of State. You know, the Kerry Lake uh, is pretty hyped. Uh, you know, she's probably going to win. I haven't really followed much in uh, California. Um, you know, the Lee Zeldin to Jews, that's a really big deal. Uh, you know, Jews who usually, you know, went out on a limb to endorse Zeldin. Most of the Orthodox blocked uh, Jewish vote that I would say 90% of the time is Democrat. Um, this time, almost all of them are endorsing Lee Zeldin. So, uh, you know, that's going to be interesting. A lot of people think Lee Zeldin has a uh, pretty good chances of, uh, winning, you know, like New Square, uh, the, you know, there's a few, you know, regarding like Orthodox Jews in the community uh, elections that, uh, you know, Jews are watching. So uh, I don't know, what are you looking for? Well, I'm, I'm just open to seeing, seeing what happens, because as you know, I'm more analytical than, than partisan. I mean, obviously, I can decide much more with Republicans than, than Democrats, uh, would you describe yourself as more likely to vote uh, Republican than Democrat? No, I'm I'm a libertarian. I mean, I registered as a libertarian the only time and voted. Uh, I think straight libertarian. Um, I have some right leaning, but uh, I'm pretty down on the system. I think it's kind of a, a scam. 
to force yourself to choose between two people and uh you know so i i don't really have much uh much hope that uh there's going to be much i mean there's going it's going to make a difference elections have consequences but uh i'm nonpartisan and uh you know pretty skeptical of the system in totality and my politics is uh, like since i was 15 i've been libertarian and i've never really had any uh leanings to uh, change from being a libertarian Okay, I might uh, come back to you later if you're around, David. I'm going to move on with the show right now. So thanks for coming on. Okay, appreciate it. So I'll sign off, and uh, maybe in a few hours when returns start coming on, we'll talk again. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Okay, let's uh, check in here with... uh, Of not just the United States, but of the world. It is time to have a senator who will serve the people. Being gracious. When the U.S. prospers, we all prosper. I need you to show up me so that I can show up for you. Big stakes. We need a governor who cares about the state of Georgia. Our battles are from us. And we will not back down. It's all on the line. Expect an exciting night that could go either way. And America's decision starts now. It is 7 p.m. in the east, and polls have now closed in six states. We begin with the battleground state of Georgia, where Fox News Decision Desk says Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker are in a very tight race at this hour. It is too early to make a call in this race. Georgia historically slow counting these votes as they come in. So we're going to watch this one throughout the night. Also, if either candidate does not get 50 percent of the vote, there will be that expected runoff in about four weeks from now in December. December 6th in South Carolina, we can project that Republican Senator Tim Scott will win a second full term, defeating Democrat Crystal Matthews. Let's go to Kentucky, where we are projecting that Republican Senator Rand Paul will cruise to a third term, defeating Democrat Charles Booker. We can also project Indiana Republican Senator Todd Young will win his second term. He defeats Democrat Tom McDermott. And in Vermont, Democrat Peter Welsh will replace retiring Senator Patrick Leahy as the next senator for the Green Mountain State. All right, so this is a look at the balance of power right now. And you've got 32 Republicans, 37 Democrats. It is early in the night. A majority is 51, as we know. And as it stands right now, you've got a 50-50 Senate. But as we get some of these early votes in, this is a look at where we stand. Now over to the races for governor, starting with Georgia. Governor Brian Kemp, the incumbent, has a slight lead against Stacey Abrams. Again, it's early. This race is too early to call. It's not yet clear whether Kemp can reach more than 50 percent to avoid that runoff we just talked to uh, about back to Georgia when we have updates, more raw vote total. And in South Carolina, the Fox News Decision Desk projects that Republican Governor Henry McMaster will win a second term in office. No big surprise there, defeating Joe Cunningham. And finally, in Vermont, we haven't seen enough data yet to definitively declare Republican Governor Phil Scott will win more than 50 percent of the vote there. Again, he's got to get over 50 percent there. Now, we are going to, throughout the night, now have a ticker. So there's nothing surprising. That's the upshot. Nothing surprising yet on any of the election results. So let's have a look at the chat. Glenn Bedley says, early voting is like drive-through dining. It is drive-through democracy. It's tragic. Federico notes that Luke is pulling Northern Hobbs-like numbers based. (laughs) Uh, Brandon says, 
Too fat to get out of the car, too ashamed to be seen eating when they're fat. Dysfunction within the empire is impossible to not see no matter where you look. Brandon says, one guy I work with taught himself Mandarin to read, speak, and write it. Wow. Clearly, (laughs) clearly high IQ. Anyway, here's the, the definitive study on this topic. And I posted a link in the chat a little earlier. So studies called From Terman to Today, A Century of Findings on Intellectual Precocity. So Terman was a guy who studied genius earlier in the 20th century. So 100 years of research on intellectually precocious youth is reviewed in this study, paints a portrait of an extraordinary source of human capital and the kind of learning opportunities needed to facilitate exceptional achievements, life satisfaction, and positive growth. The focus is on those studies conducted on individuals within the top 1% in general or in specific abilities such as math, spatial, or verbal reasoning. Early insights into the giftedness phenomenon actually foretold what would be scientifically demonstrable today, 100 years later. So evidence-based conceptualizations move from viewing intellectually precocious individuals as weak and emotionally liable to highly effective and resilient. Like all groups, intellectually precocious students and adults of strengths and weaknesses They also reveal vast differences in their passion for different pursuits and their drive to achieve because they do not possess many multi-potentials. We take a multi-dimensional view of their individuality. When all is said and done, higher the IQ, the better it predicts long-term educational, occupational, and creative outcomes. So we'll keep an eye on the returns. Please throw any important links into the chat. And again, a little more here from Stephen Cochran. Either from the east or the south. The Ukrainians switch over to the NATO battle plan, NATO World War II, uh, NATO Cold War. Why? why? What am I talking about? If you remember, the Soviets have this massive troop presence and armor in Europe. And it's too big for the West to oppose in a frontal encounter. The Soviets just have way too many troops and way too much armor. But we have a more intelligent plan, which is we're going to destroy their logistics, their supply and their command and control behind the lines to disrupt their ability to conduct operations. So we're going to fight the battle that we can fight against the army that's bigger than us with more armor. This is what the Ukrainians have switched to. They've switched to this because we enable them with our long-range weaponry that they can strike behind Russian lines, disrupt Russian fuel depots and Russian uh, transportation, Russian communication command and control, and make the Russians incapable of offensive operations and maybe even loosen them up to push them back a little bit. This has been a fantastic plan with a twist. The twist was... Zelensky decided they were going to do a frontal assault all the same on Kherson province in the south to get back the Sea of Azov littoral and to make Crimea vulnerable again. So this thing comes up with this plan. They take it to our people, and our people say, let's war game that. They war game that a couple of times, and the Ukrainians pounding the Russian positions, which are well defended, uh, lots of troops dug in, some armor. And the better troops in the south. The first wave exactly. of replacements are the ones in the north around Kharkiv. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they can't make any progress mm-hmm. in the war games in the south. So gently, our side suggests to the Ukrainians, why don't we attack the weakest part of the Russian front? which is the northeast around the second biggest city, Kharkiv, where the Russians uh, are actually not army there. It's police force. It's National Guard, kind of paramilitary police. volunteer battalions that were raised. Volunteer battalions and some criminal battalions, as the general knows. And so it's the weakest part. And in fact, the Russians decide to withdraw from that area. And so the battle plan is now, it looks like an invasion frontally in the south, but that turns into partly a deception because now we're going to hit them where they're weak. There's no second echelon. There's no third echelon. They, they ride those Bushmasters, those fantastic Australia from our Australian friends, those great armored personnel carriers, the Bushmasters and some other. So the Ukrainians ride in into almost empty space because there's very little defense on the Russian side. There's a lot of weaponry that the Ukrainians can capture. Most of it is not usable immediately. 
I was just thinking about the Biden administration's policy with regard to Ukraine. My position is I am opposed to subsidizing Ukraine, that I recognize that great powers, Russia's a great power, have very substantial security interests on their borders. Ukraine's right next to Russia. We should not be provoking World War III. We should not be risking a nuclear Armageddon. But I recognize that I may not be right, and the Biden administration may be right, and I may be wrong. And so on what basis would the Biden administration be right here? And that is if they're taking the brutal, realistic calculus that this war is going to knock Russia out of the great powers, that this is going to hasten the demise of Russia, who has been a peer competitor to the United States for about 80 years. And so on the one hand, underneath the beautiful humanitarian rhetoric of supporting plucky Ukraine against this nasty authoritarian power, maybe a brutal, realistic calculus that, yeah, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians and Russians may be casualties. Ukraine may be absolutely destroyed permanently as a nation state. Over 10 million people may well be displaced, but it's all in America's interests if we remove Russia as a peer competitor. So that's a brutal, realistic possibility. And it kind of reminds me of so much of U.S. foreign policy. Like underneath the beautiful humanitarian rhetoric are often very hard-headed, realistic calculations. So, for example, we delayed entering World War I till near the end. So with relatively few casualties, we got involved in World War I, you know, mopped up the Germans. We were decisive and we were the victims. And World War II, again, we let other nations fight it out for relatively little loss of American life. We came to dominate the globe. So we didn't make these brutal, realistic calculations explicitly. We hid them under all sorts of humanitarian rhetoric. And that's so quintessentially American. This is what the Biden administration is doing now. They're making a brutally realistic calculation and then dressing it up with all sorts of, of pretty rhetoric. And who knows, maybe maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. Let's get a little Ann Coulter Welcome here to my with Mickey podcast Kaus. with the great Mickey Kaus, um, longtime liberal uh, and, and liberal observer who luckily brought this wonderful ad to my attention. How did we get here? Low wages, high inflation, record crime. Illegal immigration from places as far away as Pakistan. Our cities are a mess. Public services are a nightmare. But instead of helping us, Joe Biden has sent $66 billion to Ukraine, weapons worth billions more. And now Joe Biden says his fighting Ukraine could lead to nuclear Armageddon. World War III. You know what I say? No mas. Citizens for Sanity paid for this ad. So, Mickey, I understand that some of your fellow liberals... <laughs> had their usual calm, laid-back reaction uh, to this. Some of, some of my f- uh, fellow L.A. liberals, uh, Michael Hiltzik, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the L.A. Times, who's a little bit exci- excitable and occasionally uses sock puppets, uh, uh, <laughs> he, he said it, this ad was explicitly racist. And then Ron Brownstein, uh, whose uh, uh, bio notes has been nominated for several Pulitzers, <laughs> uh, said it was the uh, uh, it is the ad was by a, a 
an independent group called Citizens for Sanity, does Trumpian double duty by linking anti-immigrant incitement with a pro-Putin message by blaming the Ukraine war on Biden, not Russia. Well, A, A, claiming any doubts about the war are pro-Putin is really a, a horrible tactic. Uh, B, yes. it didn't. the ad did not say that Biden was to blame for the war. It said Biden's fight. Biden is, Biden is responsible for spending $68 billion of money in our fight defending Ukraine. We didn't have to do that. Uh, maybe it was a good thing. Maybe it was a bad thing. But that was Biden's decision. And that's what is being criticized. It's as if in the Vietnam War, uh, you know, a liberal group that I'm sure Ron Brownstein and Michael Hiltzik would be a member of put an ad on saying, you know, we shouldn't be involved so much in Vietnam. You know, we're, we're, it's, it's, it's a no win situation. It's going to hurt America. We should spend the money at home. And somebody said, you have to take this ad off and pressured Major League Baseball to take it off because it was pro-Ho Chi Minh and blamed Lyndon Johnson for the Vietnam War, all of which would be BS. Uh, this, is yes. the, this is the heart of free speech, that you can have a debate about a war and without being shut up and, and forced off the air by sort of belligerent people Record on one inflation. side, like Ron Brownstein Group. and Michael Hilson. Well, moreover, at least the ad, Oh, come on now. I'm trying to run a professional show here. I saw anything. All sorts of things are cutting out on me. Bloody heck. Okay, let me let me play you this, this killer ad once again. Let's see if we can play it. Groceries up 13%, gas up 36%, and crime is out of control. But instead of helping us, Joe Biden sent $66 billion to Ukraine. Billions more on weapons. Instead of helping us... Now, Biden says his fight in Ukraine could lead to nuclear Armageddon. World War III. Hell no. Citizens for Sanity paid for this ad. This man was serving a life sentence for murder until radical liberal Larry Krasner released him. Now, he's accused of killing again. As Lieutenant Governor, John Fetterman celebrated Krasner's deadly policies and adopted them as his own. Fetterman put at least 10 murderers back on the street and wants to release one-third of the state's prison population. Larry Krasner and John Fetterman, helping criminals go free and killers kill again. This is a great ad. This is important stuff. Mark Kelly means more crime. In Phoenix, murders and aggravated assaults are on the rise. Joe Biden and Mark Kelly are letting violent criminals terrorize our state. Cities in chaos, families in fear, a hell of violence and death. Stop the insanity. For decades, crime was falling in the United States. Stop the madness. I mean, these are good ads. No wonder liberals hate these ads because they're so darn effective. All it says is what I've been saying forever, and I think a lot of Americans have been saying forever, we're spending $68 billion. We don't, we're not rolling in money here. There are a lot of Americans who are hurting. Florida was just hit by a, a Category 4 hurricane. How about some money down there? How about Americans suffering with inflation and high gas prices and medical bills? 
I mean, this permanent war crowd, no, they do have to account for the endless money we are sending to all these wars. And of course, the main point being, I just, I don't think, I don't think anything that happens in Ukraine will make Americans safer or less safe. Certainly not what we are doing, but it's not our fight. We need a border a wall on or our border, not not to be protecting I, Ukraine's borders. I, I I I guess I never make that argument because I think, along with many conservatives, that the if if we had that sixty eight billion dollars, the government would just piss it away on a on <laughs> you know a fully refundable child tax credit and you know <laughs> you know in some some sort of uh, ridiculous incentive for industries that's unnecessary and and. And and teachers raises, you know, that aren't necessary or school <laughs> or school, you know, diversity and equity programs. So, uh, you know, that there's no guarantee that the 68 billion would be used any better under the Biden administration than uh, that it is being now. The problem is the wars, uh, it, it's counterproductive is going to lead to a, the way it's being waged is going to lead to a less safe world. Maybe yes. according to Biden's, according to the Biden speech which is quoted in this ad it might lead to armageddon now you <laughs> yeah. think there might be a political downside to saying that your policies are going to lead right that's incredible joe biden gives a speech saying that his policies might lead to armageddon like <laughs> that's crazy and then you get an ad that highlights it you know highlights its insanity and i think that's incredibly important ad like, who wants Armageddon, particularly when it's gratuitous? Like, why did we choose this? Like, why would we choose Armageddon? That's just insane. Right, we'll keep an eye on the news here. It's a lot, obviously a lot of interest of whether or not that may play as a factor into the results tonight. But we have seen a lot from the Republicans in this state letting us know they feel very confident about their chances. And we'll know soon enough. Guys, back to you. Mark Meredith in Ohio. Mark, thanks. You know, we were just talking about the numbers that are coming in. There are some numbers from Florida. Uh, Bill Hemmer yes, back at the board. Are. Yeah, the, the whole state doesn't close until 8 o'clock, but there's some data right now in from the 7 o'clock close. And this is going to be a story if it sticks, okay? Uh, this is the governor's race in Florida. This is Ron DeSantis up against Charlie Chris. This is Miami-Dade, okay? Right now it is red. 66% of the estimated vote is in, and DeSantis leads Chris. DeSantis won his governor job four years ago. That year in Miami-Dade, he lost by 20 points. If this number holds up, you've got a bit of a tremor right there uh, in southeastern Florida. Let me try to go to the Senate race here just real quickly here. Uh, this is Marco Rubio and Val Demings. 25% of the vote is in. Back to Miami-Dade we go. A moment ago, this was blue. Now it's red. Two-thirds of the estimated vote is counted, and Rubio leads Demings as well. Watch the percentage here on Rubio and Demings, and I'll go back to the governor's race and see how they ch- – well, okay, <laughs> right? I mean, it's almost a mirror of itself, 53.6. And then on the Senate side, you've got Rubio at 53.0. If this holds up, guys, major story in the Sunshine State so, tonight. Yeah. One more question. The Florida 27, the Salazar race, can yes, you get Yes, I sure can here. Maria Salazar ran for 
our first key races over here. Remember, second panel yeah. here on uh, on Florida. Maria Salazar ran in 2018. She lost. She ran in 2020. She won. Mm. Cuban-American running for re-election again. The guys, this is pretty handily here. This is 78% of the estimated vote. And Salazar is well ahead now by 11 points uh, in her district. That Florida 27 right down here in Miami. A lot of Democrats live here. Uh, a lot of blue votes out there. A lot of Cuban-Americans voting in that election as well. So all three of those are, as we say, on the clock as of now. Right, yeah. Martha? Hey, that's great. Uh, very interesting, Bill. We just have a few seconds here. But, but Carl, when you look at Miami-Dade, I think it's about 70 percent Hispanic vote. Isn't that yeah, right? Right. And the last time a Republican carried Miami-Dade was Jeb Bush in his 2002 re-election where he was carrying everything. This is a really remarkable story here tonight. Uh, the the uh, transition of this historically Democratic county in the southern part of the state is part of a broader story about Florida. Think about this. In the last four years, they have added 600,000 new registered Republicans to the rolls in Florida and 27,000 Democrats. So this is, we are now are the first time that the Republicans have ever outnumbered Democrats in registration. Well, Florida has changed so dramatically in the past couple of years, right? And so we'll see whether or not this is reflective of other trends across the country or whether this is a Florida story uh, that we're watching play out. Either way, it bodes well for 2024 for Republicans. And we've got this brewing competition now between Mr. Trump and Governor DeSantis, which has been, you know, obvious in the last couple of days. Big, if it's a big, big night. For so uh, John Mearsheimer is in Europe, and he met with uh, Viktor Orban. So there you go. Renowned, renowned political scientist John Mearsheimer meeting with Viktor Orban. And uh, betting markets place the odds at 84% that Republicans will take the Senate. And these citizens for sanity ads are just fantastic. I mean, what a, what a great job they're, they're doing. Disaster. Hospitals overrun, schools overwhelmed, the safety net shredded, drug dealers and sex traffickers roaming free. A third world country? No. Arizona. Joe Biden and Mark Kelly have thrown open the southern border. Over 5 million illegal immigrants from over 100 countries have entered since Biden took office. Three times the population of Phoenix. Send a message to Biden and Kelly. We don't want open borders. Right, that's uh, that's good stuff. Okay, we'll keep an eye on all the all the news. Throw down any important links. Need Armageddon. Uh, <laughs> so, so this ad is is making that argument that you know Biden himself says it might lead to Armageddon. Why can't you say that? Uh, it's it, it's. <laughs> I, I took this as as a a sign of how. The fact, the possibility, the strong possibility that the Republicans might win the midterms big has driven Ron Brownstein a little crazy. He's a smart, yes. he's a smart guy, and he's gotten much better since the New York Times poll up, poll came out saying the Democrats might actually hold on and win. So uh, <laughs> he's going to cling to that, and and that will restore sanity for at least another week. Uh, you know, if the Republicans actually win, Katie bar the door. Who knows what's going to happen? But, um, yes, yes, that's a really good point. So I guess under Democrat presidents and with with Democratic Congresses, I, I really I should support utterly pointless wars because of the bad things they'd spend them on at home. Um, but let this be a warning to you, Ron DeSantis or Heavy D, as we're calling him now, <laughs> Heavy D. 
Um, no, no pointless wars. You got a lot of work to do and you might need some money. The, um, uh, anyway, the, uh, we don't have to get into a whole debate over the war, but the, the debate over whether there, whether there's a right to show this ad is open and shut. I mean, I don't think there's well, any. Yes. Case. And I also really object personally on, and on behalf of, of, of African-Americans <laughs> calling. I was trying to figure out what was racist about this ad. I, I think the only thing is they talk about illegal aliens, Mickey. Well, they also, I think they also say that among them are criminals. Nestled among them are criminals, which is true. Well, well okay, but th- no, you don't get to call, to complain. Yeah, citizens of sanity. These ads just uh, driving liberal groups absolutely nuts. Meanwhile, I can't believe Tablet Magazine has taken on the Anti-Defamation League. No more ADL. And uh, Leo Leibovitz, who's a reliable lefty, is taking on the Anti-Defamation League. He says, uh, pop quiz, which of these two individuals do you find more problematic? Kyrie Irving, a kooky basketball player who believes that the earth is flat. John F. Kennedy was shot by bankers that the COVID vaccines were secretly a plot to connect all black people to a supercomputer and that Jews worship Satan and launch the slave trade. Or Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, accepted $500,000 from Kyrie Irving last week without even meeting or even talking to the All-Star and who was then forced to give back the donation when Kyrie Irving blatantly refused to apologize. But one of these guys is a weirdo with dumb opinions you may or may not believe, Kyrie Irving. The other is running a soulless racket, which just made it clear that you can say whatever you want about the Jews and buy your indulgences at a discount price. And uh, Leo Leibovitz says, it's time to say goodbye to the Anti-Defamation League. We need to walk away. So in 2017, the Anti-Defamation League issued a guide to America's worst anti-Semites, right? a 36-person rogues gallery. So Louis Farrakhan, the black supremacist beloved by celebrities, wasn't on it, nor was the Oberlin professor. You argued that 9-11 was a Jewish conspiracy, nor Linda Sarsour of the Women's March, who argued you can't be both a Zionist and a feminist, because the former somehow makes you less than human. She also equated Zionism with neo-Nazism. Instead, the Anti-Defamation League picked a posse of minor right-wing nutjobs and absolutely no one else, and then a its guide naming the hate. 2018, the Anti-Defamation League came under scrutiny for flooding its reporting on anti-Semitic attacks, all right, trying to further the false impression that Jews were under attack by hordes of white supremacists heartened by the rise in rhetoric of Donald Trump. And then in 2020, the ADL signed on to a campaign calling on Facebook to censor pro-Trump ads and his partner in this assault on free speech and political speech. It was Al Sharpton. So the Anti-Defamation League has always been a group on the left, but it's never been as partisan as it is today. Complain about racism if you're an immigrant, legal or illegal, but especially illegal. No. Here I'm drawing the line. Maybe we can't do it for college admissions, where you know you're 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 doing the genetic test to see that they really are related descendants of American slaves. But no, here the only people who can complain about racism are the descendants of American slaves. You don't get to arrive on you know Wednesday and then on Friday. Oh, I notice there are no 
there are no Asian anchors right. on the evening newscast. No, 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 no. You you throw your lot in right. with the rest of us. It's like it's like Elvis Costello, who was furious that it took him only two years to go from being a street busker to international rock superstar. <laughs> they were like they were holding him back. I tell you. Uh, um, yeah, they were just oppressing him. All right, let's uh, check in with Fox News here. Is that they've fixed them by now, but they say that hiccup, they want to extend the hours and they've got a bunch of attorneys and volunteers on the ground. Okay, just imagine problems with voting machines. <laughs> uh, we need so, paper ballots. Um, anyway, the, uh, I had another thought, but I forgot it. Oh, yeah, there was an argument that some, I read somewhere on the internet, which is very unreliable and will remain unreliable, that, uh, <laughs> that the guy who assaulted... Mr. Pelosi was an actual illegal immigrant from Canada. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, I believe, has been confirmed. An illegal immigrant from Canada, yeah. Okay, well, it would be racist to keep him out, too, I guess. Um, <laughs> so there you have it, right-wingers. Every, <laughs> it's hitting every one of our issues. Right? And you have to run off on me. I think it was his gay lover. <laughs> um, as, as Scott McConnell said, the idea that, and this is a, a topic we're not supposed to be talking about, the uh, the idea that Nancy Pelosi would have a closeted gay lover for fifty years seems <laughs> completely implausible. It just doesn't jive with every indication. Yeah, but there's still a lot we don't know. Why don't they release the the, the cam footage from the police officers who made the call? Like, why did this attack only take place after the police arrived on scene? Like, Paul Pelosi wasn't hit with a hammer prior to the police arriving. It only happened after the police arrived. So why can't we get the body cam footage from the officers? How did they how did they let this happen? Like, why was no one monitoring security footage, right? There was security footage that showed that the break-in had occurred. Why, why was no one monitoring it? And then why did NBC News retract this, this Today Show report, which cast a lot of doubt on the official narrative? So still a lot of questions with regard to Paul Pelosi and that attack. Now, I believe the general outlines of the attack, as we know it so far, is accurate. Because of this snowstorm. They say it's not snowing that badly, and this is not required. So apparently it's storming and raining in California, in Southern California. So we'll see how that affects. So Maricopa County is extending voting hours. So the, the conventional wisdom is that that helps Democrats. The easier you make voting the more Democrats. But now there are pollsters who say for the first time that this would actually help Republicans more than Democrats, that a lot of people who don't vote, if they did vote, would vote American, Republican. And they've had it. And they're going to kick the guys out. And we could all see this coming, except for a few people uh, who uh, didn't see it coming. And then I think tomorrow the president's going to have to say something. He's going to have to come to the cameras and admit Maybe something went wrong, and we'll see if he can own up to it. I, I doubt he will, though. Jesse, what do you think about New York? You're a New Yorker now, um, live not too far from here. What do you expect to happen? Well, I'm actually moving to New Jersey, so, um, <laughs> but I did vote today, and it's a toss-up. Crime's the dominant issue. I saw a lot of Lee Zeldin signs in Long Island. That's his stronghold. But I was recognized a few times in my deep blue Manhattan polling precinct. So I consider that an also positive anecdote. <laughs> but Kathy is a lackluster candidate who just whiffs on crime and points fingers. 
And if we could get a Republican in the governor's seat in, in Albany here in, in, in New York, you could really turn the city and the state around. Hey, Juan, why is the president not committing to a press conference tomorrow? Well, I imagine that he has to say something. I mean, you know what the language, Brett, is in the past has been, you know, this I took a whooping, you know, I was devastated, whatever that you want to use in terms of a very active description. But I think the president has to, given what we've talked about in terms of results, get a sense of what it means not only for himself and whether he runs in 24. I don't want to get scolded yeah. like Brett. He Okay, I can uh, do without his analysis. Brett Stevens actually had an interesting column. I can't believe I'm saying this. Eight days ago, Putin is starting to do what won him a war seven years ago. So in 2015, as Bashar al-Assad in Syria was losing his war to remain in power in Syria, he pled for and received Russian military intervention. President Barack Obama reacted with angry disdain. Well, things turned out differently. Barack Obama said, any attempt by Russia and Iran to prop up Assad, trying to pacify the population, is just going to get them stuck in a quagmire and won't work. Well, turned out completely differently. The Russian military, led by many of the same officers who now command Putin's war in Ukraine, achieved an unexpected victory right, over a brutalized people and a self-deluded American administration. So what were the keys to Russia's success in Syria? And why are they lining up right now in the war in Ukraine? So the key to Russia's success was the deliberate, indiscriminate, and massive slaughter of civilians. So this is the approach that Putin, with the assistance of Iranian drones, is adopting in Ukraine. So 80% of Kiev's residents were, out without, were without water after these drone strikes. Much of Ukraine is without energy. So if Putin can freeze, starve, and terrorize Ukraine's people by going after their water supplies and their energy infrastructure, right, he may be able to force Kiev into some sort of armistice that leaves him in possession of most of the ground that, that he has won. So Putin may have stumbled on military strategy that seems to be working for Russia in Ukraine. ...of the people who are running the country. Right now, they know there's single-party rule in Washington. They're against that. And I think mm -hmm. in Ohio, you see Governor DeWine having fended off a challenge from the right, a former congressman in the primaries, and having convinced Ohio voters that they should stick with him because he has uh, been competent. I want to just go back to something that Jesse and Juan were touching on. Um, I'm, I'm just astonished that when Bill Clinton and Barack Obama as presidents suffered grievous midterm losses, they at least died on a hill that they believed in. For Obama, it was, uh, for President Obama, it was the affordable. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on there. Let's see what uh, Richard Spencer and Mark Brahman have to say. Very eloquent so far. Let's talk about the Tower of Babel. And I think this one image actually opens up quite a bit of territory to talk about the Bible, to talk about the figure of Yahweh, to talk about empire and pan-racialism, you could say, and the, the messaging that continues, um, that, has, that is very old and that continues to this day. So uh, for someone who has a cursory understanding of the Bible, I bet they have heard the phrase, the Tower of Babel before. And it comes in Genesis at 11. So it's, you know, right up there with, uh, 
uh, Noah and Adam and Eve and Abraham and all of this, you know, really foundational stuff. And um, the way that I heard it throughout my time was as a kind of conservative lament about flying too high and building too fast. So it was like they're building another Tower of Babel, this, you know, Trump and trying to build the tallest building in the world on, in Manhattan Island. It's a Tower of Babel. The EU is a Tower of Babel. Um, the, uh, actually, the EU um, capital almost resembles <laughs> the Tower of Babel, at least in a, a famous depiction of it. And so it's this notion of, uh, you know, don't, don't be Icarus, don't fly too high, etc. And, you know, there's some wisdom to that, of course. But one of the things that, you know, I think your work in general opens up is that we really look at the text specifically and we ask, what is this really about? Like, what is this text really saying? And what is even the messaging in the kind of boulderized version that we have today as well? Um, so wh why don't you pick up on something like that? I mean, what, what did you, did you, I, I presume that you had somewhat of the same feeling yeah, yeah. I mean, before no. you approached the text. Yeah, no. And I think, I mean, I think another way uh, the metaphor is seen is also a kind of, um, uh, the hubris in particular is the hubris of empire, you could say, right? Yeah. So, and I think that that's sort of what you were implying with your remarks, but it's, um, so, and I think that, that is how it's been understood, right? Because uh, when, when the uh, tower is, is destroyed, um, nations form from those fragments, right? That's the understanding is that nations form from those fragments and those nations are speaking different languages. Right. Um, so, uh, so it is, and I think it, you know, it, it gets to, because you'll, you'll see this often, like just in the DR in general is that there is this notion uh, this kind of dogmatic notion that um, uh, imperialism uh, it necessarily means also multiculturalism, and you know, and, and I'm thinking, or inevitable multiculturalism, and I'm thinking sort of uh, racial multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. um, now, so, so, in, for example, people lament uh, the uh, colonial past of Europe, uh, you know, uh, Great Britain in particular, um, but also France, um, and and they'll they'll say, well you know, look what's happened, you know, since we were imperialists, now there's this kind of reverse colonization going on. And this is a sort of inevitable uh, consequence of the sin of being imperialists, of being colonialists. Right. Of course, it's not, I mean, in, in my view, and I'm sure in your view as well, there's nothing kind of inevitable about it. No. But there, in, and in fact, I would say that ultimately, it's kind of a more ideological, um, you know, psychological and ideological problem that's occurring that's more closely related to liberalism, of course, but also Christianity, right? Um, and so that those are kind of at the root of this sort of reverse colonization that's happening in Europe now. Um, so, and I think that that's a kind of, you know, that's like, so petty nationalists in our sphere will just accept that as a kind of dogma that imperialism necessarily means ultimately multiculturalism. And that doesn't even necessarily, you know, that, that could be, that doesn't mean, um, you know, reverse colonization necessarily. That means, you know, the French, um, intermixing with the Indians or uh, especially the Spanish inter intermixing with the Indians in South America. Um, but of course, w when we see with the, the English who also were Christians, um, they didn't really intermix uh, in, um, in uh, America. They just, they, they fought the Indians. Uh, they killed uh, some number of them and they also kept separate from the Indians. Right. And so, and, um, and that wasn't, you know, that didn't go to their sort of deepest, that came out of a kind of, you know, Anglo instinct at the time that was sort of active and alive at the time. And it was not for necessarily any deep creedal reason, um, emerging, for example, from the religion, which would be the kind of deepest psychological um, point you would you would think. Um, so, so they prove um, that yeah, it's not necessarily multicultural. Uh, uh, empire is not necessarily multicultural, but that's a kind of like thing that you'll hear people say, ostensibly intelligent, like sort of thought leaders in the DR, um, when we have ready sort of historical examples. So MSNBC sounds pretty depressed about uh, what's going on in Miami's Dade County, which has usually been a reliable. 
Democratic stronghold. So listen to their audible gossip. We just got, my, I'm told we just got Miami Dade. This is a big one in Florida. Let's take a look at, okay. This, we got the, yeah. So let's put this in some perspective. Miami-Dade County has two and three-quarter million people. In 2016, this was a Democratic county by 30 points. Hillary Clinton won this county by 30 points. Miami-Dade is 70 percent Hispanic. It began shifting to the, to the Republicans in 2020. Donald Trump only lost it by seven. And look at this. In the mail-in and early vote, which again tends to be more Democratic-friendly, Marco Rubio, the Republican, is outright leading in Miami-Dade County by seven points over Val Demings, a Democratic challenger. In the gubernatorial race, uh, interestingly, we don't have numbers from uh, Miami-Dade County. There they are. I'm not... They popped up for a second. Was that it? That was, that I was, no, I flipped up to Broward to try to reset it to see if it came in. Okay, so they, they don't like those results from Dade County. Media Hit says, look, stay streaming for the next few hours. Laponius, Ford will stream until the last vote is counted, bro. Right? E- even if it takes you know, another three weeks, the, the sun the sun never sets in Australia, mate. But let's get Fox News comes in here. And rolls through the state. Uh, this was a year after Biden was in the White House. Glenn Youngkin took District 2 and swung at a total of 14 points in his direction, uh, and he won this area. L- similar... Congressional District 7, right? This is uh, Spanberger's seat running against Yesley Vega. Again, it's still too early here. Different part of the state. But this was a part um, of Virginia that Youngkin swung by 13 points. 12 months now we're talking about. You know, Biden goes in, takes it by six in this area. Youngkin flips it the other way to seven points in a different direction now. And it's a whole different ball game. Republicans believe uh, in this part of Virginia. Remember what they said from the beginning. This is your bellwether for majority in the House. This is the question about whether or not there's a red wave. And this is the question as to how high that wave could or could not be. It's early. It's early. It's early. Yeah. Hey, Brett, what about these governors? They're winning with big spreads. DeWine, we call with, you know, very little. So, it's competence, right? Uh, yes, and, and, it, and it affects the Senate races. Uh, and in Georgia, for example, Brian Kemp needs to, he's going to win, it looks like. Pretty, pretty, pretty confident about that. Will he win and pull Herschel Walker over the finish line? Herschel Walker is running behind him in the early, in the early information that we have. Um, so these these governor races count as for themselves, but they're they're also in in some places critical to the fortunes of some of these uh, these other these other candidates. New Hampshire's another one exactly. with uh, Sununu. Right, Sununu is very popular, very very popular, more and more prominent. They wanted him to run. You may recall the Republican oh, yeah, Party absolutely. wanted him to run. He declined to do it. Stayed where he is, mm-hmm. and we end up with Bolduc, who is, by the way, um, one among several of these candidates who are the Trump-backed candidates, uh, and how they do will have an effect on things going forward. But I won't get ahead of you. I, <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. Can I mention one thing about the governors? Yeah. Quickly. Because in Oregon and New Mexico, you might see flips there, partly because of also competence. You right. have um, Drazen, who is challenging Brown there in, uh, in Oregon, and Mark Ronchetti could challenge... The uh, Grisham, Lujan Grisham, excuse me, in New Mexico, those two would be a flip. But I do think that's also because those states are doing so poorly in so many areas that matter. Crime, education, energy, border. 
And, and inflation. Uh, yes, and it's a good, uh, it, there's also the ticket splitting question that we're watching really closely in Georgia and whether or not people make one choice at the governor's level and another at the Senate level. So all of that to come. And we're also going to get a look at our Fox News voter. So friends of mine here in Australia are all excited about this election as well. And let's check in with the news. Came back in about 30 minutes ago. I had a chance to speak with him briefly, very quickly, just ask him a couple of questions. I actually asked him if and when the Republicans take the Senate, would he prefer Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott, over Mitch McConnell? He said, I really like Rick Scott. Great. He was a great governor. He's a great senator. I like Rick Scott, basically telling everyone, I think his guy is going to be Rick Scott when they take the Senate. I'm going to have a sit down with Trump, a one on one within maybe an hour or two or so, as soon as he's done getting some election results. I want to ask him the big question. I know he's running. Who's his vice president candidate going to be? Who's he going to pick to, to run with him? A lot of a lot of thoughts on that. Personally, I don't know about you, Rob. I think Carrie Lake would be a stunner, either whether or not she wins in Arizona or not, which I think she will. You know, one other thing that everybody's talking about, um, whether Republicans want to admit it or not, is, is Ron DeSantis. It seems like Trump is trying to squash any thought of him running in in 2024. Um, I know you're going to probably ask him about that. What are your thoughts on, on the situation right now as it stands up? So that's the other thing that kind of threw at him a little bit right before he went back. And I said, well, you know, you're, you're, you're basically saying, kind of firing a warning shot across the DeSantis bow, what's going on there. He said, like anyone else, anyone else that wants to run against me, he'll be like no, like no one else. He said, everyone, he's going to get the same treatment that anyone else would. And if you remember when he ran in 2016, he was very aggressive. He didn't matter who, what side of the aisle you were on, if you're going to run against him or say something, he was going to go after you. That's the Trump that I see here tonight. And I think that's Trump you're going to see as soon as he announces in a week from tonight, as you point out. Okay. Eric Bowling at Mar-a-Lago. Looks like a nice party. Better weather, anyway. Good to see you, that's sir. Good party. <laughs> All right. Let's bring in Aaron Perini, Republican strategist, and pollster John McLaughlin. Good to see you guys both tonight here on the set. Aaron, I want to start with you. I just want to follow up with that real quick because it's the big talker right now is DeSantis. He said today he voted for him. He's trying to—I mean, obviously there's something going on, right? Well, absolutely. I don't think that that would surprise anybody yeah. that a governor who is very much a national profile, you hear President Biden continuously go after Governor DeSantis for the way that he is managing Florida and specifically during COVID. Um, but this is pretty much par for the course in any primary, right? There's a little bit of elbowing, right, a little yeah. bit of pushing and shoving. So that wouldn't have surprised me at all yeah. that you see a little bit of early jockeying on what will be an exciting 2014. So uh, David Pinson just tweeted, just voted Democratic to make sure trans girls get the gender-affirming care they need to get their uteruses removed and the Azov Regiment in Ukraine gets the lethal aid it needs to defend democracy. Now it's time for some Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> Bonjour Le Baron. Remember him? He used to come on the show regularly. He thinks uh, New York is going to be a red state. And DeSantis currently up eight points in Miami-Dade County with 60% of the vote in. So in 2018, DeSantis lost it by 20 points. Okay, exit polls show a significantly whiter electorate this time around. The CNN exit poll on race, whites 76%, blacks 9%, Latinos 10%, Asian 2%, Native 1%. This is a significantly whiter electorate than in 2020, right, compared to the 
U.S. actual population, according to Census Bureau's data, which is distorted, distorted to underestimate the white percentage of the population. Whites are 58% of the population, blacks are 12, Latinos 19, and Asians are 6. So if we've got a significantly whiter electorate this time around, that should be good for Republicans who are effectively the white party, while Democrats have become the black party. County officials tell us they had 155,000 mail-in votes come in. They managed to count all of them by 3 p.m. They have been out, I think another outstanding thousand or so that they're going to work through counting and, uh, and processing through the rest of the evening. That's the picture there. There is Luzerne County. They had a bit of a of a printing issue. They ran out of paper there, so that's the only county where they're going to have uh, polls close at 10 p.m. tonight as opposed to 8 p.m. for the rest of the state. Big news here from the Fetterman campaign is that they sued a couple of days ago uh, when it came to ballots and writing the date on the back of them. State law says when you sign in your mail-in ballot, you got Hey, I'm trying to run a professional show here. Who sued and said you got to throw those ballots out. The Fetterman campaign is saying you got to count them. Back to you, Martha. All right, Rich, thank you very much. We'll be back there throughout the night. Shannon Bream has been tracking our Fox News voter analysis. You have the latest, Shannon. Okay, Brett, Martha, here we go. Midterm elections, and guess what? Voters are unhappy when they are asked about how they think the federal government is doing. Our Fox News voter oh, analysis finds find three quarters are dissatisfied really or downright angry at the Okay, let's have a look here at some uh, Mickey Kaus tweets. Uh, David Roberts says, One thing nobody will state clearly about social media is that an aspiring social media site really only needs to attract the left. Why? Because reactionaries are fundamentally parasitic. They follow the left around. This is what Gab and Parler and True Social are missing. They are reactionaries who have no desire to gather and simply rant at one another. No one wants to hang around in that environment. But if you build a social media site for educated city-dwelling liberal elites, reactionaries will 100% trail along and show up. Their raison d'etre is owning the libs. They will go wherever the libs go. Envy and resentment, whatever the libs have, is a parasitic worldview. If liberals could go to some magic country without reactionaries, they'd never think about reactionaries again. But reactionaries are bereft without liberals. It's right there in the name. They cannot be generative. They cannot build. They can only resent and tear down. Well, that's the attitude that oppressed peoples have, right? So isn't it wonderful when blacks have this kind of attitude and homosexuals have this attitude and other oppressed minorities have this attitude? So to, for conservatives, they, they feel like every institution in the country has been captured against them. So Mickey Cow says there's a grain of truth in this analysis. Liberals do control the mainstream media. Conservatives are desperate for a venue where they can engage with and argue with and troll liberals. That's why conservatives liked Twitter and why they disdain Parler. Yeah, people people want conflict. Right? Conflict bring, brings viewers, conflict energizes. GOP consensus seems to be a gain of 22 seats in the House of Representatives. And the betting lines say 84% chance that Republicans win the Senate. Growing concern among Ron Klain, circle that his own run in the job could soon be coming to an end. So it sounds like uh, 
there'll be a new chief of staff after this disastrous election. Ed wave that so many people have been talking about. And so you want to really look at Texas, Wyoming, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, West Virginia, Oklahoma. These are the leading energy producing states. And it is largely energy policy that will change or at least get slowed down. The Biden climate change agenda slowed down. Should we see a big GOP win? Uh, because it is all about inflation. I would say the root cause of inflation is uh, the uh, COVID-19 relief package passed into law back in March of 2021. So all of that spending beginning with that uh, March of 2021 package and the other packages that we've seen has created $5 trillion in borrowing. But it is this climate change agenda that the Biden administration is pushing so aggressively that the Republicans will likely want to change. Republicans will change that energy agenda, especially when it comes to clean energy. Energy, they will push back on the climate change agenda. And so that's really where I'm focused tonight. I should point out that the price of oil has skyrocketed since President Biden started selling oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We're talking about oil now back up to the $90 a barrel level. Even the gasoline prices uh, are above where they were when Joe Biden took office. Of course, they are lower uh, in the last year, but still elevated. So it is all about inflation. Another Another issue that investors are watching with regard to the economy is rent. Those essential items, food, fuel and energy, uh, food, fuel and rent are the really main issues that have been a problem for American families. Rent has not stopped rising. So we continue to see rent as a major issue. Food prices off of their highs, although you're still talking about, for example, a dozen eggs up 30 percent in price year over year. So the issue is inflation. Within inflation, I'm looking at energy, and tonight investors will want to see real success. Okay, let's have a look at uh, Richard Spencer's got a column here, The Red Era Returns. The 2022 midterm elections, the Republicans to lose. Right, you could say the midterms act as a referendum on the party perceived to be in power. Well, the Democrats are in power. They control the House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, and the White House. They are in power. Okay, midterms are simply good for the party, not in the White House. True. Now, there are times when midterms have announced serious changes in public mood and demographic realignment, such as the 2006 election broke strongly for the Democrats. Those famous wave elections occurred in 1994 and 2010, in the middle of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama's first terms. So now we may be entering a, a new red wave. Uh, you could argue that 2022 might be a wave election for Democrats because of the Roe v. Wade hearing. So Steve Bannon proclaims Republicans will win 100 seats and govern for 100 years. <laughs> Richard Spencer says, my guess is that it will be closer to 30 seats and a reign that is no longer than, than two years. All right. Tonight, it's going to get more interesting as the night goes on. In Pennsylvania, John Fetterman is suing to have undated and misstated absentee ballots counted. Fetterman has hired Democrat election attorney Mark Elias, uh, and we're going to go. We're going to talk to Rick Santorum now about that. A little chaotic here, but uh, Rick, if you can hear me, now. I can hear you. Okay, Rick can hear me. 
Uh, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about John Fetterman. You're from Pennsylvania. You're the senator from Pennsylvania. Um, it's 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 interesting that he's doing as well as he is in the polls. He's obviously got this attorney. They're trying to pull over a fast one and allow these outdated ballots to be counted. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, this is this is one that should be a no-brainer. The fact is that the law is very clear. Okay, we got a lot of polls closing in, in about five minutes. So let's get a little bit more talk here on the Tower of Babel. So they prove that that's not the case. Right. And those historical examples come out of a time when uh, the ideology was kind of, you know, or again, the deepest sort of religious ideology would uh, encourage people to intermix as, um, you know, the Spanish did, and especially compelled by their religion, they, they intermixed, compelled by Catholicism. Um, yeah, with, the Catholic uh, Church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, th yeah. I think there might actually be a significant Catholic and Protestant divide in this case. There's also the, the case of uh, different types of uh, the conquistadors and the uh, North American colonists where it was a different social order. It was families coming over and so on with a different conception of things. But um, yeah, you're ultimately right. I mean, the age of exploration and colonization, empire in that sense, um, doesn't necessarily have to lead to any kind of impulse towards race mixing. It can actually lead to the opposite. Yeah, yeah. In, in that the case of the United States. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, and I think that that... Lose all these moderates if he loses. party loses with moderates. And it'll be ever more populated than it was before with lefties. Yeah. And, and it'll be harder for him uh, to move in that direction. Yes, a lot will depend I, on yeah. what he decides about I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's an interesting perspective. Juan, uh, what about no, that close? No, you know, right no, after no, saying no. that oil companies... No, we're not going to listen to Juan rather listen to Tower of Bobble. There's generally a kind of petty nationalist view in the DR. And, um, you know, and, and so that that's kind of, uh, you know, I was listening to a debate recently um, between Greg Johnson and Mark Collette, and both of them ultimately had a petty nationalist position, right? So mm -hmm. in other words, um, and they were each arguing that, um, no. So petty nationalism means that you care about your people. <laughs> petty, petty nationalism means that you love your family and your extended family. What exactly is petty about loving your family and your extended family. Nationalism is a feeling, right? It's a feeling of connection to, to your in-group, to your people. I don't see what's so petty about that as opposed to what believing in grand empires like uh, Richard Spencer. Spencer believes in grand empires. Mark Collette and Greg Johnson believe in petty nationalism. Oh, I don't, I don't see it as, as nationalism. Nationalism simply means that you care about your people, your extended family. Nationalism simply refers to an identification with the largest possible group that you can effectively nationally identify with. So it's very normal and healthy basic instinct. And so I, I just don't, I don't understand the contempt for this this basic instinct. Well, it was America that was the imperialists, and, and uh, Greg Johnson was arguing, no, it's the Russians that were the imperialists, right? And it's kind of like, well, you know, I mean, as if it's a kind of bad thing, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because nations don't, they don't form without imperialism. Like, the Engl England wouldn't exist without imperialism, without the, uh, you know, the Saxons uh, right. coming over from Jutland or whatever it was called at the time. And, you know, I mean, so it yeah. just wouldn't French-speaking Vikings. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, these nations wouldn't exist without first being empires. And right. This, uh, Spangler's view is that that which does not grow dies. Yeah. Right. So if you're going to if you're going to sort of kind of play goalkeeper, then. Uh... That which does not grow dies sometimes. Now, when it comes to culture and language, all right, cultures and language, languages and, and religions are always either expanding or they're contracting. Right. 
is that more and more people are speaking your language or fewer and fewer people are speaking your language. But when it comes to the nation state, sometimes the most advantageous size is larger than it currently is. And sometimes the more advantageous size is smaller. It's not like it's just inevitable that a nation state must always get bigger and bigger and bigger to get more powerful. Sometimes by expanding, you get less powerful. Like think about what would happen if you expanded your marriage to another partner. In all likelihood, your marriage would not be stronger. So certain things, right, culture, language, religion, the, the more people who are speaking your language, the more people who are participating in your culture, the more the better. But when it comes to size of a nation state, sometimes bigger is better, sometimes it's not. Okay, we'll keep an eye on the returns here. Uh, you're just going to be letting in the occasional goal or, or, or many goals as you know, right. conditions now uh, um, would dictate. But um, so I think, that, um, I think that we always have to have a kind of imperialist mindset. Um, now, obviously, we're not, um, we're not in a position where we have uh, armies or weapons or anything like that. But so the Apollonian worldview is to hold on to the imperialist mindset. Now, I don't think being imperialist is evil or wicked. I think being imperialist as a mindset is dumb because there are plenty of times when the imperialist mindset does not serve you and it does not serve your people. Right? There are all sorts of examples in history. Say, so how did it work out for the Germans going with the imperialist mindset in World War I, World War II? It didn't work out. Or for the Japanese in World War II, it didn't work out so well. But sometimes the imperialist mindset in a certain time or place will serve you, and sometimes it won't. So this idea that you know imperialism forever, imperialism now, imperialism tomorrow, imperialism forever, that's just a, a stupid worldview. Like, just doesn't hold up. I, I don't know why, why smart people don't, don't see that. So... Richard Spencer tweets, when technology doesn't work perfectly, conservatives say, what does it all mean? What has George Soros done this time? Nice, helpful man calmly explains the problem. Conservatives, civil war is upon us. You know, everybody wants to make sure that it reads and everything is fine. Can you repeat that? I can promise can you. you can you start from the beginning yeah. and repeat that? So what happens is we have two tabulators. One of the tabulators is not working, Okay. The other tabulator is taking about 75% successful. So 25% of them are being misread, and it could be a printer issue, um, or it could be the tabulator itself. So when it's misread... Okay, so sometimes the paranoid mindset serves you, right? We obviously evolved towards paranoia, because th those who weren't careful, right, they, they died out. Right, so we we evolved to be ever alert for threats, and so conservatives concerned about you know, voter fraud, you know, very normal, natural, healthy. You know what? Also, normal, natural, and healthy. Paleo granola of the honey pecan variety. This is so good. Have you tried paleo granola? It's got seeds, coconut, Australian pecans, and almonds coated with honey. And it is gently roasted to perfection. This is what's powering my live stream. I had a big bowl of this today. And in, in a serving, it's got 9 grams of protein, 23 grams of fat, and only 8 grams of carbohydrate. Paleo granola. 
Polls have just closed in 16 more states. We start in the critical battleground of Pennsylvania, where the Fox News Decision Desk says it's too early to call this race. Pennsylvania is another historically slow-counting state, so it could be, warning here, a long night for both Dr. Oz and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. We'll keep you updated on that one. It is also too early to call New Hampshire the Senate race there between incumbent Democrat Maggie Hassan and Republican Don Bolduc. Hassan won this seat over by just over a thousand votes in 2016, making her the most vulnerable. Okay, so a slow clout counting state or city or county is not necessarily nefarious. It simply means that you have a lot of votes and limited resources. So generally speaking, you're talking about areas with tremendous poverty. So in Australia, voting is federalized. The federal government funds elections, right? American elections are largely run by volunteers. They have different standards, not just state to state or city to city, but county to county. And so inner cities, right, tend to have a lot of people, not so many resources, right? That's why the counting's so, so slow. But generally speaking, just because the count is coming in slowly, it doesn't mean that something nefarious is going on. Date, this one also too early to call. Interesting. In Maryland, Senator Chris Van Hollen will win his race, defeating GOP candidate Chris Chafee. And we can also call the Alabama Senate race, where Republican Katie Britt is projected to win. She takes over the seat from Senator Shelby. Yeah, she looks was pretty close chief. there. You sure you're ready to call that? Yeah, we're ready. Uh, <laughs> chief of staff. She was his chief of staff. Two races in Oklahoma, both too early to call, but both Republican candidates lead at this point in the first. James Langford fighting for a second full term. And in the special election, Republican... So this almond milk is to die for, right? It's, uh, it's got more fat in it than, than carbs. Am I reading this correctly? Yeah, it's got... It's got eight times as much fat in this as carbs, and it's so good. And when I got through, here's the reward for my getting through my first bottle of unsweetened almond milk, no added sugar. I was able to put in a pack of classic crystal light orange. Mm. Want to do some lengthy live streaming? Make sure you got some classic crystal light orange on hand. So good. So good. Just like one little packet. I brought about 150 packets of crystal light and about 50 packs of gum with me to Australia and a spare pair of undies and a spare pair of socks. Right? I couldn't fit everything in. I had to have my crystal light classic orange. Against Republican incumbent Kevin Stitt. This was rocky for a bit, uh, but it's too early to call at that time. Not enough data to call the race in Maine, though Governor Janet Mills has a lead against her predecessor, who was going for another round as governor there. We'll see what happens there. Paula Page. And Massachusetts, we can project that Maura Haley will be the next governor of the Bay State right next door in Maryland. Fox News can also project that Wes Moore will replace term-limited limited Republican governor Larry Hogan. So that goes to the Democrats. And the Fox News Decision Desk says Governor Chris Sununu has a lead in the great state of New Hampshire. And Laponia says, I was going to say crystal light, but I thought it'd be too absurd. And now I realize nothing is too absurd for 40. <laughs> okay, so keeping an eye on. Oh, Newsmax has Greta Van Susteren. Talk more about the North Carolina race and why you think 
we are in this position now where it seems like Ted Budd is underperforming a little bit? Well, look, again, I think part of this depends on what comes in. We're going right. to see Raleigh come in quick. We're going to see a lot of these big areas come in. The rural counties are going to come in a little slower. So, again, how much is coming in, and it's going to take a little bit longer. So you're going to see immediately, right when those polls close, a lot of the urban areas come in, the urban centers. So that's not that shocking, right? The question is, does he start to make up that ground quick? But remember, you've had a, a, a lot of migration into to, to North Carolina. You don't have the top of the ticket. So how these guys do head-to-head, there's not a lot of super PACs that were playing there. So, so I just brought a carry-on bag, and I had to fit my CPAP machine into this. I had to fit my heavy laptop into this. I had to fit my crystal light. I had to fit my massage gun, my, my activator, my 50 packs of, of gum, and you know, a spare pair of undies. I, and uh, I, I wore my one nice shirt, and uh, away we go. So no, no suitcase, just, just one carry-on backpack. This is, this is stood me in good stead. This is like 30 years old. It's been all around this great big world. All right, Marco Rubio doing pretty well. About the Don Bulldog race and how much Maggie Hassan outraised him. This is another race, too, where the Democrat outraised Marco Rubio, yeah. the incumbent, and it didn't matter. You know, you talk about uh, how well that uh, Governor DeSantis is doing. I wonder how, how uh, President Trump, who has not said that he's in the race, wink, 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 but uh, for the president. But I, I suspect that he wants him to win, but not by that much. Well, the interesting, to me, the interesting thing here is, is how so the, the chat says, 40 travels with a cloth sack, just like biblical times. Try explaining the activator to the customs officers. Here's the thing about entering customs in Australia when you're an Australian citizen. You're not treated like the enemy, right? When you fly into the United States as an American citizen, you're treated like the enemy. When you fly within the United States, the, the security treats you like the enemy, Government treats you like the enemy, by and large, in the United States. In Australia, government treats you like you're a citizen. It's kind of weird, but most Australians feel like the government, for all its flaws and inefficiencies, and Aussies love to mock the government, but Aussies fundamentally feel that the government is on their side. And I think we used to have that in the United States. Somehow we lost it after the 1960s. It's like when you used to be able to leave your home unlocked. You could leave your car doors unlocked in the San Fernando Valley into the 1960s. We've talked about in the governor's race, uh, Ron DeSantis way ahead. And you think politics and election night, you think we're going to be up all night watching Florida. Well, we're not because both the governor's race and the Senate race have now been projected. Now, if you go inside the governor's race, you see in, uh, for instance, Miami-Dade County, what was Donald Trump's vision of the Republican Party that it would be able to win in places like Miami-Dade? So, look, Ron DeSantis has got 53 there. Look how Donald Trump did in Miami-Dade, 46. So on the DeSantis side, they're going to be doing a little bit of crowing, right, that he's outperforming in Miami-Dade well above what Donald Trump did. Trust me, President Trump will notice that, too. Now, let's go to North Carolina, which Sean has been talking about all day. Senator Sansorum said this is an outlier right now. Mostly what we're seeing is strong Republican performance in these eastern states where the polls have closed. But North Carolina is an extraordinary outlier, including in the Senate race and some Howard races. Here's the Senate race, almost half the vote in. Democrat Sherry Beasley, former Supreme Court justice, is ahead of Ted Budd. Now, look, as Sean said, we got to figure out, dig in here, where is the vote out? 
Ted Budd has not been, in the view of many, a great candidate. He got the nomination because Donald Trump endorsed him. If Ted Budd doesn't win this race, everyone's calculations about Senate control go up in flames because this would be a pickup for the Democrats. It's currently a Republican seat. We're going to watch this one closely. All right. Thanks, Mark. Of course, we'll check back in with you frequently at the big board tonight. And for more, let's check in with senior correspondent John Huddy. He is live from the Dr. Mehmet Oz campaign in Newtown, Pennsylvania. John? I think Mark Halperin is my favorite uh, political reporter. I think he's pretty much down, down the middle, and I think he's pretty fair. So I like Mark Halperin. So, yeah, these are new headphones, Sony headphones, just amazing noise-canceling abilities. They cost about 350 bucks, And uh, normally I just use headphones on a cord because I have a lot of problems with the, the wireless headphones, uh, you know, going out on me during a live stream. But I got to start trying these at home. So I use these at home, except for when I'm broadcasting, then I keep with the, the, corded, my, the corded headphones. But uh, I brought these to Australia. Good deal. Like top-of-the-line headphones, and so I might start using them on my live streams. In Canada, there's not one Canadian at customs. You're treated like the enemy, says Laponius. How quickly do Republicans stub their voters in the back? I give it nine months. Well, Rustin, it's like falling in love. Okay, just imagine that you fall in love, you meet this great woman, and everything's great for a few months. How long till she stabs you in the back? Betrayal is inevitable in all relationships. As soon as you form any sort of connection, as soon as you form any sort of bond with someone, they're going to let you down at some point. Right? Their behavior is going to differ from what you expect from them. So it is the nature of being alive that uh, people will betray you. But what you call betrayal, what you call being stabbed in the back, is simply that other people and other groups have different priorities from what you expected, right? So let's say Rustin right now types into the chat, Luke Ford, you are a big fat idiot. I'm never going to watch your show again. Right? And part of me would go, oh, no, like how could, how could Rustin betray me? We, we've been through the wars together. We've had so many great conversations. Like, you know, we, we're so, I thought we were so tight. How could he betray me? But Rustin wouldn't be betraying me. He would simply be being true to a different set of his values. So when when someone says, I can no longer be friends with you, it's not that they're not betraying you, even though it will always feel like that. They're simply acceding to a different set of values than what you expected. If your sister says, no, I can't pick you up at the airport, she's not betraying you. She just has other commitments. If your spouse sleeps with your neighbor, She's not betraying you. She just has other priorities and staying faithful to your marriage. So betrayal is a hyperbolic term that, that we use for, for people who have expectations that we don't like. And Elliot Blatt, what's going down, bro? Oh, blessings, bro. Blessings. Blessings. Love is all oh, around us. Exciting times. Pins and needles, Luke. Pins and needles. How are you? So, <laughs> well... You sound really good. You sound so healthy, bro. Every time I talk to you, you sound so healthy. I just coughed, right? You know, my lung problems are resurfacing again, so I'm going to have to take 
we have to take more drastic measures than I've had in the past. So yeah, it's been a sort of Achilles heel of mine. So it's, it's come to new levels. So, um, health wise, not as, not as good as I have been in the past, but otherwise I've been, uh, sort of sailing along, Luke, sailing along, feeling good, feeling good. Singing a song side by side. What song have you been singing? Sa- no, sail along? sailing, sailing along, sailing along sailing along not singing along i have a terrible singing voice and it's always been a certain pet peeve of mine like i find it amazing that people can actually sing and that i can't i always thought you were the guy who could make love out of nothing at all (laughs) no i need i need a lot of not as a lot of kindling bro (laughs) so uh so what do you think? You seem very passionate this whole process. We got it. Well, I'm in Australia, mate. Everything is chill. You know, I've, I've been in Australia for six days now. I think today's Wednesday, five days. I've not heard an angry word. I've not mm-hmm. heard a discouraging word. It's like home, home on the range. Now, there's okay. definitely anger here, but I'm not hearing it. All right. So I'm going to ask what everyone's asking, Luke. You got you to walk us through. Like, one day you're in L.A., you wake up, and then boom, you've got to be in Australia. Just mm-hmm. this flash of insight. When <coughs> Drill into this. How did this happen? Like, it was just, was it something that's been stewing for a while, or was it like this sudden uh, satori, sudden flash of inspiration? Well, the night before, family members said, hey, hey why don't you come over for Chrissy at Christmas? Yeah, okay. And, okay. and I said, I, you know, I, I don't think I could do it. You know, I had various obligations. And then those obligations fell away or I quickly saw that I could fulfill them in Australia. I, I could just do them remotely. So certain things just fell into place at 9.15 a.m. on mm. Wednesday morning. Just like boom, boom. And then, yeah. and then it took me an hour to think about it. And then I went and booked a booked a ticket. So now, did, did you feel the hand of Providence sort of working through this, or is this was this wasn't so okay? Like forty eight hours prior, you had you hadn't even considered this. I hadn't even correct? considered it, and even the night before, I only gave it like a one percent chance. Okay, and then within the space of one hour, you were booking yeah. a flight, mm-hmm. and you found a flight. Yeah. And then you can, you're in a position where you can just do this. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. save money. Like I don't travel. So, you know, I haven't come up to see you in San Francisco, even though I love and care for you. Mm. I, I know. I, don't, I, I, don't. I, I, I know. It's been a, it's a lingering question. Why does he come up? Why does he fly up? It's such a, it's, 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 it's does he really flight. truly love me? Or does he it's not a, love am me? Am I just a prop? Me? Am I just a prop in his, does he in not his love empire? Me? Does he love me? Does he not love me? So, yeah, I, I save money so that I can do these things. I put a priority on my free time. So other people put a priority on being a responsible adult. Uh, other people put a priority on their children. Uh, other people put a priority on supporting their synagogue. Uh, other people put a priority on developing their career or building their business. And these are all very obviously worthy, and, and I don't think that they're any less worthy than, than me. I just put a priority on my spare time. Like I want to mm. have the maximum of free time 
and the maximum of freedom so that I can read the books I want to read and, and, and do the things that I want to do. And so I save money. I don't, I don't spend money. And then whenever like things click into place, I, I inevitably choose more spare time, more freedom rather than less. And yeah. I'm lucky that I get to stay with friends and family. Like I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not Airbnb this. I'm not uh, paying hotel rates. I've, I, I'm paying for my groceries. And mm-hmm. also another thing that helps is that the American dollar is so incredibly strong. So the American dollar is about 20% stronger than it was a year ago. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, you know, in a small way, I'm envious, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a homebody. So <clears throat> traveling like that, I find the whole process of traveling really, really, really disruptive and stressful and ultimately not worth it. Because when you, when you get to this new place, you're basically the same person, you know, when you, from where you left. Like traveling doesn't change you fundamentally. It just sort of changes your scenery. Um and you know, I I uh I used to think think a lot about traveling and then I thought then I did it a bunch and then I said, Well what am I missing here? This is, it just seems like aggravation. I don't know. Anyway, let's not discuss it. That's boring. No, no, I wanna I wanna pick up on that. I think that's important. Does does travel change you? And in one sense it, it doesn't. So here's the analogy I'd use. It, it, 12-step talk, they, they discuss doing a geographic. That means you move to try to get away from your addiction. So if you're a compulsive drinker or, or you know, a compulsive masturbator, you know, moving is not likely to change the addiction. Uh, on the other hand, many people are situational in their compulsions. So if they are struggling at work, they're more likely to smoke or to overeat or to drink soda pop or drink alcohol or all sorts of different things like that. So I think much of us is inherent, right? But also much of us is situational. There, there are situational addicts or situation, situational compulsive. So this is, for example, where I'm at right now. It's a much more relaxed place. I, I've got a good friend who lived in LA for 15 years and she had difficulty sleeping. She just found it much more stressful being here. She moved to another country. Now she sleeps really well. So substantial yeah, I, parts I, of you can change in a different location. No, I absolutely believe that. I believe that. I believe that there are specific environments that suit specific people. So, um, I I've experienced this firsthand. So I sort of know what you're talking about, but. Um, so like, I don't like enjoy travel for the sake of travel, but I do believe that you have to find, you have to find the the climate that suits your clothes. You know, you have to find where you, where, you know, all the boxes are ticks where you feel alive, where you feel good. And, um, that's, you know, that has been San Francisco for me. Um, there's a certain thing you get off the plane. There's a certain smell in the air. And you're like, ah, oh, yes, this is it. This is reality, right? And I've always had that for this place. So, um, yeah, a, a interesting idea. And um, when, when was the last time that you spent, 
spent time outside of San Francisco for several weeks. For several weeks? Um, the longest I've been away has been one week. Uh, and I went back east a few times for one week. Wow. And I couldn't wait to get out. I couldn't wait to get back. <laughs> On day two, I was like, Oh, I gotta endure this. Why? How do people? I'm looking around, and I, I'm like, I was in Boston, you know, and I'm looking around. How do people endure this bullshit? <laughs> you know? They're happy as can be. They seem to really like it, thrive on it. But like to me, it's it was um, it was a walk through hell. It was purgatory. But so yeah, what? What yeah. about uh, you know Oregon or you know, some some rural part of the United States? Um, I mean, you wouldn't find a you wouldn't find it a hellscape. Yeah, well, okay, I'm very inclined to find a rural part of the states, but <clears throat> there are significant downsides in the rural environment. There's significant upsides as well, but there are, you know, when I'm frank and honest with myself, uh, the rural life does have significant drawbacks. So. Uh, I've been looking, you know, I've been sort of calculating this, thinking, well, you know, it does sort of make sense for me to be true to my principles and find some sort of uh, rural place. But every time I go to one, I'm like, oh, God, this is, this is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because like, it's, it's like, you think, you think about all the nature and stuff, but the, you don't re- what you're, not, what you're not prepared to contemplate is all of the poverty and misery and just just general squalor and to use your favorite phrase, low IQ. There's <laughs> just a lot of low excuse me, low IQ bullshit that sort of accompanies the rural life. So I you know, unless you're in some place, you know, like um what is that one Aspen or something in, in Colorado, you know, these elite places that are rural. Uh, your average um, rural health, it's like, you know, it's its aluminum siding, uh, warehouses, and uh, just broken down Camaros in the lawn, and it's just, it's really hard to, it's really hard to be around. So I, I, I just default to staying in place when it all, when it all comes, when it's all said and done. Um, but, um, you know, I am very attracted to the mountains. Like every time I go to a mountain location, I'm really stunned and feel like I'd been missing out. You know, what I could live in such a guest circumstances. So I, I start thinking about some sort of uh, mountain destination where I ought to be living. Um, but I never act on it. And for me, the most important thing is the number of friends that I have there. And I just have a lot of friends in Sydney. I'm just curious, where in the world do you have the best concentration of friends? Yeah, sadly, they're mostly on the East Coast. They're all on the East Coast. For it's amazing. All of my friends here have left um, in various waves. San Francisco's in a big downturn. I don't know if you know, you're aware of this, but it, it's been, it had been riding high for the longest time. But eventually... Um, the economic circumstances, you know, the, the cost of real estate and rent has driven people away. And then now there's cutbacks and things and, uh, you know, Facebook fired like 
some number of thousand and then Twitter fired a bunch of thousands of people. These are big hits to a pretty actually small geographic area. So these, these firings are going to be felt and um, I'm, I'm really digressing a little bit too far here, but um, yeah, I find that I'm pretty alone here now in San Francisco because everybody I knew has left. They moved for either one reason or another. Wouldn't you rather be in a big city next to your friends than, you know, anywhere else? Yeah, but uh, I'm thinking this through as you ask it. Um, I'm thinking we need to set up a commune where we could all live communally. Yeah, that that sounds so good on paper, but, (laughs) you know, anybody, anybody that's attracted to a commune is by definition, like, not functioning. They're they're semi-functioning, you know, because they need a group to prop them up. So they're they're basically a liability. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. (laughs) No. People that need people are a net negative. Bro, I need you. <laughs> no, you don't. <clears throat> Believe me, you don't. Well, you're a nice supplement. <sighs> like a beef organ? Well, not, you're not, not that great, but I mean, okay. you're better than almond milk. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so the other day I took a drive past Nancy Pelosi's house. Yeah. Just to see, just just to drive by, see if it was, you know, this is like the week after the famous, the big incident, you know. Mm-hmm. It, there must have been a half a dozen black SUVs and just very officious looking people with 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 sunglasses and serious demeanors, just surrounding this property. And then there was this ring of photographers, you know looking in on this whole scene and it was just so funny i just could i wanted to like i wanted to stop and kind of get out and talk to people you know and but the 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 the, the presence of all of these black vehicles you know i'm not being racist here i'm just because they're the black car, the, you, you, you no, got a problem was, with them no i'm not being racist i'm just saying the cars were literally black like the color black and there was this just presence. It's amazing what <laughs> certain colors of, of vehicles can like create such an august, uh, fear-inspiring uh, atmosphere, you know? So I was scared away. <laughs> Did you drive hammered? Did I drive hammered? <laughs> no. So it's very funny how the evolution of that story came and went and how it became a um, um, it became a political football of sorts in this really weird and direct way. Uh, anyway. Uh, how do you stay alive for misinformation? There's just so much misinformation going around, bro. Well, I trust you to, to filter it for me. <laughs> I know Luke will do the deep dive and he likes to read those that wide variety of uh, daily periodicals and he will <laughs> sift and sort and figure out what's peer reviewed and what's not. And 
if Luke says it, it must be true. So yeah, I, I, I outsource my, my uh, media consumption to you, Luke. Uh, I think you're supposed <clears throat> to call them vehicles of color. You're supposed to call them black vehicles. <laughs> Oppressed vehicles of color, underrepresented. Yeah. So, so up until then, provided that I got into this little, you know what next door is? Are you a member of next yes. door? Yes. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so, you know, this whole incident just spoke my inner troll, which I'd been sort of able to suppress for a solid year. But just because it was so intrinsically funny, I just couldn't resist. So I got on one of these threads and I was talking, you know, I made my made the obvious 4chan-esque comments. And uh, just what a hell story came my way. <laughs> It was so funny. It's so funny how people are so media driven. Like everyone in the world. Um, well, isn't it that never nice, used to be like nice this. We have a common language. You know, we're all connected via the media. We're one yeah. people, one love. But you and I, we're old enough to remember when politics was, it was at best like a, a passing interest. You know, it was a hobby, and there's only this handful of spurgs that just went into it like balls deep you know but now everybody is into it maybe and... maybe it isn't that the world's changed maybe it's that we have changed and we just assume everyone else is as spurgy as we are um, maybe assume that um no no um no, the world's changed. The world's changed in a very weird way, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I just try to, like, I just, when I talk to younger people, like, I don't think they had a taste of the, it's like people that never lived prior to the internet don't, just aren't aware of a lot of things. They're, they're missing, like, it's just a huge character change to the way the world used to be versus the way it is today. And, um... Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's so weird being so saturated with media all the time. And I'm, you know, I'm into it. I like it. I, you know, I pick up the phone. I, I just, I love doing it. I love immersing myself in it. Like the, 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 uh, the, um, dopamine is almost a continuous IV drip from this phone. You know, the amount of funny stuff that you get thrown your way, but there aren't those long, quiet, contemplative moments that there used to be prior to the uh, the internet media saturation that we have now. And how many drinks have you had today? I've had two, Luke. I've had two. What have you had? I had two greyhounds. And what's a greyhound? A greyhound is vodka and grapefruit juice. Oh, excellent. It, and is that, your, is that your cat that's going off in the background? Yeah, it is. Are you torturing it, that cat? It sounds like you're torturing. No, well, I'm torturing it via neglect. You know, it's a... Uh, yeah, you know, I think... Cats, cats, cat psychology is very interesting. But uh, you can tell that he's not the focus of my attention. Therefore, he needs to pry me away. They're not as bad as dogs who literally demand attention. But cats... Cats need attention a little bit. You know, for brief and intense periods, but then they quickly go back into their own solipsism. So, how many drinks do you have on an average week? Uh, about two a day, so I guess I'd be fourteen. 
Hey, what's the longest you've gone without alcohol in the last uh, five years? Uh, probably about nine months. Oh, wow. I went on a big fast and then, um, and then it was like after COVID, once COVID hit, then I, then I, um, then I sort of eaten, you know, started Take going back to it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, and it, you know, the, the bottom line is, <clears throat> I know, drinking just makes life so much more interesting. Yeah, it serves you. It, it, it's like yeah. a tool. Yeah. You know, ancient men had tools that they'd club things with, but drinking yeah. for you is a tool. It just helps you get through the day. Yeah, it's but it's just like it's this, uh, you know. Uh, It's this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? So it helps you slog through all of this mundane bullshit that you have to do. Because, you know, once you've done of it and dispatched all your responsibilities, you can treat yourself to a nice couple of crisp greyhounds. And when you talked about talking to younger people, um, how young are they and uh, how do you get a hold of them? Um. They're like, I would say in their twenties <clears throat> and like one guy's like quasi working for me and then other people. So in my side gig, and then I often talk to, um, uh, junior developers at work. So, uh, I talk to them and they're like in their twenties or early thirties. Okay. And do you notice much of a generation gap? Uh, totally. Totally, totally. And um, we don't really connect, you know, and it's weird. I've always heard that term generation gap, but now I know what it means. And um, and the scary part is, is that they're they're often very bright people, um, but they're also uh, very conformist and they don't. I just remember all my friends having like a rebellious streak to them. And it seems like these, a lot of these kids today, these 20s, 30 year olds are, um, uh, I don't know, they seem gelded in a very strange way. But it could be the profession, you know, it could be software attracts such people. And how do they think of you? How do they regard you? Um, well, they pretend to like me at the very least. Uh, <laughs> but they're... Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think I, I treat them fairly. So I think they have a general appreciate for me but they're not going to want to hang out with me at the same time you know they're like they i gotta i gotta check the oven here um whoa 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 is that anti-semitic no bro come on man come on man remember i'm i in some genetic sense man i'm more in the tribe than you are bro okay it's just whenever anyone tells me that they need to check the oven i just start getting nervous had a bad experience. Okay. So what are your thoughts on the election? What do you think is going to happen? What's your prediction? I see a big red wave, mate. No. Let's get, let's get cut to the chase. Like how uh, many? 
How many uh, senators? How many senators do the Republicans get? Okay, they, they get uh, fifty-three. So it becomes fifty-three, forty-seven, or fifty-two, forty-eight Republicans in the Senate, and I bet they get over twenty-five House seats. So between twenty-five and thirty House seats. Okay. Well, I, I've got money on fifty-five for the Republicans. Fifty-five I mean, House. Oh, 55 Senate seats. 55 senators, yeah. Wow, went, how much went, money? <clears throat> well, the total bet was like 100, but if I win, I get like 650. So it's like a lopsided, you know, the odds are against this bet. I knew I knew that going into this. You know, I have some money on 54, but most of my money's on 55. I think there's going to be some upside surprises for the uh, Republicans. Now, granted, I consume a lot of... Um, you know, uh, sort of base and red pill media who are are more or less telling me what I want to hear. So you know those guys like Basham and then that other guy, I forgot his Patrick Basham. Yes. Yeah. What's the other guy from Florida? Trafalgar. Florida? Trafalgar polling. Yeah, Trafalgar. But there's a guy from Citizens Florida, pundit. Yeah. Citizens pundit. Yes, that guy. So I've been listening to a lot of these guys. And they're incredibly bullish on the uh, Republicans. They think everything's going to break their way in a big way. So um, this is in a more or less uh, going to be a test of how well this alternative media, dissident right, uh, Trump right, grifty media act is in actuality. So what extent are they being accurate? And what extent are they feeding me what I want to hear? You know, um, so I I went I was I I went with my heart Luke and I uh, I went with an upside surprise. Okay, that's beautiful. Hey, have so, you ever have you ever tried heavy uh, granola? I cannot stand granola. But have you done the paleo kind? Like what does that mean? Paleo, it's it's paleo, bro. Just like our ancestors used to eat. It's got. Mm-hmm. Seeds, coconut, Australian pecans, and almonds coated with honey and gently roasted to perfection. It's an excellent source of dietary fiber, and it's got yeah. lots of protein. We're on opposite sides of the dietary spectrum. I, I I don't like raw food in general, except salads because I make them fresh. You know, I don't re- I don't rely on some sort of gay to your door service provider for salad is i i do the hard yards and i make my own salad but i don't like uh like granola i like cooked food that's hot when i eat it hey do you know what the gay drifter said to paul pelosi just before he hammered him have you ever tried paleo granola (laughs) so look i had an interesting experience uh, I don't know if this is the right time and place to discuss it, but yes, um, this is the time and this is the place. Okay, so remember a while back you were talking about this guy that had um, like somebody scratched his Ferrari, yeah, and this kind of put him over the edge. He just yes. found it really traumatizing. Remember yes. this? Yes, because it was an extension so, of him. Yeah. So, so put that in the background as I describe this unfold this story so i've told you about this alcoholic friend of mine and i lent him my car one day i know all of the intrinsic you know risk associated with that and you know a day later i come back and i look 
and like there's a dent in my rear bumper, you know? And I'm like, ah, I know he fucking did this, you know? I know for a fact he fucking did this. But I have no proof, you know? It's a really awkward conversation. Like, so, you know, you let him in the car, the car comes back, there's a dent in the bumper, but you weren't there, you didn't see it happen, it could have been somewhere, you know, you just don't have enough proof to make the accusation. So I asked him, you know, did you do this? Of course, he denied it. And like, I'm like, oh, okay. Do I believe or not believe, you know? And I have to go because I want to stick with my sort of evidentiary-based lifestyle and say, well, you know, I don't have any evidence, so I have to believe him. He didn't, bend, he didn't dent my bumper. So this is like over a year ago, right? And so this dented Good bumper wasn't... Must have. I mean, yeah. it could be well, not this. This wasn't a major, like, it wasn't like a major bit of damage, but it was definitely a serious blemish, nonetheless, you know? It was like, every day you'd kind of look at it and just wish it wasn't there, you know? <laughs> then you'd say, oh, just get over it. It's just a car. It's just a bump. You know, it's just a dent. There's no, no reason to uh, obsess on this. But, like, you know, day after day after day, I would look at it and see it and go, oh, that. I know he fucking did this. I know he did this, you know? And he's not taking responsibility and he's a fucking alcoholic and I'm just such an idiot, you know? It was sort of this lingering, simmering, loathing and hatred and rage that would just be building up day after day after day after day for over a year, Luke. Now, I could have, <clears throat> at any point during this, I could have, like, taken the car downtown, you know, found, like, a place and, Give him the guy. It was probably going to be like 100 or 200 bucks to get the dent fixed, you know. And just the thought of contemplating that, you know, it just brought up so much rage that I just postponed it, right? So I let this whole situation fester. In fact, week after week, month after month, low-grade festering, low-grade festering. And I'm thinking, you know, it's on my list, but it's like number 10 on my list. And so I never get to it, you know. Yeah, it sounds healthy. This sounds healthy. Yeah. So, like, every time I look at it, it'd be another bout of rage. Jesus, you know, just. So, finally, I'm like driving down the street one day, and I, this guy starts honking the horn behind me. And then he pulls up aside of me, and he's like waving at me wildly, you know, from a car, you know. And then I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is odd. This has never happened to me. And it's like, He's rolling down. <clears throat> he rolls. So I finally rolled down there. And I go, what, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? You know, he's like, I can fix that bug. I can fix that. Yeah. I can fix that dent for you. Right. So like, can you imagine? Did I paint the scene correctly? Like I'm driving yeah, down yeah. the street in one car. He's what, like what? yelling over me from a truck. White like, guy? White guy? Uh, no, no. He's like Mexican. Okay. And I'm like, and I look back and his car's his truck is kind of ratty, you know, it's kind of like maybe like a 20-year-old pickup, you know, and I'm like, and then I'm like, I'm I'm disinclined to do this. I'm disinclined to talk to me further. And then he pulls ahead of me, and then when he pulls ahead of me, I see on his on his bumper sticker, he's got a bumper sticker that's like Jesus saves Lord, something like that, you know, in Spanish. But it was clearly a, a Christian message being portrayed on the bumper sticker and then that, that finally you know because normally like if like in a mech you know if a mexican in a ratty truck starts waving at you 
normally your first impulse is to sort of like curl up into the fetal position right <laughs> it's, it's not to like engage any further right you don't want to like conduct business that's not your first reflex right <laughs> but then he pulled up and then he had this like christian bumper sticker and i'm like well i guess he can't be that bad right so we get to the next intersection and then their windows are open and we sort of continue the conversation <laughs> and i'm like all right okay meet me over there i'll, I'll turn i'll take the second left meet me there <coughs> and so we do and then he looks at the bumper and he's like and then then i also had a, like another dent on the front of the car and then it's like he, he says all right for 400 bucks i'll give you i'll do both of them you know, I'm like, ah, oh, 400 bucks. It really seems steep, you know? So we start negotiating, you know? And I finally, like, we agree on 200 bucks. And I sort of didn't want to do that. But at the same time, I figured, well, this is sort of my punishment for, like, letting this thing fester for so long. So I'll just endure this extra cost that I know that I'm, I'm taking, right? So we agree on the deal. We agree on a place to meet. He meets me and says, all right, we'll do it. It's taken an hour and so forth. He goes in, so I do my thing, He, go, I take off, come back in an hour, and he's done it. He's fixed the bent, he's fixed both dents, right? And I'm like, and then he shows me what he's done, and he says, you know, this is Bondo, you can wash it off in an hour later, and then you can get a scraper, and so forth. <clears throat> but the dents were gone, and I'm like, I felt like, I felt like I just had like heart surgery when I saw this dent gone, you know, it was like a nice round bumper. And I was like really happy. And then, uh, so I pay him. So we had, then there's this whole thing, like you'd only take cash. You wouldn't take Enmo. So we had to find like an ATM and they got the ATM. I get the cash, give them the cash and so forth. So the whole act of paying him took like another 45 minutes, but it finally got done. And then, um, so he's long gone. I don't know his name. I don't have his number. We're never going to meet again, right? There's no way for me to contact him. This is like a sidewalk level transaction, almost like a drug deal. So I have no connection to him whatsoever. I couldn't find him if I wanted to. And then apparently these bumpers have little sensors on them. So when you back up, you know how much space you have between the car behind you, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know they're there, but they're there on these modern cars. And in the process of fixing the dent, he'd sort of broken one of the sensors. And so now, every time I back up, whether if the car is like 10 feet away or 10 inches away, it just starts blaring. He broke the sensor. So now it's like this high-pitched, shrill reminder. <laughs> you know, It's like this annoying thing that's still there. It's like I got one problem fixed, but it traded into another problem. And like, it's still festering, Luke. It's yeah. the whole problem is still there. <laughs> so that's that's what's been going. I don't know if you've that must be very about, frustrating. <laughs> frustrating indeed, my dude. Very frustrating. Maybe if Sean Penn lent you his Oscar. <laughs> so anyway, um. I don't know why I thought of you about that with that story, but um, uh, this, it's just very like me to like avoid 
unpleasant things, you know, like to postpone them. And by postponing them, I just make them worse. Now, I could have like just bit the bullet, accepted reality, gone to a professional, had it done, had them fix the dent, paid a retail price, and then I would have had a forking bumper with a non-broken sensor. But instead, I let fate, you know, I let, I, I just didn't have the agency to sort of take command and I let fate dictate what happened. So if you, if let's, let's rewind everything. So okay. what would you do differently from the first, when it came to this guy wanting to borrow your vehicle? I probably, given the circumstances and given the situation at the time, I probably still would have lent it. Okay, so Truth what would you do I didn't differently expect. if I you see? Okay, once once you see the the bumper problem, how would you handle it differently, if at all? Uh, I probably would have pressed further. Right, I would have. Um, continue my interrogation a little bit more uh, vigorously to see if I could extract a confession. You know, and made him pay for it. And uh, the next time you encounter a Mexican on the street who wants to fix your vehicle, how are you going to react? I'm going to probably not do it probably not going to do it. I'm going to say, no, my dude, thank you for the offer, but I'm going to pay retail. So why is this alcoholic dude in your life? Well, he's no longer in my life. He's moved to back to East Coast and he's um, taking care of his aging mother. So he's like basically out of my life. It was a transitory experience episode that... Um, you know, I sort of helped him bridge. And so, in a way, it kind of feels like a mitzvah. Um, but, okay. um, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I got it. it's cost of doing business, you know? Yeah. You're like, yeah. you take a loss once in a while, and I'm cool with it. Now, how long have you had a cell phone? I've had a cell phone. <clears throat> okay, 2003, maybe? Okay, I think I got one in 99. But I've had a cell phone for 23 years. My phone has never died on me. But all the time, I have interactions with people who tell me that their, their phone died on them. So I'm always highly suspicious of people who say that their phone died on them. Uh, what's your experience? Do you, do you get people telling you that, they, that, that their phone died on them? Um. I can't say that it's not happened to me because it has many times. Um, especially these, these iPhones, they have this weird thing called like optimized charging. So if you try to, if you leave your phone plugged in, the optimized charging algorithm takes over and doesn't actually charge your phone. This is only with the latest iPhones. I know you have the latest iPhone. Um, so I don't really hold that against people. I think that's a, um, 
I think it's a realistic hazard that one faces in today's world. I think people are lying. You think they're lying? Yeah. That's very it, well. That can very likely be true, too. Lying. <laughs> it's the easiest out in the world. Yeah. Because it's never you happened know. to me. I'm 23. I've had a cell phone for 23 <laughs> years. And you've never had, I cannot, simply cannot believe that. I mean, I've never, I've never needed to invoke, you know, my phone died. It's just. Your phone has never died. You're like. My phone may have, but I've never invoked it as an excuse. It's never come up. It, it's never, it, it's never been important. It's never like prevented me from meeting an obligation of which I'm aware. Maybe I'm fooling myself. It's just that. It's one of those common excuses that I just think, you know, indicates that I'm dealing with someone who's pretty slow. Well, are you dealing with a woman or a man here? Both. Both, both men and women invoke these kind of slack, uh, slack excuses. <clears throat> well, hold on a second. I have to do a little cooking here. Sorry. No. I know you don't do this. I know this is all alien to you. What, what are you cooking? Okay, so I've got uh, no, I've got um, uh, bone-in chicken breast from Whole Foods, uh, sweet yams, and rice. Simple, simple. It's not it's not Gordon Ramsay tier, but it works. Oh, 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 oh! So I had someone close to me uh, yesterday. Yesterday, say, you know, I, I don't get it. Sometimes you seem health conscious. And sometimes you don't. Because, for example, I'm in Australia. I've been walking 10 miles every day since I arrived in, in Australia. So when I'm getting that much exercise, I, I'm not paying you know, great attention to what I eat beyond trying to stay in the zone of about 40% carbs, 30% protein, 30% fat. And so my friend said, sometimes you seem so health conscious, sometimes you don't. And... I, I've come to associate health conscious, you know, by and large with neurotic people. I mean, I think if you eat real food like meat and some vegetables and salad, I mean, you probably don't need to be health conscious. Like I was raised in a health conscious environment that absolutely crippled my life. Like I was raised on this vegetarian diet, 80% carbs, 10% fat, 10% protein. Uh, I don't know. What, what's your experience with people who are quote unquote health conscious? It, it seems to me that most people I know who are quote-unquote health conscious are actually going at things in an unhealthy way, that generally speaking, it's unhealthy to be health conscious because people tend to go off in deranged directions. Uh, I totally agree. I think that, like, I'm thinking of, what's that guy's name, Tim Tim Ferriss? All Mm -hmm. these people that are, like, constantly on about, keto and their macros and their you know their dietary regime that that is a bit like obsessive uh and um probably doesn't really yield them any real benefits and it it is indicative of sort of a uh you know neurotic psychology like their their own health has become their own immortality project and yeah there's a weird energy about that um I found that you really only need one proper, solid, balanced meals with all the food groups, just like they taught you in junior high school, you know? And if you did that, if everybody did that, they'd be fine. But 
because we're in this world where food is also, it's not only nourishment, but it's also a form of recreation that we have all of these uh, terrible health problems because people are eating in ways that they didn't evolve. You know, they weren't, they, they didn't evolve to eat, you know, readily available protein, all of this kind of easy, high fat, high salt, you know, all this food. It's okay to eat that stuff, but you're really probably eating way too much of it. You know, you have to sort of, you have to use as, in my opinion, you have to use the standardness needs to be like, well, what did my ancestors eat? You know, and were they healthy? Yeah. So they probably ate this way. And it was like, the key word is normal, Luke. Normal food is an important, but it doesn't need to be an all-consuming part of your worldview. Yeah, I mean, someone for whom food is an all-consuming part of their worldview, there's something wrong you know, in their life. And I don't mean that as a judgmental thing. I'm saying this is like a flashing light that, uh, bro, you know, there's, there's something wrong. But what about struggling with overeating or undereating? Do you, do you struggle with overeating or undereating? Um, well, I, I don't feel like I eat that much. Uh, I mean, I have one meal a day and then I have little bits of, you know, tiny little supplementals here and there. But at the same time, I still gain weight. So, you know, I don't eat any desserts, you know, or very rarely just as treats. So I don't, it's something I do struggle with because I, I don't feel like I used to be incredibly athletic and I am no longer as athletic. And so uh, I'm more sedentary than I wish I was. And it's taken a toll on my health. So uh, do I overeat? Probably. How tall are you? Uh, How much do you weigh? Oh, Luke, it's so depressing. I can't, I can't, this I can't is confess a, This is a love and inclusive <laughs> No, I can't confess There's this no publicly. judgment here. I, it's, believe me, I can't, I can't endure the mockery. Well, I, I was called chubby cheeks. Once I got back to Australia, people are saying like, hey, you gained weight. So I, I put on 10 pounds since I left Australia and uh, I've got chipmunk cheeks. So we're all in it together. Well, well you know, um, you tell me that you, you've been walking 10 miles a day. Yeah, since I got to Australia. Not, not that, Okay. So a couple of years ago when we were talking about this, I was walking. And like at my peak, I would walk about six miles a day. Right. Mm-hmm. And but then recently, I after that, I stopped swimming because of this cold lung issue. <clears throat> then I started running. I started walking again. So I walked for like a couple of weeks ago, I walked four miles, four miles, not even six. And I got back and I was like bedridden. And this was really like a, a, a this was a, a real confrontation with my own mortality. Because I, I couldn't believe that four miles of exercise has reduced me to such um, fatigue. So I, I envy you. I mean, 10 miles, that's significant exercise. That's, it's probably, <coughs> that's probably three solid hours of walking, if not more. Yeah, I mean, and that's interspersed with a lot of live streaming. So, <laughs> yeah, I really, yeah, live streaming. I'll, I'll walk a mile, then I'll sit down, and I'll pontificate for 30 minutes, <laughs> then walk half a mile, and knock out another five-minute video, and just make my way around Sydney Harbour. Yeah, but if you're walking 10 miles a day, 
I mean, you shouldn't be accumulating any fat. They shouldn't be calling you chubby cheeks. Now, maybe you're just losing weight after your time in L.A. Because were you walking 10 miles a day in L.A.? No, no, I was not walking 10 miles a day in L.A. I'd, I'd bike about five miles a day in L.A. Oh, that's nothing. I mean, five miles um, of biking. Yeah. But yeah. now I'm just exhausted. I'm, I'm not leaving the house today. I'm wiped. Mm. Yeah, that's a good feeling. That's one of the best feelings in life, actually, is being wiped from exercise, you know, yeah. and having the ability to sleep, just have, you know, yeah. I can recover, you know, it's like this incredible uh, vacation. It's, uh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a well-earned dessert, but yes, <clears throat> so <clears throat> I, I, I'm way heavier than I should be, and it really, I, every time I think about it, it's sort of like the dent in the car. It's like every time I think about it, my mind just kind of collapses and just reduces to rage that I've allowed this to happen. And um, so well, that's you, you wear it well. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I have a I have a uh, I do have a, a like a bone structure that's, you know, what do you call it? There's it a word carries for this. a lot of weight. Yeah, you got a bone structure yeah. that can carry this weight. It's not like I'm like just a tub of goo, but if right. I actually look at the scale, it's like, where's all this fucking weight coming from? You know, like it could be this is this just giant head, you know, with all this IQ like pulsating out of my skull. Mm-hmm. It's just that could be like it could be like distilling like all that heat and energy. It's like turning into like lead and uranium. You know, all this power, That's powerful metal. It. Yeah, that's probably I think so. I think so, if you think about it. So, um, but this is the time of year, you know, the the fog is gone, the the skies are clear, so I'm going to put in like a good three months of uh, solid exercise. We'll see where we stand. Then we'll start talking numbers, Luke. Then we can talk numbers. Have you seen a doctor about your cough? Like, you've had a cough as long as I've known you. (laughs) Um, I did about 10 years ago. And they gave me this for this uh, this uh, asthma medication, right? Mm-hmm. Advair. It was called Advair. Now this is the first pharmaceutical I've probably taken since high school. Like, but I did it. You know, I was instructed to do this course of action, so I did it. And like, I got these hives all over my arms. The second day, I'm like, my arms are like burst out in these blisters, you know. And it wasn't clear that there was any. Um, therapeutic uh, uh benefit to any of this so that really disenchanted me with this whole medical establishment and i'm very skeptical of pharmaceuticals and i don't that was that was the extent so no it's a long short of it it's been like 10 years and i'm not inclined to do it again i'm trying i'm inclined to do things naturally because i'm an i'm a natural man you know what i'm saying bro and what about TB? Have you been tested for tuberculosis? No. You think I have TB? No, I don't. I thought say. that was extinct. I thought I thought that was like uh, I thought that was what do you call it? Eradicated. So apparently, Donald Trump has intelligence that Ron DeSantis cheated on his pregnant wife with a porn star, asked her to spank him with a magazine with his face on the cover. Then ask his lawyer to cover it up. I'm starting to think that Trump's an asshole. <laughs> I, I, I really like. 
I, I really like DeSantis. A B. I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, did he really come out and say that? Are you joking? I, I think this is a, I think this is a joke. But uh, oh, but oh, uh, but here's what Trump says: that if he if he runs for president, I will tell you things about him that won't be very flattering. Uh, he's got to get off the stage. This guy's what he 80, 80 years old. Yeah. I, I really think this whole boomer generation needs to just simultaneously, collectively bow out. <laughs> say, okay, we're done. It's time for you Xers. You know, we need our we need our moment in the sun, Luke. We're Xers. We should be X proud. So Herschel Walker has taken the lead with fifty five percent of the vote counted. He's taken the lead for the first time. So by how much? It's it's slender, slender, slender. Well, isn't that the idea is that the uh, Democrats would be favored in the early mail voting and then the Republicans would take over? <clears throat> Something like that. But uh, yeah, yeah I need you... Herschel. I need I need Herschel for my big score, but I need Nevada and I need um, to really get paid. I need New Hampshire. That's a real that's a kind of a stretch. Okay, Nate Silvers no. says that uh, this should be a fairly normal election. It's not going to be. It's not going to be an extreme, either extreme Republican or extreme Democrat. Uh, well, it's. I want to. You know what I do? I want to do is I want to go back and look at these predictions, and I want to say. I want to do a strict accounting about who was accurate, who wasn't, because. This Nate Silver, he sort of, the way he does predictions, he leaves himself so much wiggle room that you can always, he can always claim to have been right, you know? So you're going like, to hold the pollsters accountable. Yeah, bro. <clears throat> but Ann Coulter had a point, though. Republic, you know, elections have always over. They've always over-projected uh, Democratic strength, and then that always narrows uh, towards the day of the election, you know, just so that they can cover, they, they start, you know, <clears throat> you can create a poll to predict anything, you know, whatever methodology you use determines results. And so as you get closer to the election, these pollsters have to start using different methodologies so that it's, they're at least within the ballpark, right? Otherwise, they lose credibility. Yeah. Okay, yeah. bro. Any any final right. words? All right, I'm gonna eat some dinner, but uh, good chat. Blessings. Well, back in. All right, blessings. Okay, bro. Right. Take care. All right, bye. Right. Let's uh, bye. check in. With, uh... So let's watch a little bit of this. Well, thank you so much. You know, over these past four years, we've seen major. I'm sorry. I just find politicians boring. We're not gonna. I listen to a politician. Has tightened up races in these last few weeks uh, where they thought they weren't going to be as competitive. Let me tell you what I've heard from Democrats was exactly that issue, Savannah. When they were talking about places where they were nervous, feeling like Democrats were really put on defense by Republicans on the issue of crime kind of late in the game. And in key places like, for example, Pennsylvania, look at Wisconsin, where that's been another key issue, too. So, yeah, crime right there sitting at number three, by the way, tied for gun policy on issues that are important to voters. You know, inflation and crime, what they have in common, they're really 
really tangible to people. Sometimes, like, you know, three of us live in Washington. You're, people sit there in the Beltway and they talk about things that are sort of esoteric. Everybody puts together a grocery budget, right? Everybody walks out of their home to go to their car or to school or whatever. You feel these issues in a really tangible way. You look at where Democrats are right now, more voters say President Biden's policies are hurting this country than helping, right? These are the headwinds that Democrats are facing. Okay, so what I'm seeing is a lot of tension in their shoulders and neck and the head having some tendency to tip back to compress her spine. So a lot of pulling down and in on herself. That's been a big issue in that race in a state that Donald Trump won by double digits. That is a reflection of what we're seeing in other key states around the country, too. Well, governor's mansions could be switching hands in more than 30 states tonight, but one place where that won't happen is in New Hampshire, where incumbent Republican uh, Governor Chris Sununu has been reelected, and he joins us now live. Governor, congratulations. Yeah, no, we don't want to hear... We don't want to hear from politicians. Oh, Ron DeSantis is talking. So let's learn about the Tower of Babel. I think that there is... You know, imperialism obviously has many forms, and the most successful imperialists now um, are Jews. And but their their form of imperialism, and this is very imitable, is a, a cultural and also an economic form of imperialism um, <clears throat> that's been very successful. And okay, thanks, Mark Brahman. I wonder what uh, Richard Spencer. All oh, right, it's time for the midterms. It is six p.m. where I am, which means that it is eight p.m. on the East Coast. So. We have a few polls closing. Uh, I don't see much of anything that's definitive yet. Uh, I was just looking at the New York Times tracker, and they, they seem to have called some races that are not really contested. So we don't know much. And so I think we're still kind of in prediction mode. But I'm not going to actually have a long monologue tonight. Uh, instead, I'll just let people ask questions or even throw in some info, if you would like. Uh, that would actually be appreciated. I would also say this, and um, allow me just to spruik a little bit. So I will only be talking for one hour tonight on the Twitter space. But uh, if I will probably be talking for three to four you know, 70 hours uh, with my Substack group. So if you go over to Radix Journal, R-A-D-I-X Journal, .substack.com, you can subscribe and then go down and look for our members' calls. And um, we, those are good. I think um, 538 or what have you. And uh, the um, red era that is upon us and that has lasted since the mid-90s and is still going. The blue era was characterized by democratic hegemony and wide margins, particularly in the House, but also the Senate. And lasting paradigmatic legislation, Civil Rights Act, Immigration Reform Act, the New Deal, Square deal, all of it. Um, even Obamacare is kind of like the last gasp of the red era. And that occurred when Democrats were in control of both houses. Um, the red era is defined by Republicans generally doing well uh, and also no legislative achievements. I, I mean, I'm not being sarcastic when I say that I, I genuinely cannot name something that the GOP has done. And it's actually, you know, the GOP has done quite well in uh, House elections and Senate elections since 1994. So the birth stars, you know, your Paul Ryan, your Newt Gingrich, other nerdy libertarians. And uh, I think the red era is going to have kind of like an Indian summer or something. Um, I do think the GOP is going to win. Uh, and we will see typical red era stuff coming out of Congress in the next two years, like uh, an abortion ban or uh, an impeachment of Joe Biden or stuff like that. Uh, basically nonsense. And, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if you can. Uh, but I don't think that can last. I think the general there's a kind of new coalition that will be blue that's brewing that is going to include uh, quite a bit of upper and middle class white people in the suburbs and beyond. And if Trump gets on the ballot in 2024, which I think he will, that coalition will be fully operational. Uh, anyway, I will post. How do I post a tweet in here? Do you guys know? Oh, there we go. Uh, well, right, anyway. So who's that ravishing woman in this Ron DeSantis video? Okay, she's got really good technique. Notice how she's got a nice long neck. She's got width across her shoulders. She's not, that must be his wife. Right? She, she's not tilting. Is she tilting? No, she's not tilting to, to either side. So she's got a lot, yeah, a lot of width across her chest. She's got a nice long back. 
Her head is poised on top of her spine. Look, look at that beautiful long neck. I mean, wow, and, and the, the generous, oh, look at that, that, that powerful embrace. Yeah, she's, she's looking good. Uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, he's, he's thick set, but he's got reasonably wide shoulders. It doesn't have a lot of neck, but he's, so the boxer, like when you're in a fight, right, you tend to pull your head down and you tend to collapse down and in on yourself to present a smaller target to an opponent. So Ron DeSantis has a bit of that fighter instinct in him where he's making himself tighter and smaller, but not bad. Okay, so width across the shoulders, width across the, the back, his head's tipping forward a little bit, now tipping back. So he could really benefit from a little more length in his neck. He's, he's losing his neck. So the more he struggles, the more he goes through difficult times, the more tension he's going to have in his head, neck, back. And so that leads to ever-increasing layers of compression. But uh, still a fairly young man, so these, these layers of compression haven't become disabling. Let's uh, check in with uh, Richard here. Right. Uh, you can go to my account and read if you like, but anyone want to jump in? Um, Samuel, you're up first. What do we know? Or what do you know? Or tell me something I don't know. Samuel, you have to unmute yourself. Okay, Samuel, you're not going to speak. Uh, anyone else want to jump in? Okay, um, I will mention this. I did see something very interesting on Twitter uh, just as I was about to get on, and that is the Miami-Dade County early vote. And you know, just like everything in our society, it is polarized. So Donald Trump says the early voting is fake, or you can't trust it, don't vote early, vote on the day of. Um, that's I guess I took his advice. I just kind of blank voting on the day of. <laughs> I mean, it's not, I live in a small town, so it you know, takes 15 or 20 minutes to do it. But um, anyway, Miami-Dade County, Miami County, the early vote was really strongly Republican. Uh, so that is pretty remarkable in itself. Uh, and it also does, you know, just it's one bit of information, but it does suggest a red wave. Okay, Samuel, do you want to try again or would someone else like to speak? No, no, no. Thank you. Sure. He doesn't want to speak. All right, guys. No, no, no. no. What do you want to say, man? Jump in. No, no, nothing. Thank you. All right. Um, don't ask to be a speaker then. All right. Anyone else want to jump in? Are we just kind of too early on this deal? Come on, guys. I'm right. trying to run a well, show here. Guys, you need to ask me questions. What do you think of the issue of the economy and inflation being a, a center issue? Seems like in this debate and why the Republicans will probably win. It, it's sort of funny to me because it seems like they're going to win on that issue, even though they have no plans to make anything better. You know, they, right. <laughs> they, um, they have no economic legislation or things like that. How is it that, like, they're able to people focus in on this one thing? Is this going to trump all the other issues? Um, because it's deeply – there's this, this, like, psychological character to elections in general, and I think midterms in particular, actually, where the midterm just becomes a referendum on who is perceived to be in power. I mean, it is a bit ridiculous to think that Joe Biden sets gas prices. Like, it, it was, I mean, he kind of does in the sense that he can release some strategic reserves, but, you know, he can't do that. And uh, this idea of blaming him for that is kind of like id-brained or, you know, animalistic or something. And again, as I, as I mentioned many times, there's just this weird psychological effect where the party that is in power loses in the midterm, particularly in the first uh, term midterm. And I, I don't, I mean, the other side, is, I mean, or the side that lost is greater mobilized. There's general dissatisfaction or just like some quest for balance or something. I so it's interesting just looking at uh, Ron DeSantis without the sound on. So, yeah, he seems strong as a bull. He seems very much a fighter. He seems to have tremendous vitality. And seems to have a bright future. And his wife is very poised, very graceful, very gracious. And uh, Ron DeSantis, like, has got the got the build of a of a fullback. Seems to exude energy. 
So a lot of, lot of strengths. So Alexander Technique isn't everything, you know, grace and ease isn't everything. But sometimes Alexander teaches that they so don't want to you know, distort their musculature that you know, they're afraid to pick up a pencil. I'm exaggerating, obviously. Republicans since Jeb Bush in 2002. Now, we've got some calls to make. In the first of the two Oklahoma, Oklahoma Senate races this year, Fox News can project that GOP Senator James Lankford will win a second full term in office. And in the special election, we project that Republican Mark Wayne Mullen will defeat Democrat Kendra Horn. Moving to Connecticut, where Democratic Senator, the incumbent Richard Blumenthal, wins the third term by defeating Republican businesswoman Leora Levy. Over to Texas and the governor's race, where we can now project that Governor Greg Abbott will remain in the governor's mansion for a third term. He defeats high-profile Democratic candidate Beto O'Rourke. A lot will be Leave said. It there for one uh, yeah, second. a lot will be said about this uh, <laughs> yes. this race because this is uh, multiple efforts on the part of Beto O'Rourke. Multiple efforts and multiple tens of millions of millions of dollars and a lot of. Focus on Beto O'Rourke as a candidate, Britt. O'Rourke is becoming the Charlie Crist of Texas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't know who you're talking about. I, the Democratic Robert Francis. candidate was Robert, Robert Francis O'Rourke, and uh, not not that other phony name. Yeah, I mean, he's gone from the cover of Vanity Fair magazine and this shining hope of the Democrat Party. Jessica, you know, your thoughts on mm. what, what has happened to, to Beto O'Rourke? Is he does this seal the deal? Is he is he done now in politics or not? Never say never with these things, but I think if the evening goes as I expected to for Stacey Abrams as well, um, that there's going to be a lot of soul searching about, you know, where you're dumping your money when you go on Act Blue, right? There are a lot of people whose races are a lot closer than you would expect, like Sherry Beasley in North Carolina. Um, I'm not saying that she's going to end up pulling that off, but when you think about where your dollars could go, um, that maybe mm-hmm. that extra money going to Maggie Hassan, it looks better than expected there in New Hampshire, um, defending Nevada, things like that, giving more money in a Pennsylvania, maybe to uh, Tim Ryan, who had to go it alone without Chuck Schumer's support yeah. um, at the end there. Um, you know, these are celebrity candidates. I think that there have been incredible messaging moments that kind of have rallied the Democratic base and made you really focus on the issues that matter to us as a party, but they are seemingly just not great candidates to win statewide office, and I hope people will take stock of that. Okay, we can also project that Democratic Governor uh, Dan McKee will win the first full term in office, defeating another GOP businesswoman, Ashley Klaus. And over to Connecticut, where Democrat incumbent Ned Lamont will defeat GOP candidate Bob Stepanowski. And finally, in the great state of New Hampshire, we can project that Republican Governor Chris Sununu will win a fourth term. And Dana, he's been on the show with you a number of times, with you and Bill. Uh, He also possibly has other ambitions. Well, he might. So there was a heavy attempt to recruit him to run for the Senate in new hampshire and he didn't want to do that and and i can understand you know when you're he had been governor you are the executive of your state you're the ceo of your state he loves new hampshire and he thought why would i want to go to washington and be one of a hundred and not get anything done he wanted to sing his teeth into things i don't know if he actually has ambition to run for president um but of course that that decision doesn't need to be made for a little while unless we're talking sooner than Later with Britain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brit, but, you know, you mentioned Sununu earlier and this and how it plays with that Senate race and whether it affects that. It, does, that well, it should. I mean, when you get these Republican governors winning by decisive margins, mm-hmm. you know, the hope if you're a Republican is that they will they will pull across the finish line some of these embattled candidates for the Senate who are in really tight races. 
Uh, you see that in Georgia, you see that in Florida, or not so much in Florida, but you certainly see it in New Hampshire, and you see it, and you see it elsewhere. Mike DeWine, for example, in Ohio, how much can he, can he help J.D. Vance to get across the finish line in, a, in what appears to be a pretty tight race out there? And we'll see, we'll see what happens in Arizona as well with Carrie Lake Absolutely. and uh, Blake Masters. Okay, let's head over to Bill Hemmer. And hey guys, this is your favorite, Virginia. Uh, We're look yes. at Virginia. Yeah, let me Get just pop up here a moment here. We're talking about North Carolina a moment ago. I was just checking Ted Budd is taking the lead here. Uh, but let's pop up here to the house races in Virginia. Uh, thanks for being patient. Okay, here we go. Um, Virginia 2, Jen Kiggins, you got about 60% of the vote. In. She's got a lead here of 19,000 raw votes, about 11% on the board. So she continues to... I mean, we saw this, what, about an hour and a half ago she took the lead. She's maintained that lead uh, in Virginia, too. They like that run there. Uh, Virginia 7, closer to Washington, D.C. So this is Spanberger's race with Yesley Vega. What, what I've seen, guys, is the, the, this race is getting closer throughout the night. Um, we still got some vote out there right now, but Vega continues to hang on to a lead with the difference of about 6,300 there in Virginia. Can I show you a couple things in the Senate race here that I'm saying? Um, let's pop down here to Georgia and watch what's happening with Warnock and Walker. Warnock, about 30 minutes ago, had gone below 50%. He popped up again. Remember, 50% in Georgia is where you need to be to avoid the runoff come uh, four weeks from now. And uh, Kemp in the governor's race, he has been pretty consistent from, from what I'm seeing well above 50% now for or really, I guess, ever since the polls closed two hours ago. So Kemp is running at 516 Walker's running at 47.1. So, again, it's about that four-point spread that you see in a, uh, between, uh, between Walker and between Kemp. Let me get out here. Hey, one thing, Bill. Uh, yes, go ahead. There's a libertarian in that race, in the yep. Senate race, that's getting three times the vote mm. of the libertarian in the governor's race mm. in Georgia. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if that factors yep. in, but yep. th there is a difference there. Yeah, and it, it could take some votes away, and we're going to see – I'm can't reflect that on the board behind yeah, here, yeah, here but, uh, but listen, a point could be significant, right? Can, can I show you what's happening in Ohio before I kick it back over there real quick? Uh, here is Ohio. Here is Ryan and Vance. Guys, we got a race here. Uh, this is really interesting. I mean, it, it, it's a different race than what we saw about 15 minutes ago. Uh, vote total of 23,000. Here's what I would think about. I would think about Cuyahoga County. Three to one Democrats in that county. Uh, Ryan's got more votes out there in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I, I would think about Franklin County, Capital City, Columbus. Got a lot of votes out there, guys. You know, just about 30% in. Ryan's going to pick up a few more there. We'll see how that breaks down. And then down here in Hamilton County in Cincinnati is the east side of that county. There's a lot of votes out there, too, uh, for Ryan in all likelihood because you're only checking in at 30%. But uh, come back in a moment here, yeah. and I shall show you as it rolls okay. on. Okay, you bet. Thank you, Bill. And Virginia 10 is is tight, 51 to 48. Jennifer Wexton over Hung Kao. Um, Biden won that by 18%. In 2020. So that's the margin in that race is something that we're watching closely to see what it indicates for the rest of these races across the country as well. Uh, very big difference in that margin. So we're going to take a quick break and we have Laura joining us when we. Okay, it does not look like a red tsunami, right? Maybe a red wave, the title of my video. But we're not seeing a red tsunami here. JD Vance is struggling. Uh, Republicans are flipping some seats in the in the in the House. 
but uh, does not look like a, a red tsunami right now. So JD Vance has now captured the lead in Ohio with 45% of the vote coming in. And now we've got uh, New York Times Needle is back. So let's have a look at the New York Times Needle with regard to the House, with regard to the Senate. And it's not back. Okay. So. Right, Blue Mirage is why Fetterman is leading Dr. Oz by 74%. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia released their returns. They're way more Democrat than the counties. So it doesn't like, look like a red tsunami. I think that is the most important upshot. Now, Raphael Warnock has taken the lead in Georgia with 58% reporting. He's now got a 4.4 percentage point lead over Herschel Walker. So it looks like a decent night so far for polls. Good night for polling averages. Looks like a lot of the polls are going to do better than they did in 2016 and 2020. The Warnock up four percentage points in Georgia. Yeah, let's get some Spencer. You don't know what it is, but it just is such a strong effect. It is like, you know, those weird statistics where, like, if the Phillies wear their alternative uniform while they're on the road, they always lose or something. It's just some weird thing that's inconsistent, but just doesn't seem very rational. And yeah, I mean, I don't, the, the Republicans don't have a plan for inflation other than just to talk about it and blame it on Biden. And, uh, but inflation is bad and that seems to dominate things. Uh, I, I was a little bit surprised because as you might know, like, let's say two months ago or, or maybe even sooner, I was kind of itching to say that this was going to be a blue wave just on the basis of Roe v. Wade. Because I, I really, and remember, you know, in Kansas on a, on a pro-choice uh, referendum, it won with like 60% of the vote or maybe even higher than that. And so you could say that there was just... Okay, so what about the predicted betting market? So four hours ago, it was at 85% that Republicans take control of the U.S. Senate. Now it's down to 65%. So the predicted price chart for Senate control by the hour steadily slipping away from Republicans. Are still giving them 65% chance, according to the the betting market. Florida has gone red, but what's happened in, in Florida is not showing universally in surrounding states. CNBC apparently fired Shepard Smith. Okay, we've got a lot more polls coming up, a lot more polls closing. Senate, of course, where the Democrat incumbent Mark Kelly, the former astronaut, is taking on Republican Blake Masters, also too early to call at this hour. Let's bring in NBC's Vaughn Hilliard, rather, who is in Scottsdale with the GOP candidates. Vaughn, let's start with the governor's race. Carrie Lake has pushed the stolen election lie, while, while Hobbs has pushed back hard on those lies. You're an Arizona native. What are the voters telling you tonight? Right, the Democratic Katie Hobbs, in fact, is Arizona Secretary of State who oversaw 
the 2020 election in which Donald Trump narrowly lost to Joe Biden. Uh, when you're looking here at this race, this is the question at play. It's a longtime conservative state, but folks in the state, especially independents and conservatives reticent to Donald Trump and his allies, showed that they were willing to vote for Democrats. In 2018, Kirsten Cinema. In 2020, Democrat Mark Kelly and Joe Biden. The question is, are they willing to do it again in 2022? And when you're looking at this governor's race, as well as the Senate race here, the big question is, where do these independents lie? This is ground zero for election denialism. Up and down the slate of GOP candidates, you're looking at candidates who have called for the decertification of the 2020 election. Now the question is, is that a high enough... Okay, very strong night for Republicans in Florida. So Ron DeSantis is doing really well. For the Democrats was, this could be the end of democracy. Is that ringing home to, to people across the globe? Are they concerned that America could actually stop being a democracy? I mean, what is happening in Tennessee is, is clearly a concern. But just like, just like in, in the United States, there's partisanship. In almost oh, this is the country former is... Trinidadian ambassador to the United States. Yeah, I really want to know what he has to say. Uh, of a, an approach in which she pushed back against some of the Democratic agenda items. But when you're looking at Mark Kelly, okay, Houston, Mark he is somebody they other problems in Houston, they did extend voting. So it was another set of facts. But it just brings to mind, again, this confusion about how votes are cast, when they're counted, when they're allowed to be postmarked. And I'm not saying I'm not favor of federalizing elections, but every two years, we're going to have this problem. But we didn't have this problem really up until, what, 2016 is right. when we really started but having big problems. The Democrats who look at that and say, this is the bill, they, they go farther for another yeah. other reasons. But is there a bill in between that says, here's a national standard that each state has to meet? Or something? Yeah, well, we'll see how that goes. But I think Florida, I said this when I was with you guys on election night in 2020, Florida is still the model for the country, I think. The, uh, the coalition of new voters, younger voters, Latino voters. We'll see where uh, you know, African-American voters turn out in Miami-Dade when it's really broken down. But this was a tour de force performance by Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio. And to me, that is the great light for the Republican Party. And they know how to count votes. And they know how to tabulate absentee votes and mail-in ballots. So it can work. And it worked in 2020. And it seems to be working now for the Republicans. And the state has some certainty, which I think is so important for you know, people's belief and trust in the system. It's exactly right. And, and what happened in Florida was that they went through the hanging chat experience and yeah. they said, never again. Right. We're going to fix this. So they open the ballots as they come in and then they start processing those ballots. And if you live in Florida, you can track you can trace your ballot. Right. On a website, you can, here's where yours is. We have it. It's been counted. Mm -hmm. You know, so why haven't they learned that lesson in places like Pennsylvania? I heard Carrie Lake today said, if I'm elected, we're going to clean this thing up. Okay, the New York Times needle is back. It says 75% chance that Republicans win control of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate is a toss-up. Right, that, that's what's coming out from the New York Times. So New York Times poster Nate Cohn says that Democrats are running ahead of our expectations outside of Florida, but they're running way behind in Florida. So J.D. Vance has taken the lead in Ohio. 
Doug Mastriana may wind up being one of the worst nominees ever in a major race in a swing state, writes Chris Saliza from CNN. Let's get more from uh, Laura Ingram. If he comes within five points of taking it from Hochul, that is really significant. But look, in the end of this cycle, whenever we cast the last vote, it could be, you know, a mixed bag for some of the, you know, some of the MAGA candidates. But look, this is the process. So you have to, you have to have, you know, run great campaigns. And it's a complex electorate with a lot of issues that are bubbling out there. But I'm telling you, Carrie Lake was discounted. I mean, I, I, mean, I was kind of for the other candidate. And she really turned out to run a great race in the end. And yep. it, we should point out, I mean, they could end up with three seats uh, pick up yeah. in the Senate. I mean, it's early. And we don't know how these races are going to turn out in the end. And again, Don Bolduck in New Hampshire, keep an eye on that. I mean, we don't know what will happen. Hassan is favored to win, but, you know, we don't we don't know at this point. He could actually pull it out. And as you point out, you know, and we've been going through all of these voting rules for all of these states. There's so many states where they will not, where they don't say, we're going to count the mail-in first. Oh, then right. we're going to count the day of. Uh, then we're going to go to our provisional ballots. This is the order that we do it in. So when you start getting this vote in, and I'm, I'm looking over your shoulder, Laura, and I'm seeing that things seem to be changing around in Ohio right now. Um, it, it just, that's the kind of thing that people don't, it, it fosters distrust in the system. And I think also to the point that you, know, you were talking about like philosophy earlier, look, depending on what O'Day does in Colorado, if he loses by a bigger margin than some of the other more populist conservative candidates, that's something to take into account. I mean, if, if Mike Lee wins by a massive margin in Utah, that's a loss for Mitt Romney. So there, there's, a, there's a divide in the party. The populists, I think, have the edge right now. But again, there's, it's a long night ahead. It is. And it's great to have you here. Great to see uh, you. Joining us is now is Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Your initial impressions of, of tonight. Well, I think it's going to be a long night. I think your analysis has been spot on. But I do think looking. Okay. And I think we need to hear from Ronna McDaniel. I think we need to hear from the former Trinidadian ambassador. ...support here in the state, of course, the husband of Gabby Giffords. And ...at wow. issue, the balance of power in the Senate and in the House. And House. We get, we've got some uh, calls, or at least some uh, characterizations of... Uh... Yeah, let's go to Arizona. A lot of folks are watching this Senate race between Mark Kelly and Blake Masters. It is too early to call there. And the same story in Wisconsin. Ron Johnson looking for another term in the United States Senate up against Mandela Barnes. Too early to call there. Both parties waiting to see which way this one will go. The Pennsylvania Senate race. That is still too early to call. Too early to call. Let's get to the Georgia Senate. The other, one of the other big ones tonight that we're watching for potential switch in control of the Senate. The Georgia Senate, well, too early right now. At some point, we've got to say too close. <laughs> we're at okay. 70%. Well, we it's early too close. At this point, at 70%, it's hard to say too early at this point. We're getting into too close. Georgia Senate is too close to call. Okay, I, you're the boss. I'm not, I'm not. There's <laughs> others that make that decision, but we're probably off of the too early. All right, let's get to Peter Alexander. He's at Dr. Oz campaign headquarters in Pennsylvania. How are they feeling tonight? Well, right now, they're still waiting for the numbers to come in. Right now, they anticipate that this is going to be several days before they may know who the real winner here is. This would be a Democratic pickup if John Fetterman, John Fetterman can win the first time candidate. Dr. Mehmet Oz is hoping to put his name on the board tonight as well. The bottom line is that they feel fairly good about the trajectory of this race, the momentum the Oz campaign has had in recent days. The bottom line for Dr. Oz has been a focus on being a moderate. It's why he's invested so much time in what they call the collar counties, those four key counties just outside of Philadelphia, like where we are tonight in Bucks County. They are affluent and well-educated. And they're really what separates Pennsylvania's Philadelphia 
metro area that is so heavily Democratic from the more rural conservative areas further west throughout this state. What was notable, though, is that just this past weekend, Dr. Oz, despite his efforts to cast himself as a moderate, hosted a rally alongside the former president, Donald Trump. And I think if he struggles tonight, there will be a lot of scrutiny about that decision here. But keep a real close eye on those Philadelphia suburbs over the course of this night. 283,000 votes. That's what separated Joe Biden from Donald Trump in those counties back in 2020, according to a top advisor to the Oz campaign. Their goal tonight is to be about 40 percent. They know they need to get about 40 percent of the vote there. So keep a close eye on the numbers that come out of those counties. The bottom line is they think they're going to be out for a while. Philadelphia, as we've noted, reinstated today, Savannah and Lester, a procedure that helps them prevent against any double votes. That means, in the words of the acting secretary of state, they may be at this for the next few days. Back to you. Yeah, but the uh, pace of those results will certainly cause some anxiety. One thing in the exits is right now, Dr. Oz is getting fewer of those white male non-college educated voters or the white non-college educated voters than Donald Trump got. Okay. Interesting metric to watch there. Let's go to Wisconsin. Uh, governor's race is tight there. We've got Shaquille Brewster on duty in Milwaukee. He's at the headquarters for the Republican in the race. Tim Michaels. Hi, Shaq. Hi there. Good evening. And, you know, polls just closed about a half hour ago, so there's still a lot of vote to come in. But I've been talking with both campaigns, both party chairs, and it's almost as if they're reading from the same script. They say that they are feeling cautiously optimistic. Republicans saying that they see high turnout in their high population areas. Democrats saying they see high turnout in long lines in areas like Dane County and Milwaukee County. And they both say that it was the issues that drove their voters to the polls. And look, in Wisconsin, all of that can be true at once. This is a 50-50 state. If you look at the turnout in the past couple of statewide elections, 2020, 2016, 2018, you saw the electoral margins all under 25,000 votes. Both sides understand that this is going to come out to that election day turnout and who's able to edge out the other at the end of the day. And as we continue to watch these polls results come in, I want to give our viewers a warning in terms of what we see out of Milwaukee. I talked to the, uh, elect, the director of the elections commission there, and one thing that Milwaukee does is they collect all the absentee ballots at once, and then they submit them to the county, and that's when we get that result. So just like we saw in 2020, it is likely that in the highest population part of the state, we will not know a significant amount of that vote until later in the evening. The director says they expect that to come around midnight Eastern time. So a lot of vote to come, but you have both sides saying that a lot of people have been turning out, and they're both cautiously optimistic. All right, Chuck, thank you so much. We have an important Senate race to call at this hour in Colorado. NBC News is projecting that Michael Bennett, the incumbent, will return to office. This is a very interesting result, perhaps an indication, Hallie, again, of the size of the red wave. This is one of those seats that, of course, Republicans were hoping to pick up the Republican candidate there, Joe O'Day, running as a moderate. Uh, and and that, that race had tightened up. I just talked to him a couple days ago, Joe O'Day, the Republican candidate in this race. And you know his biggest messaging was, Savannah? It was economy, economy, economy. I mean, he kept pivoting every question to hit on that. Clearly, what he thought was going to be a successful strategy for him. But this is, a, this is an interesting call, one of the key races that Democrats were watching. So what, 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 yeah, like, it, I think people thought there was going to be a wipeout. This would be one of the canaries in the coal races. But, but, uh, I talked some Republicans who said, you know, Joe O'Day went too far in attacking Trump. And he actually he got Trump's attention. Trump attacked O'Day. Went after him, right. Trump went after him, right. and that hurt some so Republican support. The Trump vote. The Trump vote. And he didn't regret it at all, right? He said he kept he's his own man. That was his message. That was his key campaign message that he was his own man here. And as Chuck points out, clearly that was a turnoff for some of the Republicans in that state. So which maybe leads us to a conversation about election deniers on the ballot. So, so. that was seated from former President Trump in the 2020 race. This is a really important point that I think um, I'm glad we're talking about because if you look at the races across the country, there are hundreds of people who are election deniers or election skeptics, including 17 candidates who are running for the Senate on the Republican side who have questioned the legitimate result of the 2020 election. Will not say affirmatively that President Joe Biden won that office legitimately. In, in the governor's races, you've got 17 governors on the Republican side who are running who are election deniers or skeptics. Let's talk about the Secretary of State races. I know that's not something we would typically be sitting here at a desk talking about in a midterm cycle. So so important because these are the positions that do the administration of elections wherever you live in your state, in most states, right, along with the attorneys general, um, 10 of those secretary of state positions are election deniers or election skeptics who are running. And, and here's why this matters. And let me give you one example here. There are three states where all three statewide races, governor, secretary of state, and attorney general, the Republican candidates are... Oh, my God, they're election deniers. What are we going to do about that? All right. Right now, congressional correspondent Kilmeade Ducart has the latest uh, talking about the congressional races and what that might mean for the balance of power. Kilmeade, what do you got for us? John and Greta, good to be with you. I was just standing next to the RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, who said she's feeling good about tonight, but it's going to require some patience going forward with some of the voter snags and delays. But right now, going into tonight, Republicans have had the momentum. The stage behind me is set for victory. The mission statement clearly labeled their take back the House. And when you look at some of these key House races that are in play, there's a chance for a real governing majority, much more than House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has had over the last couple of years. And they have quite literally been begging on a big victory. The Congressional Leadership Fund, a super PAC linked to Kevin McCarthy, they have poured millions of dollars in 
into uh, states that President Biden won by double digits. But there's been one race in particular that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he was keeping an eye on. That was Virginia's 10th congressional district between Democratic the Democrat incumbent Jennifer Wexton and the Republican newcomer Hung Kao. Uh, we understand that that race was just analyzed by our analyst Mark Halperin. Uh, and that was certainly, he had hoped that that would be a key indicator of a big wave. We're expecting House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to speak a little bit later tonight. Uh, depending on how the race goes this evening, that'll depend on what kind of a speech that we hear from the potential next speaker of the House. Kimberly Ducart, thank you. We'll check in with you again later in the evening. Matt Schlapp has joined us on the panel, along with senior political analyst Rick Santorum. You know, we're waiting, Matt, for Arizona to find out what's going on that, that governor's race and also the Senate race, as well as Pennsylvania and Ohio and a lot of other states. But I don't think you can ignore that there's going to be blood on the floor in Florida between President Trump and Governor DeSantis with that blistering win that DeSantis had tonight. Yeah, but I have to say I agree with Rick Santorum. You know, Marco Rubio's win as well. What it really shows is that this state of Florida, the ultimate bellwether, the state that we used to watch till 3 a.m., just went full scale. All right, we picked up four House seats. Florida has changed. Is it because of the, the new migration that the you COVID talked about? People, people coming in, or are people just turned off to the Biden policies? And I think that's really the question going on tonight. You bring up Arizona, I'll just say quickly, the one thing we've been noticing as we're talking is, is that all of the Democratic Party is a vote early party, get the souls to the polls and all those programs, and the Republican Party is a election day party. And so what you're going to see in all these races is a lot of heart attacks almost that happened out there in the country. Calm down. The next hour is going to determine everything as these rural communities come in with same-day voting. And Arizona, the fact that today... You know, you had so many problems with people being able to vote on Election Day. It's a big problem out there for Blake Masters. Going back to what you were saying about the Marco Rubio race, too, and that this is so important. Val Demings outraised Marco Rubio yeah. in that race. Everybody's She's also, outraised every Republican. Yeah. That, and every that's true. Not, She's not also... Not. This show shows us how much damage was done by the defund the police movement. This is the former police yeah. chief of Orlando who ran in that race, and she could not run far enough away from you know, that movement. This is really someone who felt that personally. This is vindication for those of us who said, look... Fight racism, don't fight America. Right. And what the Democratic Party did is they started fighting cops and they started fighting America and saying America's a stinky place. And they lost the American people on that argument. You see all these exit polls that are coming in that other networks are parading about. No woke is in there. I'm telling you, woke is the central focus of swing voters who said the Democratic Party has gone too far. And we heard uh, how much anti-woke stuff in Ron DeSantis' acceptance no, speech. No, the, 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 transing the kids and, and keeping them out of school and wearing masks and, and the jab for two-year-olds. People have just said enough of this intrusive government. And, and DeSantis was really the oasis at the very beginning of this thing, saying we're following the actual science and we're not going to do this. And Kemp was good, too. And Kemp yeah. was very good. If you look at the Republican governors, we were talking about this yeah. earlier, John, this Republican governors are doing, incumbent governors who stood up during COVID are crushing it tonight. The memories are still fresh, and it's not a partisan issue for folks. If your life was deeply affected by COVID policies that did not work out for you, and we saw this in urban areas and some of the most vulnerable people in this country were hurt the most by these policies. Black and brown people. People were disproportionately affected by this. I sound like a Democrat when I say that, but it's true in the case of COVID because a lot of lower income uh, workers were, were were disadvantaged because a lot of their industries were shut down That's and right. they had no way of, of and providing they, And income. a lot of them lived in close quarters, yep. mm -hmm. and That's a lot right. of them had to use mass transit so that they were, you know, close couldn't, to each other. I mean, they, there, yeah. they, and so, you know, naturally I, I, they were going to... Look, guys, speaking, speaking of Kemp, we just mentioned this. I think we're actually going to project him now as the winner uh, in Georgia. This was not really a surprise. Uh, late in the race, uh, he just really outstripped the uh, Stacey Abrams there, and we, we're and, now going to project Brian Kemp as she, the winner of the governor's race in Georgia. She, and she, and also uh, uh, Doug Collins, is, we're projecting Doug Collins is, or no, 
He's going to be our guest on this, rather. We are projecting, we are projecting a guest appearance by Doug, Doug Collins. Doug Collins, we'll Doug Collins were running, we would have won Doug more Doug Collins races. joins us. There's <laughs> Doug Collins. Doug Collins, what do you make of this race? I mean, Stacey Abrams was supposed to be the face of the Democratic Party. This is a second big loss for her. Um, this is a, a, a big blow to the Democratic Party. Well, it's a huge blow to the Democrats, but uh, but it also it's really the two of the up-and-coming faces. You're seeing Stacey Abrams in Georgia. You're going to see uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke in Texas. Uh, again, it's it's what it just seems like in Georgia, especially over the last couple of weeks, that frankly the Abrams campaign gave up. They they could not catch uh, traction. They were losing uh, support among traditional Democratic voters who felt that Stacey Abrams had sort of left Georgia. That she was looking beyond. I mean, even when she was running for governor, they were asking her about, you know, are you going to run for president? Will you stay? And and there was just a disconnect. Brian Kemp kept the state open. Brian Kemp worked uh, hard to uh, make sure that Georgia was prospering in, in its economic and, and safety areas. And that's what paid off. When Did, you pay off with good policies, it works. Does he help Herschel Walker? It, it's still, I think this is, it's, it's just a different race. And I think this is the, the race coming up. But I think what, what I'm hearing from my guys back in Georgia is that the numbers are on the same projection for Walker. They're not concerned. Um, what is interesting in Georgia, because of that supposedly terrible SB202, that was supposedly full of voter intimidation, we're actually seeing votes come in early, and which has been so unusual for us in Georgia to see Fulton County, DeKalb County, and these votes actually come in early. Um, so it's actually thrown the projections off. Now you're actually just waiting for the day of voting, which is going to uh, trend much heavily toward the Republicans, which I think you'll see Walker close this gap. Um, and, and look at it in the way Kemp's going. I do think if it turns out a good day of voting, Walker could win this without a runoff. Wow, that is that would be a, a big night for Republicans. And we talk about how big the red wave would be. This is uh, in the full hurricane force winds of change type <laughs> of red wave. But to do it without a, run a runoff, that would be rather surprising. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's still not there yet. I mean, it, it, there's still some numbers. I mean, some of the numbers for Warnock, and, is, and the gap has been rather significant, but the numbers have been trending in what they were, you know, they, from what I've been hearing from the, from the camps is, and from others, is that the numbers are where they had projected them to be given early voting and now day of voting. What has really changed, though, and I think it's been said on, on the network a few times now, is this idea that Republicans are voting more and more day of. And when you see some of those numbers out of uh, even traditional Republican counties, that the numbers for Democrats were higher, that's what you're seeing. So it, it, it's changed the dynamic in many of these states. Doug Collins, thank you. Yeah, we're Thanks. learning a lot uh, with this new kind of re- alignment in our political system. Uh, let's, right. let's get over to Mark Halper now, who is at the touchscreen. He's going to break down some of the races and the data that we have coming in. Mark. So let me start again with the House. Uh, and there's some races that have not been projected yet, where Democrats, though, look like they may pull them out. And so I'll say, uh, reinforced by a little bit more data, what I said the last time we talked, which is this is not going to be at the House a massive red wave. House Republicans will take the majority. But again, we're looking more like a pickup in the lower range of what people have talked about, not a massive wave that we've seen in some of the previous cycles. So again, House majority for the Republicans, but not a massive wave. We'll talk a little bit about some of those races when more data comes in. Back to the Senate and talking about the Senate scenarios. Again, as, as we've talked about, House Senate Republicans playing defense in Pennsylvania in the Senate race there. And we're seeing still, as, as you look at the vote coming in in Pennsylvania, uh, Fetterman is still ahead of Dr. Oz, but lots of vote to come in there. Republicans are feeling a little bit more nervous, the ones I just talked to about this race. Democrats feeling a little bit better. If Democrats win this race, Republicans need to pick up two of four races that they're competing in. New Hampshire, with Maggie Hassan as the incumbent. Georgia, 
with uh, uh, Raphael Warnock as the incumbent. Right now, these races look very close, but the Democrats seem to be in a position to win. That would mean the only way Republicans are going to take the Senate majority, again, if Democrats win Pennsylvania and hold their two incumbents in New Hampshire and Georgia, is if they win both Arizona and Nevada. That's, that's not a sure thing. So we went into the night thinking, more likely than not, Republicans would take majority in both the House and the Senate and maybe have a big night in the Senate. Got to scale that back if you're a Republican right now. Senate control very much up in the air and looking less likely than it did before the evening started. Thank you, Mark. We'll be back to you, of course. And now to Mar-a-Lago, the home of former President Donald Trump. Eric Bowling, the host of Eric Bowling, The Balance, joins us. Good evening, Eric. Hey, Greta, how are you guys? The coverage is great, by the way. I just want to let you know, about five minutes ago, you put up the poll, the Kemp, uh, Kemp Stacey Abrams poll. The crowd came over and watched and started applauding. They're very, very obviously watching that race because they know, I think some of the people on your desk have been saying this. I talked to a couple of Kemp uh, insiders here. They actually work for the campaign. They said, if Kemp holds and wins by seven or more, they feel that everything down ballot will fall the Republican way, and especially what they're looking at is Herschel Walker against uh, Reverend Warnock. So I think the seven number is big. I think most people believe Kemp is going to hold it. Will he hit seven and will Herschel take that race? And what remains to be seen. I'll tell you, when DeSantis was talking a little while ago, you guys took it. The place was, was really tuned, in tuned. I heard chance of two more years, two more years. Think about that for a second. Two more years means 24 is he going is he will he or won't he i asked president trump as he came into the venue earlier what about desantis what about the sniping back and forth and i mentioned earlier what he said to me was i'll tell you what if he runs he'll run against me like everyone else now think about that for a second that's trump saying he's going to run we know it's going to happen but effectively he, he basically told us but but DeSantis was hitting on something very, very important. We talk about inflation being on the ballot. We talk about crime being on the ballot. Woke is on the ballot. Certainly woke is on the ballot down here. Very, very popular government. Governor who's pushed back on woke policies, pushed back on CRT. And, and it's going to be a dogfight if DeSantis gets in here. I don't get the sense he's going to. But I will tell you, this crowd is a Trump crowd. They're jazzed. They're ready. They want their, their guy to come out swinging starting next week, a week from tonight. Eric, thank you. All right, big races that have captured the nation's attention tonight are New York and New Hampshire. We haven't talked a lot about the New York governor's race, but Lee Zeldin, the Republican, going toe-to-toe with Kathy Hochul, who took over for embattled Governor Andrew Cuomo. And in New Hampshire, voters are choosing between General Don Bulldog and Maggie Hassan for senator. For analysis, let's bring in former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Great to see you, Mayor. How are you? We are doing great. We are doing great here. And uh, what are you hearing about the New York governor's race? Still very early this evening. Yeah, it, uh, sure. It's pretty. It's pretty. Er- it's pretty early to, uh, to to really take a look at it. Uh, it's going to take probably about another half hour to figure out where the vote is exactly coming from. And all of this will be a function of where the vote's coming from. You know, I've been looking at the Georgia race, and up until halfway through, Warnock was leading. And now all of a sudden, Walker has taken the lead. And that's a function of where the vote's coming from. In Wisconsin, right now, Johnson's behind. But if you look at where the vote's coming from, Johnson's going to win. I don't think there's much question about it. Vance was behind. He's now ahead. So you've got to take a look. Also, what kind of turnout was there? The, the, The critical thing 
for Lee will be what kind of turnout in upstate New York. Uh, George Pataki, who is the model they use, really won because he got an exceptional turnout in upstate New York, because upstate New York was disgusted with uh, Mario Cuomo basically never doing anything for them when they lost all their industries. And he won a disproportionately high vote. And Lee has to match that vote. If he can, he's going to win. Do you if feel like the intensity then, is similar to that of the way that George Pataki rode to the governor's mansion? There is. There is. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that means he's going to win. Yeah. If you're asking me, is the intensity there? You're darn right. The intensity is there for a different reason now, though. The intensity in upstate New York in, in, uh, in 94 was all about the economy. Uh, now it's all about crime. Upstate New York has more crime than downstate New York. The, the highest city for crime in New York is Rochester. Buffalo is number two. New York is number four. That's unprecedented in New York. In New York State, the crime issue was a New York City issue, not, not a suburban or upstate issue. Because of our incompetent, criminal-loving governors, Cuomo and Hochul, They've made it a statewide problem. And it's all them. It's all their policies. There's no other reason for the heavy crime in New York than Cuomo and Hochul. They put the laws into effect. There are probably seven to 10,000 criminals on the street that weren't there when I was mayor and when Bloomberg was mayor. And they're the people who are killing, raping, stealing, and frightening the people out of New York. And another thing that uh, Kathy Hochul has tried to do is spin this back and claim that uh, the whole crime spike is just a Republican conspiracy theory, but uh, the data does not back her up on that. Mayor Giuliani, always great to see you and talk to you and get your <laughs> insights. Thanks so much. Thank you. Let's bring it back out to the panel, Matt Schlapp and Rick Santorum on the desk with us. Okay, you've both been busy looking at your, uh, <laughs> at your phones. What do you know? Well, I just talked to some, or been texting with some, Contacts in North Carolina, the bud numbers look really solid. It looks like he's headed for a victory. Uh, North New Hampshire looks incredibly tight, and I think while we were talking, Herschel Walker has taken his first lead. So things, as these votes come in in these key Senate races, you're going to see these numbers get better for the Republicans. The question is, New Hampshire, is going to be enough? It's really interesting. If you look at the, uh, uh, the governor's races and the Senate race in Georgia, all night long from the very beginning of that race, Brian Kemp has been running about four, a little over four points ahead of Herschel Walker all night long. They've been tracking together, uh, which brings back to the point that Doug Collins made, which is if Kemp can get to 55, then Warnock, I mean, then, then Walker gets to 50. And, which avoids a runoff, too. Which, so it's, you can call it coattails, you can call it whatever, but the fact of the matter is they're, they're moving together. <laughs> they're in different places, but they're moving together. The interesting thing is, and I, as a Pennsylvania guy, i got to bring this up, which is the, the, the difference between – I've been watching the Shapiro, who's the Democratic uh, nominee for governor of Pennsylvania against Mastriano, and, and watching Fetterman against Oz. And that race is tracking the same, the same way. It's about a five-point difference, a little bit more than five-point difference, which is interesting because if you're making the assumption, which I think if you look at the numbers, it's true, that Oz and Fetterman are going to be razor thin mm. – well, that means that Mastriano is only five points. You know, he's he's 
it's not it, it probably is not going to be, uh, you know, a, a, a huge win on the part of the Democrat, which you just sort of question whether you've been smart to put more money in to help mass. Oh, yeah. Let me didn't. tell you, the Republican Party with their targeting always makes this mistake. We had a, a big chance to go down on the priorities and we didn't do it. We stayed up at the top and we could have picked up some more seats. I'm going to disagree with Mark Halpern. You can still have a big red wave and win close races. So that's really the question going forward. You could win these all by two points, yes, two and sir. a half points. You win 80% of them. It's going to be a hell of a big night, including it's on sir, the House. It's sort of like the bar exam. You don't need 100%. You just need 70. Well, don't, are you talking to us about your scores, Greta? Because <laughs> well, the expectations have been so high. you know, And Republicans are trying to meet those expectations right now. We'll get a, a dose of reality, of course, when the when the well, look, are counted. Just but, to be clear, uh, Republicans, a win, a yeah, win Republicans win. are going to control the House. Yes. I mean, that, I, everyone is projecting. Well, I think that we now. just picked up another one in Georgia. We're right there. Yeah. So the Republicans are going to control the House. The question is how big the majority is going to be. And I think that's. I think Matt is right. There are a lot of close races out there. Uh, we were looking at one at, in Rhode Island just a minute ago, and uh, that was one that was sort of a wish list. Yeah, but we, I mean, come on, if we win in Rhode Island... I know, like... but, uh, and we're only, we're down two points here, and, and, and again, we could, the Republicans could Oklahoma. lose that by two points, sure. they could win it by one point, so you're going to have a lot of these types of close... Okay, I wonder what uh, <clears throat> Joseph Cotto has to say. And I, I think that with 66% of the vote in, perhaps uh, he won't relinquish his lead, but, you know, this is always the matter of we shall see. In Pennsylvania, Oz, with only 33% of the vote, is at 55. Uh, he started out way behind Fetterman, so we'll see where that goes. But obviously, Pennsylvania, as we were saying earlier, has, to say the least, issues that uh, could prove <laughs> Uh, interesting. That's probably being the uh, the, uh, the, the, the generous uh, about the situation. It sounds like one of your cats are around, Patrick. Is he or she available to make it appear? Uh, there is. Um, I tell you what. If you, um, I'm just going to go out and I'll come back in. Okay, I'll come back in with a feline part part of the feline focus group. Time on Cato Gottfried. Uh, and now we actually get to to see one, so this should be interesting. Okay, great, fascinating. Let's see what else is going on. Regarding whether it's a big red wave or not, I agree with. It's a sort of a wish list. Yeah, but we, I mean, come on, if we win in Rhode Island, I know. Like, but uh, like we're, we're Mark down Alfred. two points here, Let's and, get and, to Mark and again, we could, the Republicans could lose that by two points, sure. they could win it by one point. So you're going to have a lot of these types of close races, which is the difference between thirty seats and, and we, and we haven't gotten to Nevada, and we haven't gotten to Arizona. Right. There's a lot of the country California, still to go through. So races. just because it's tight doesn't mean that a big red wave isn't forming. And I'd say this: Rick Santorum was a senator. You know, okay, 51, 52, 53. Majority is what really makes the difference right, well, in the country. Well, let's go back over to Mark Halpern over at the wall. Mark, what do you have? Well, this is a part of the night when those of us who are in charge of data uh, start to try to figure out where's the vote out, right? Some of these races where we don't have a projection of a winner. North Carolina remains something that Democrats continue to say they can win. I've looked at the data. You see in Mecklenburg County, uh, one of the bigger counties in the state, there's still a fair amount of the vote out. It's a very good county for Beasley. What you're going to see now in a lot of these races, you'll see it in Georgia, you'll see it in New Hampshire, you're going to see it in this race. And as we head out west, you'll see it in the other races. It's kind of a contest. Rural vote comes in late sometimes, and some of these larger counties report partial vote, but not all of the vote. So we're going to coggle back and forth in a lot of these races to figure out what the outcome is. 
regarding whether it's a big red wave or not, I agree with Matt. We'll see what happens out west. But some of these eastern eastern contests in the House, which Republicans put a lot of money into, a lot of effort into, it looks like they're going to come up short. Doesn't mean they won't have majority. It doesn't Mark, mean they're not going to win a lot of races. Can yeah. you do me a favor and jump to the great state of Wisconsin and tell me how that Senate race is going? Greta, I love people from Wisconsin. They're very nice. So let's take a look. Particularly Appleton. Let's take a look. Uh, the governor's race. This is another race, another state that's got a competitive governor's race and a competitive Senate race. And we've talked all night about the interaction there. Here's the governor's race, expected to be stronger for the Democrats. And you see right now just a little bit of the vote in, Greta, so we're going to have to wait just 15 percent. The Democratic governor's ahead. The Senate race, again, it's one where the Republican on the Senate side is expected to be stronger. Right now, incumbent Ron Johnson is behind. But we got to wait. There's just a little more than 10 percent of the vote in in Wisconsin. All right, Mark, thank you. We'll be back to you. Let's head over to Christina Thompson to find out what people are saying on social media. Well, Greta, people are really interested, kind of going crazy over this red moon seen in the sky earlier this election day morning. Now, the moon passed. Okay, let's let's skip the red moon. Let's see what Joseph Cotter has. It's, it's interesting how the Republicans are doing a bit unevenly, I would say, tonight. Uh, like in Wisconsin, uh, with 41% of the vote in, Evers is ahead of Michelle's, even though Michelle's was not the strongest candidate by far. Uh, Evers is at 52.4. Michelle's is at uh 47, roughly. Uh, and uh, then if one looks at Michigan, that's not a surprise that Tudor Dixon is, is not uh, doing terribly well there, even though she is at 47 to Whitner's 52 and only 16% of the vote is in. I don't know where that percentage of the vote is from. So, uh, you know, let's kind of uh, wait and see. But uh, it's it, the, the GOP is doing well, but I said they're as I said they're a bit uneven. And in New York, with twenty five percent of the vote, and Hochul's at sixty five, and Zeldin is at thirty five. So that's definitely not you know great for for Zeldin being a have their backs far too uh, much in the world going to. Uh, uh, how it's going to turn out. No one can call that race yet. On the whole, do you think it's as such that the Republicans are doing unevenly? Do you think perhaps I've erred in my analysis? What do you think the case is? I think it's just too early to tell with most of the senatorial and gubernatorial races. Uh, Joseph, that we've all anticipated would at least be competitive. Uh, and Some of us have thought that the Republicans would take the lion's share of them. Uh, because the you know, where, where these uh, vote dumps are coming from, uh, whether they're mail-in ballots, uh, whether they're election day ballots, um, it varies according to the state. Uh, some of them are very slow at counting or slow, even slower than the others. So I just really think whether it's Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, uh, some of the other states, it's, it's just too early to know. I mean, let's say New York, for example, you have the votes so far, uh, you just look at the vote total tally and it doesn't look good for Zeldin. But in terms of turnout, uh, Zeldin is doing has done phenomenally well um, in on Staten Island uh, in New York City. Um, he's done really well on Long Island. Uh, you know, his uh, turnout is apparently down in New York City itself. So, you know, we just don't know yet because there, you know, you can depending on which side of this you're on, you can point to some encouraging uh, data. Uh, but there's encouraging data on the other side as well. Uh, so I think the truth of it is, is that most of these gubernatorial and senatorial races uh, will be close. And that means that we'll either have to mm -hmm. sort of wait late into the night 
in some cases. We'll be up all night in other cases. And in one or two at least, we may be here for days. Uh, and um, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, one, one little thing here, uh, Georgia, I mean, uh, over the months I've been accused by many of being overly optimistic in terms of the Republicans. But, you know, as recently as our chat, mm-hmm. Joseph, uh, just a day or two ago, I was saying that I think Walker's going to win, but I, I doubt if he'll get to 50. That may be one that I was a little pessimistic on because I think you, you may be right. He may actually uh-huh. hit the 50 and avoid the runoff. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, we, we, just sim- we just simply have to be patient. Um, it's, the thing with, with an election like this, this national election involving so many levels, uh, there are, because there are literally hundreds, you know, there are several hundred races going on. Uh, it's, and there's, there's, there's so many numbers, but most of the numbers don't have any, um, uh, they don't, they don't any sort of innate, um, kind of harmony to them or, or, or logic that can be, you know, super, that can be just immediately superficially, uh, you know, deduced. So, uh, we just have to, in a, really take a breath and let some of this stuff wash over us for a while because in most cases, it's going to be another hour or Attorney- two. He's the second lieutenant governor. Thank you, lieutenant governor. Governor. I appreciate that. I'm sorry. Sorry. Thank you. You got a lot of stuff going on in there. I got to phone a friend. That's what I got to do over here. It's it's like, you know, you live on a Samsung and they hand you an iPhone. They say, go, right? Okay. So right now, Johnson trailing in that race up there. Let me just see what's happening in the governor's race, folks. Uh, So Tim Michaels now trailing Tony Evers in that race as well. Very very interesting. Uh, Watch that in Wisconsin. Let me pop out here. We haven't checked on Pennsylvania. Uh, Here we go. On the governor's race, Shapiro, the attorney general, with an easy lead over Mastriano. And that is still just about a third of the vote in on the Senate race. Uh, Here's the big one. All right, here we go. At this point in the race, Fetterman has a lead on Dr. Mehmet Oz. Uh, you're at 37% in, difference of about 91,000. Here's what I would watch in PA, and it's pretty simple to break down this state. It's Erie in the Northwest. It's Pittsburgh here, Allegheny County. It's Philadelphia over here in the Southeast and all these collar counties that surround it. If you're a Democrat, that's where you win in Pennsylvania. If you're a Republican, you got to try and keep that vote down in places like Pittsburgh uh, in Philadelphia. We have yet to check in on New York. Here is, sorry, this is the Senate race now. Chuck Schumer's been called. Not much of a race there, but here. Okay, it looks like Chuck Grassley is being reelected. Right now at 64%. Lee Zeldin, a tick under 36%. A lot of votes still outstanding here. Let's see what's happening, right? Long Island, we've talked about that. On the House races, there's a lot of keen interest here in New York about what's happening in these House races. Because, frankly, you, you don't find a lot of drama often in, in New York. But look, look what Nicole Malatakis is doing in Staten So New York Times says John Fetterman has a 53% chance of winning his Senate race against Dr. Oz. With the outcome decided by 51-49, either way, right now she's an easy winner with more close to 63% of the votes. Staten Island right down here uh, in the southern tip of Manhattan. I want to check here. This is AOC. Easy winner, 70% of the vote here in uh, the boroughs of New York. Let's check in with New York 17. All right, this is Sean Patrick Maloney. Uh, it's the first time I've seen this guy, so we're taking it in a real time here. Up against Mike Lawler, the Republican. He has a lead right now. Why is this important? 
Sean Patrick Maloney runs the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He is responsible for overseeing all the House Democrats and their election campaigns throughout the country. He right now travel uh, trails right. Uh, Mike Lawler, Republicans were big on Lawler. They thought he was a good candidate. That district is right above New York in the Hudson River Valley, just across from West Point along the Hudson River. The thing that's tricky about this whole deal here is that in New York, Democrats drew the map. They gave it to a judge. Judge said, we're not going to do this. Go back and do it again. They did it again. A judge said, forget it. I'm going to outsource it to another judge who will decide how you can draw the lines in this race. What was the outcome okay, of that? Bowden, they forced on, a bro? lot of Democrat, leading Democrats in New York now. You're, you're, going you're live on the air. You're going out to my enormous audience. <laughs> I'm done telling you you put me on for real, did you? Yep, yep, I really put you on for real. So I put you on speakerphone. Oh, so. God, crikey, crikey. <laughs> so how you doing, mate? I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. been following you. Following you for a long, long time. I'm in my office. Oh, very um, good. How, how's business? Well, business is all right, you know, going to bloody court and all that. I was in court yesterday. I was actually down in Downing Centre. You know, you were doing that streaming. I saw the thing yesterday. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't that far away. Are you fighting for justice, anyway, mate? Catch up. All right, you know where I am. You can catch yeah. up the ferry from Circular Geese. Yeah. The, the Opera House, you know the place. I'm yeah. sure you do. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the, the, the ferry takes you right up to my place about 100 metres. Yeah, pretty sweet. We've got to, we've got to set the date. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so what do you think of Australia's uh, Prime Minister and governing party? Well, I think of Australia now. You know, you know the old man, that, um, Anthony Albanese, he went to my old school. I, told, I think I told you that, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, he went to St. Mary's Cathedral. He's um, a bit of a sleazy. They used to call him Anthony Albert Sleazy. He's not, a, he's not a very high IQ bloke, but anyway, uh, you know me, I'm sort of ultra-conservative in my views. Do, do, you, do you have voter fraud in Australia? Is that a problem in Australia, voter fraud? Oh, no, no not in America. I'm, I'm following American politics and very, very closely. Um, but... Um, uh, not as much, no, no. It's not, not, not a problem. I wouldn't call it a problem in Australia because you've got to be re registered. You've got to, um, uh, you know, it's compulsory voting, unlike America, which is uh, uh, optional. And how, how much attention do you pay to the American elections? I'm sorry. How much attention do you pay I, I, I to am, the American? I am following. Um, yeah. American election, as I said, closely. I think uh, Pennsylvania is up in Georgia. That's where the the big question mark is. Uh, it's got to be a red sway, as I understand. The uh, Sanders in Florida will win, and um, that. But funny thing, which I couldn't believe, that Federman guy is he for real? Is that a fucking joke? Yeah. <laughs>
Feinstein and that other Pelosi, the Hammerhead. Yeah. Shark. Yeah. Yeah, do you, do you think so, Australia... It's so segregated, it's so divisive, you know, you know you're either left or right, bad in a way. Do you think uh, Australia attracts better quality candidates than America? I'm sorry? Do you think Australia attracts better quality candidates than America? Uh, well, uh, um, uh, Australia is sort of a, a backwater. In a way, we, we are okay. Uh, in the sense that we are unfortunately following America in, in anything, in culture, in politics, and in um, economics and so forth. It is, um, it is a lucky country. But it's no longer so, I don't And uh, what's I mean, the... I'm, I'm okay, Jack, you know, me. I'm in sort of middle class, but, you know, there are a lot of people struggling here in Australia also. It's not... It's a worldwide epidemic, first of all. Not as bad as America, you know, Detroit and Los Angeles and then in San Francisco, there's, there's poor people on the street. It's awful. It's, it's, I just haven't got any words to, to explain it. Uh, to me, that would be a culture shock. If I ever went to America, I would love to see that myself. So, who's the last Aborigine that you voted for? Uh, yeah, uh, there, is, there is an Aboriginal. Uh, um, uh, uh, this, that, what's the name? Uh, that, that, that senator, that mad senator we got here. Uh, she, she's more. She looks white, but she claims to be Aboriginal. Not hints and the other woman. Oh, God. Penny Wong. Uh, Penny Wong. Well, he's Chinese. This is the Argo of Australian politics. We've got a Chinese as a foreign minister. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, my philosophy life is uh, blood is thicker than water. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, uh, not being racial or anything or sexist or anything, but I wouldn't trust her with a ten-foot pole, to be honest with you. Well, the, the, Chinese, the Chinese have, have, have bought a lot of people in, in Australia, right? They, they're documented cases of bribery. I can have you just... Could you repeat that? I'm yeah, I said there are documented cases of, of the Chinese bribing Australian politicians. Oh, labor. Of all the immigrants, the Chinese are most numerous. Um, they consist or constitute about one point or 26 million in Australia. They consist of about 1.8 million, I think, at this stage. Uh, as you know, see, the big uh, change was in America in 1965 when the Kennedys, or Edward Kennedy, opened the, the American floodgates to the president. America followed suit exactly in 1975 at, uh, under. Uh, Fraser, Prime Minister Fraser, he opened the floodgates. In other words, Australia was uh, mainly took in European migrants up to 75, after 75, anybody. So we've got a lot of Indians coming in. Um, and, and, That's uh, for sure. And Asians and, and Somalis. Oh, we've got a, you know, Melbourne has got a 
a comparable of this, uh, section of Melbourne from Somalia, like uh, Minnesota in America, was, uh, on a smaller version. Uh, but um, it's all segregated. In Sydney also, the, you know, where you live, you're, 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 you're judged by a postcode. Zip code is the American school. Yeah, not, not very much crime in uh, Sydney. Oh, no, no. Well, not much, no. There's a lot of corporate crime. <laughs> I'm actually... I'm actually representing... Made the news about 30 or 40 people being charged and he shall remain nameless <laughs> that goes without saying but um, uh, frauding NDIS so he's been charged with a serious crime so, uh, there's a lot of that but sort of uh, robbery or violence no I wouldn't say that prevalent and uh, what's going on with Sydney trads We've got a meeting, we've got about 45, 40 to 50 people, but every year we meet, we've got guest speakers. We just had one uh, about a week ago uh, down Central, Central Station. And the boys, it's only young guys, you know, university professors and, and PhD students, sort of um, uh, a high, highly intellectual crowd, you might, might say. And it's only by invite. It, it is an interesting crowd. We sort of get guest speakers uh, anywhere, you know, from priests to lecturers to commies, and then we discuss. We got a, you know, a bit of a question and answer afterwards. So we had a guy from uh, Imperium Press. Um, uh, they're um, what's his name? Maxwell. Is well, actually Canadian. Andrew Fraser. Fraser. Andrew Fraser. Andrew Fraser. Yeah, Andrew. Interesting guy. But we've got, we are trying to, what I'm trying to do is um, have a harbour cruise again. We didn't have it because of the COVID last couple of years. And you shall be cordially invited. Oh, very good, very good. Around Christmas, all right. It's a really enjoyable trip for about four or five hours. Very good. And, 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 the, and the boat and, uh, departs from my place, all right. <laughs> you know, you know what place I'm Yeah, like yep, beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah, all right. Uh, I'm, I'm actually doing the renovations. There you are, my son's coming from London. I haven't seen him for 20 years. Oh, good on you. Looking forward to that. Yeah. He's coming in, in, in March of next year. Okay. Beyonce. Okay. Anyway. Okay, mate. I'll uh, catch up with you sometimes when I'm off the air. Okay. okay. I've got your number. Yep. What I'll do, mate, listen, uh, we've got to catch up and yep. we'll, we'll go out somewhere. Well, I'll probably drive you to Canberra. You haven't been to Canberra, have you? Uh, not for a while, mate. Not for a while. And it will be very difficult to put anything on the president's desk that he'll sign. Well, I, I think that they first need to get moving on with uh, promises made and uh, start with the border. 
start with reining in runaway spending and recognizing that there's real statements that can be made in reestablishing some fiscal responsibility. And I think this is what voters expect. They're sending folks to, to Congress, both in the House and the Senate. And I do think that the Republicans will end up in a majority in both uh, to deliver on promises made. And, uh, and this is a moment where voters are tired of, of not only getting uh, something different than they expected out of the Biden administration, where all of a sudden left liberal policies have left America really weakened, our economy in shambles and real distrust to a moment where they're sending folks to Washington to deliver. And so uh, I think that's what we'll get from a Republican-led House and Senate, uh, a recognition that they were sent there to get a job done, and I think they'll go do it. Governor, Governor um, you. you know, you bounce around the country. A lot of people ask the question, after you do that, do you have aspirations for a different office after your term limited in Virginia? Well, I've been very, very focused on November the 8th and uh, supporting great candidates and uh, really helping folks that are standing for these values that are most important uh, of making sure that the economy is is delivering for our, our citizens and, and, and not a headwind against uh, them keeping their hard earned money and making sure that parents are represented not just at the table, but at the head of the table and that and that law enforcement is supported and not demeaned. These are basic kitchen table concerns. And this is where we've been focused. Yeah, I believe that, like, uh, uh, we're working hard about in it. Virginia and deliver and delivering. <laughs> Sounds like you've been thinking about it, though. <laughs> well, I, pre I appreciate it. Uh, I'm always humbled on this discussion. I've been very focused on. <laughs> New York Times projects Herschel Walker with a 61% chance of victory. So let's uh, see what uh, Baron Cotto and Patrick GOP. Michelle. Uh, and she's down uh, by 10 points with 38% of the vote in. Obviously, there's a lot of postal balloting there. But uh, all the same, uh, I would have thought that it would have been uh, closer by now if Lake wasn't in the lead. Uh, and in uh, Wisconsin, it grows closer and closer with 49% of the vote in. Ron Johnson looks like he's on course to overtake Mandela Barnes. Uh, it is for the gubernatorial election with 50% of the vote in as such that uh, Michelle's trails Evers. Uh, Michelle's the Republican. He's 46.6 to Evers is 52.5. Obviously, all these things are way too close to call. Uh, in Arizona, uh, the Secretary of State race, this is by far and away the most closely watched Secretary of State election in the country. Uh, Fincham is down to Adrian Fontes. Fincham is a Republican who, uh, <laughs> he very, very strongly supported by, uh, one might say the ultra MAGA, let alone MAGA wing of the party. Uh, he's at 41.9 to Fontes is 58.1. Uh, obviously Fincham could still win, but Okay, let's uh, keep our eyes out here, Newsmax. I wanted to get your take, too, on the Georgia, uh, the correlation between the Georgia governor's race and the Herschel walker Raphael Warnock Senate race. You know, we've heard from Mark Halpern and from Rick Santorum and from Sean Spicer that maybe we need, he needs to get, uh, Brian Kemp needs to get to like 54%. That might carry Herschel Walker over the finish line. Do you think that's attainable at this stage of the game? 
Uh, you know, that is attainable, but you've seen that the numbers close rapidly. Remember, Warnock started the night with a big lead because they counted the absentees and they counted the early in-person votes first. Then all of a sudden, the election day votes start closing it and closes rapidly. So, uh, you know, he was behind. People were saying, is he going to lose? Is he going to be able to win? Warnock was over 50 percent. Now they're headed for a runoff, probably. But if Governor Kemp extends his lead because he's got a decisive win over Stacey Abrams in these final votes, he can win. And we're seeing that in a lot of states. You saw that in North Carolina. You saw that in Ohio. You're seeing it in other states where the polls have closed late. And, uh, like in New York, if you're waiting to see control of Congress, uh, they counted the absentees and the early in-person votes first, and they counted New York City first. Now you, where the most contested... And I think the country are, comes out of this election just as divided as it was before. And this is not going to be resolved. You know, the, poll, the voters said they don't want Joe Biden or Donald Trump running for president. The country wants to move forward. And until they get to move forward, they're going to be very evenly divided. And that's what I think we're seeing. No. Yeah, most, how's that message heard at the White House? I mean, look, I, I, and I'm going to agree with Mark here. We've gone, like, gone are the days where we would see these major pendulum swings. We're seeing a pendulum nudge. Okay, a pendulum nudge here from Fox News. Race, uh, in which it was thought that the Republican would easily overtake the incumbent Democrat. But with 61% of the vote in, the Republican is only at 43.8, whereas the Democrat is at 53.4. Not what I expected to see, uh, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. So uh, in Connecticut also, this is perhaps a bit closer than I thought it would be, but 23% of the vote in. Ned Lamont, the incumbent who was thought to be cruising to re-election, is at 53.6 to Stefanowski. He ran last time, 2018, his 45 percent. And uh, Michigan is still only 22 percent of the vote in. Whitmer at 51.3, Dixon at 47.1. In Pennsylvania, with 49 percent of the vote in, Shapiro is at 56.4. So Republicans are only up six House seats at this point. We shall wait and see. Uh, In Minnesota, Tim Walls, the incumbent uh, Democratic governor, is at 68.3% with the Republican Jensen, whose first name escapes me, being at 28.9%. Only 21% of the vote is in there, however. Um, So Josh Shapiro has defeated Doug Mastriano in the Pennsylvania governor's race. Really decent idea of how things are going to go. But uh, Patrick, does any of the numbers that I've read to you, do they stand out as being especially surprising? Well, actually, I think it's the Connecticut number um, because um, some of us thought that the Connecticut Senate race might be um, comparatively, relatively competitive. Um, but I think few people thought the uh, gubernatorial contest would be, you know, in single digits. And again, it's a, you know, it's a it's a positive sign for the Republicans. It doesn't guarantee, um, you know, a red tsunami, but it's it, it signals that you know if you're if you're doing far better than expected and far better than normal in a state like deep blue state like Connecticut, uh, then you've got a pretty good shot at all the competitive races around the country. And, you know, you would, what, what you were just uh, reeling off there, Joseph, in terms of updates around the country. um, I mean, this is, this sort of doubles down on why it's so difficult and perhaps a little dangerous to, to draw at this early preliminary stage sort of national trends Okay, dangerous to draw national trends. Who are voting on the economy today are saying, wait, actually, we didn't like that. And when it comes to energy issues, we've talked about that a lot tonight, and Maria Bartiromo's talking about it. Uh, Joe Manchin is in the energy state. 
he's in West Virginia. He had to rebuke the president for saying that he was going to end all coal jobs the other day. And the president's press secretary came out and said, oh, sorry, his words were twisted. No, actually, he said what he meant. That's going to be just one of those races out there. And another one, uh, Brett, is in Montana. John Tester is the incumbent. He did win, but it was a close race. And if he decides to run again, that will be another squeaker. But there's many races where Republicans could do well in 2024. What's the, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to add Thank you, uh, brother. Mark and Mo question. So what, what do you think the president's takeaway is here? It's likely, the overwhelming likelihood he's going to lose the House. He could lose the Senate, maybe not. Suppose, he, suppose they keep the Senate. What does he take away from this? Does he adjust his agenda? Does he full speed ahead? What does he do? What do you think, Mark? Well, look, I've wanted the president to adjust his agenda for a long time, right? I think there's going to be some meetings at the White House. If they change the staff, then I think the president's going to change the agenda. I think if he doesn't change the staff, I think they're going to stick to it. I think I think Joe Biden wants to run for president. He nice. wants to stick with his agenda. He does not want to change. He is not a Bill Clinton, whom I worked with, who did radically change after these kinds of results. If you see him change the White House, however, then I think all bets are off. No. Okay, so this is looking like a standard midterm result with a moderate swing against the party in power, looking no evidence of a red tsunami. So GOP likely to win the senator's races in North Carolina and Ohio. But uh, what will happen in Georgia and Pennsylvania? So Florida is the, is the most dramatic in the Republican direction. But that hasn't translated outside Florida. The New York Times says the Republicans have a 71% chance of winning control of the House and that the U.S. Senate is a toss-up. Check in with MSNBC. So what's the temperature on the ground right now? Uh, Tom, it is a close race. Uh, Latinos, very important. It was projected that one in five voters in this midterm election would be Latino uh, here in Nevada. Catholic Cortez Master, the first Latino elected, does have the support of the Culinary Workers Union. And they had 60,000 people out knocking on doors. They projected to knock on about one million doors during this campaign to try and get those Democrats out to vote. So that's what she has going for her. And she told me she plans to keep that Latino vote. Now, Republicans only need a small portion of that to make a difference because things are so close. And then, of course, there's the nonpartisans coming into the election. One third of registered voters in Nevada, almost one third were nonpartisan, Tom. Interesting. Uh, well, Laxalt, uh, co-chair, President Trump's uh, presidential campaign back in 2020. Biden carried Nevada by two points, but the pandemic hit the state hard. Gas prices are higher than average there. Important factors in this election? Very important. We've been talking to voters for months, and these are two of the things they always bring up. The money issues, inflation. Add to that the cost of housing in a place like Nevada. But in the more recent weeks, they've also brought up abortion. Abortion rights being very important to a lot of the Democrats and also the nonpartisans. Catherine Cortez Masto has been focusing on campaigning on that issue, while her Republican challenger, Adam Laxalt, has been blaming her and the Democrats for all of these economic problems that the working class in Nevada has been facing. But it's going to be up to those nonpartisans, Tom, because these are the voters we've been speaking to over the last few months, and they tell us they care about all of these issues. Now, what changes in Nevada between your nonpartisans, Republicans, and Democrats is who they blame for the issue. 
issues because everyone is facing the same issues. They just blame different people. It's going to come down to see uh, what the nonpartisans decided. Did the Democrats sway them their way to keep supporting the current leadership? Or did the Republicans convince a lot of these nonpartisans to want change? Another thing they have mentioned over and over again, they would like to see a candidate who wins and also focuses on bipartisanship to work across the aisle. Tom. All right. Thank you. Guadalajara, who's in Nevada for us. We'll have much more real-time results and analysis through the rest of the evening. We pause now to rejoin NBC special coverage. Decision 2022, the balance of power. Welcome back to NBC News coverage of the 2022 midterm elections. The drama beginning to build. Yeah, we've got a resolve in a very closely watched race. Abigail Spanberger, the incumbent in Virginia, holds on. That was a race we were watching very, very closely. Uh, let's go to the Texas governor's race. Greg Abbott will get another term as governor. Arizona governor's race, it is still too early in that one. Very closely watched. Michigan governor, too early. Gretchen Whitmer, the incumbent, of course, uh, the object of a kidnapping attempt uh, by, by those who opposed her COVID policies. And in the Nevada governor race, uh, Steve Sisley, the incumbent versus uh, Joe Lombardo, the Republican. The economy, a huge effort here, perhaps uh, headwinds for Democrats. We've got a winner in Pennsylvania. Josh Shapiro, the attorney general, is the projected winner over Doug Mastriano. Let's go to Chuck on this one. Doug Mastriano, a very controversial candidate. Yeah. Uh, and Josh Shapiro has been able to open up this lead that we have. Okay, let's uh, see if we can get some other commentary in here. In this room that I've been blessed. So I'm, I'm ready. And I know you guys are ready as well. So, hey, God bless it's you guys. 20,000 votes going. ahead. God bless. Thank you guys. So okay, he's 20,000 votes ahead with 13% of the vote left to count. So, Herschel Walker looks likely to win. And Herschel Walker <laughs> at 49-49 with 87% in. And if nobody hits 50... We're going to have to do this all over again. You're right. And it looks like it will likely be a runoff in Georgia. Uh, but I do say when you've seen the last, he was able to catch up. The Democrats really tried very hard to take him down with the abortion allegations. He seemed to have survived that economy. The economy seems to be the most important issue in Georgia. We've also seen with Warnock that he's actually lost support amongst blacks and Hispanics. So that has given an edge, I think, to Walker. But you would want to see Walker more aligned with the numbers that we've seen, obviously, with Ryan Kemp. How do the right to life people reconcile voting for him? Because it's such a deep passion, you know, and I mean... So a lot Let, of presidents in that part of the country. There's quite a few. Days. Yeah, exactly. I think the only living pre presidents that didn't get there were Bill Clinton and Jimmy mm -hmm. Carter. Um, but every everybody else. And I'll tell you, there's going to be a lot, again, to bring up Trump. A lot of people wondered, boy, Dr. Oz had done a good job for about a month sort of distancing himself from the right wing of the Republican Party. And they, they thought he was making progress in the Philly suburbs. And then he did a rally with Trump and Mastriano. In the, in the final weekend of the campaign, can we talk about actually that that very issue, which is the choice of Mastriano for the in the Republican primary and the effect that well, that I was had. out there covering those races, and Mastriano was Trump's choice and beat. Yeah, maybe Dr. Oz closely aligning himself with Mastriano and Donald Trump. That that may very well cost him his Senate seat. rains about 25 days here in Las Vegas, and this happened to be one of them. But still, we've seen a pretty impressive showing at this location. Although the polls have closed now, we've counted about 200 people still inside waiting to cast their ballot, which they still can do if they were in line at the time. This weather, though, I mean, it did have a pretty significant impact. Uh, in terms of concern, at least, we don't know exactly how it's impacted turnout just yet. But while it's been rain and high winds here up to the north near Reno, heavy snow has been falling throughout the day. Now, to get into a little dynamic of this race here. It's really, really interesting. We're here in Clark County, uh, home of Las Vegas, and this is an area where Democrats spend a whole lot of time and effort, including incumbent Senator... Come on, I'm trying to run a yeah. show here. Okay. Then MSNBC. the anti-Semitism just spread throughout the state, and that really, and Shapiro is an observant 
Jewish person, and he criticized Shapiro for sending his children to religious school, religious day school. So this was really, this state is where the governor controls the Electoral College and all of that count, and it's a Republican legislature and abortion. Abortion was a big issue here in the collar counties of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia because if Doug Mastriano became the governor, then the Democratic governor who was term-limited has been vetoing all of these abortion bans coming out of the Republican legislature. Howie, you, you picked up on something that some of these races we're talking about have really become nationalized and part of the discussion. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, which I think is fascinating, too. And just to the point Andrew's making, it's, it's really, I'm really it's glad that you brought up the anti-Semitic piece of this. There's also crime. Savannah, this is an issue that I know you have some interest in and we talked about earlier. Um, the governor-to-be, if the projection holds, really, f- from what Democrats... All right. Uh, Matthew Iglesias makes an interesting point. He says the red wave didn't materialize because all the Republicans moved to Florida to escape Dr. Fauci's gulag. And he says every state should follow Florida's economic model based on low taxes and large net inflows of federal transfers. So we now have got uh, Republicans up seven House seats. And checking the needle, 72% chance of Republicans taking the House of Representatives. So a toss up for the Senate. 47% said that Fetterman was not healthy enough to serve. Well, so there was that split there. I know someone who's, uh, who's really drilled down on all this. Uh, Dasha Burns is at mm. Fetterman headquarters in Pittsburgh. Dasha, what are you hearing? What are you picking up on there? Chuck was just referencing that's giving them some hope tonight. They're seeing in some of those counties that have a good number of their votes in that Fetterman is outperforming Biden. Places like Lackawanna County. Look, we've been following this candidate since early this year and from the beginning, this is a candidate who has been trying to win over some of those voters that Democrats lost. Those voters in the Rust Belt, the working class folks, union folks, uh, people in rural counties. He's, he's tried to bring that outsider brand to the campaign trail, and they're seeing some encouraging signs that that might be working tonight. The other encouraging factor for them is the race you all just called, the governor's race, Josh Shapiro being so far ahead of Mastriano. There's been hope for the Democratic Party here that Shapiro could potentially help pull Fetterman over the finish line, though both campaigns, Fetterman and Oz, acknowledging... So Democrats are doing too well. For this to be a red wave or even a medium wave, says Mark Alperin. Too many Democratic House seats the Republicans tried hard to take have already been won by the Democrats. Republicans also are going to have a very difficult time taking the U.S. Senate. So Tim Scott is... <laughs> that's a great question. I didn't do all that I should have done. Uh, 62 to 37 is way too close from my perspective. I agree. Okay, that's Tim Scott down here, particularly from politicians. Story of redemption in Christianity. And so I think that uh, Walker has been able to talk about his story of redemption, his uh, close relationship to, to, to Jesus Christ. And I think that that in and of itself, I think, helped. When you also look at Warnock being an extremist on the issue of abortion, where he supports abortion through uh, the nine months, that just does not work for the pro-life voters. 
Yeah, and also there was the issue that Raphael Warnock had, too, with his own personal issues. That seemed to cancel it out. But uh, Herschel Walker's about a 20,000 point, or 20,000 foot lead right now in Georgia. He seems confident going to bed at this point. Uh, but does well, look like he shouldn't like go to bed, John. He <laughs> shouldn't go to bed. But I do think that it's, you want to keep uh, Warnock under 50%. Yeah. If they're able to, to keep that going, and it might end up in a runoff, you know, I think. So John Fetterman outperforming Joe Biden everywhere in Pennsylvania. For Arizona. Well, I think Ohio, Greta, I think J.D. is going to take it. He's, he's just he's been leading for quite some time. He's in a very strong position. Uh, you know, I think New Hampshire, which was viewed as a toss up here in the final weeks, that doesn't look like it's going in our direction in terms of the Republicans. So uh, that's again, it's going to it doesn't look as promising in New Hampshire. Right What's now. interesting about Ohio, if it goes for J.D. Vance, it sort of does take Ohio out of the swing state category, though, with the governor. I mean, that does change things for Ohio, at least for a while. Well, I, I agree. I think what we've seen is that Ohio has become Trump country. And I'm not surprised that now you're seeing Ohio and Florida move away from being the purple states to being these red states. Very promising as we're going into the you bring up, we bring up the, I can't help but think that Trump DeSantis thought both of them, you know, both in the state of Florida, um, both uh, have very passionate followers. Now you've got DeSantis winning by 18 points, which is huge from last time, and Trump sort of giving him a little lip service in Miami. Not much at that rally. Well, he did vote for uh, Ron DeSantis, and let's did remember... Did he really vote for him? Did he say that... <laughs> yeah, but let's remember, it is Trump's followers, and they also support Ron DeSantis, but they're first Trump followers. That is that is where it's at. It, it, they are not leaving to go to Ron DeSantis necessarily. I think you'll find... I mean, I've traveled across the country, and i got to tell you, it, the, the grassroots activists are still with Trump. And this is really, you know, a good problem that Democrats don't have. They wish they had this problem. Too. What's, what's, the party, it's it's what's, what's, what's the party, though? What's the party? We've seen this before. We've seen we can't, we can't get rid of him, John. He's showing up. I got to pass. Let me in. So here's the thing. Strategically speaking, Trump's going to announce next Tuesday. What's that going to do? It's going to force. He's announced four times already. Okay, he's going to announce officially. Biden has made it very clear that he is going to run to try to stop Trump from returning. Right. So. Okay, that's Newsmax. You're probably wondering what does Glenn Beck have to say about all this. Some of us are interested in actually stopping them instead of just standing there yelling and having as your slogan an expression of political impotence. Let's see. Well, here's, had, the, here, here's the thing on that. You can't just stop them. We have to. And I don't hear the Republicans come up with this. Who has, who will define who we are and what we stand for? The guy that got and 60%, hold that up. The guy that got sixty percent in Florida tonight. I think so. See, this yeah. is this is the thing. And please don't go there again. I have to. Because you're making my point. Uh, you're, and this is this is why this is why you're making my point. This is, we're. we're I'll just say it. Oh, God. You're asking Donald <laughs> Trump to do something that, from a worldview standpoint, he can't. he's not equipped to do. No. And I know, I believe he loves the country. He does. I mean, he talked to me for two That's years to try to get me to join his campaign. All right? The, the, the early part of his campaign, when he's losing all his ESPN deals and everything else, I, I, I talked to him during those periods. I, you don't do that stuff just because you're a con man grifter. You don't. There, there is a carnival barker. P.T. Barnum aspect to him, for sure, mm-hmm. that, that, that too often politically gets the better of him. But you also don't become a multi-billionaire and president of the United States because you're a moron, okay? So he's not a clown, and I sincerely believe that he cares. The problem is, and, and the, uh, we had Tucker Carlson in Iowa this summer, and we had him at an event at a private dinner, and we literally asked him. We were like, what changed? Where's the bow-tie technocrat that you were on CNN? Right. How'd you become... Bo- Bill O'Reilly got on Fox promising to be a, a culture warrior and then became a technocrat. Tucker Carlson gets on Fox, was originally a technocrat, and becomes a culture warrior. How did this happen? And you know what he said? I grew up as a political operative, and I, and I, and I knew a lot. My dad was a political operative. I was around Republicans and Democrats. We were Little League teams together. I, I, I could see why they believed in things like Medicare. I didn't agree with it, but I didn't think these things were bad. We're doing things now that there's no political benefit to. And the only way to answer that is something is spiritually wrong with the country. I don't believe Donald Trump has the worldview 
to tr- that's why he keeps saying, I don't know what went wrong. DeSantis acts the way he does because he knows what went wrong and does something about it. All right. Last time we're talking about that. Okay. We'll I talk about that true. next week. Uh, <laughs> let's go to Stu who can make some calls for us. Stu. Well, one thing I would, this is not going to be the best thing I could be saying right now. I would love to be telling you right now that Chad Prather has been elected governor of Texas. Yeah. Unfortunately, not this time. But we're going to say the second best thing, which is Beto O'Rourke lost. Yes. Thank God we do not live in a freaking state that you know, but is governed it, by Beto O'Rourke. This, I don't think this idea scared enough Texans. Texas is, is, is experiencing a hostile takeover. They are doing everything they can to bring this state into the blue. And they will if Texans remain arrogant. Texas is turning blue. It's, it's, it's very possible, though I will say the uh, it's not going to be as close as the uh, O'Rourke Cruz race was. Uh, that's not going to be a huge surprise. Um, also, Kim Reynolds wins easily in uh, Iowa, as expected. I will tell you that there, uh, if you, there's a couple of interesting signals being put out there right now. We've been talking about the prediction markets for a while. About 15, 20 minutes ago, they turned negative for Republicans on the Senate for the first time. Uh, they were favored. They've been favored since the beginning uh, and turned negative now. 66% chance for Democrats to win the Senate uh, and control the Senate. Uh, according to prediction markets, they famously fluctuate wildly. Now, the New York Times uh, measure that we talked about earlier does not see it the same way. They still see 51 senators uh, as their best estimate right now for Republicans. They have 49 that are leaning this way, 48 for Democrats, and then three toss-ups in the middle, which are Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona, which are all basically, they project as razor, razor thin margins, all less than three points, two of them less than one point. Uh, So this thing looks super, super close and can go well into the evening. That's why we're going to be going to the YouTube channel after this coverage is over, the Studios America YouTube channel for late night, uh, early morning coverage. And we'll keep going to, I guess, at least midnight here on Blaze TV. Okay, joining me now is a comedian, self-described libertarian Tupac, uh, Dave Smith. (laughs) While the (laughs) biggest issues of the midterms have been things like the economy and protecting our kids, Dave takes it one step further. Um, he can connect our crumbling culture to today's biggest foreign policy issues, like how close we are to a war in Russia. Welcome, Dave. How are you? Thank you, Glenn. It's good to be with you guys. And yeah, I think there's a, a very clear connection. This is not my uh, observation. This is the observation of the most brilliant founders of this country, that if we go around the world searching for monsters to destroy... We become the dictress of the world, but we lose our own soul. Yes. And I think that's what a lot of you guys are talking about on the panel today. Yeah, I, I think that the um, the global wars that we have fought um, started out as, I mean, if you remember right, um, I think the war in um, Afghanistan was first called Operation Crusade or something like that because it felt righteous, etc., and because we were fighting Muslims, they thought, oh, we should change the name Crusade. But it started out as righteous indignation, but it has turned into something that is really, truly, remarkably evil, that has exposed what we as a country never thought we were doing, and that is really bad things to people all around the world. Yeah, and is, isn't it interesting that I think the, a big split in the Republican Party today and this goes all the way back to it, at least World War One, is kind of the, the difference. There are some Republicans who are criticizing 
uh, Joe Biden for not being tough enough on Russia. And then there are other more America first Republicans who are criticizing him for even being involved in this to begin with. Right. And this, this goes all the way back uh, through the conservative wing of the Republican Party was arguing not to get involved in World War One. And right. then World War II, right. and then Vietnam, and, and it goes all the way through. And I think that, generally speaking, the hawkish uh, side has won for most of, of modern American history. And I think since Donald Trump was elected, that's changed a little bit, and there's more energy in the America First side, which is saying, like, what do we really get out of all of this? Well, think about the difference between elites and the people. Right. The American people are not terribly interested about what goes on overseas. They're not pining for more foreign policy intervention. They're not pining for nation building. They don't want America going around the world hunting monsters. They're probably concerned and skeptical about World War III breaking up in, in Europe. But on the other hand, you have a foreign policy elite who gets its meaning in life from intervening. Right? You can never convince anyone of something if they're going to lose their livelihood. Right, people are not going to risk their income to to you know recognize something false about themselves and their worldview. People are also not going to risk their reputation and their sense of importance. All right, our, our deepest fear for many of us is a fear of insignificance. So we try to attach ourselves to transcendental causes, which could be secular or religious. If you sign up for the U.S. foreign policy agenda then you want to be doing things, right? There's no prestige in not intervening. Right? If you're in the foreign policy elite, how are you going to feel important if you decide not to intervene overseas? So we have incentives that are misaligned, whereby we have a foreign policy elite that is heavily incentivized so that they can feel important to intervene overseas. It's not what the American people want. It's not in America's best interests. That's I would take it a step further and say, if you if you care about the culture in America, when has it degraded the most? What, during Vietnam? I mean, look at what we're talking about right now. Everything that's happening in American culture. Is it a coincidence that this follows 20 years of terror wars where we don't have one victory to show? All, all we have, you know, all we really have is the conservative movement, the evangelical movement being completely discredited because they put all of their chips in on the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, which brought us nothing but disaster. And now we're in the, in the middle of a war 5,000 miles away from the east coast of the United States of America, on Russia's border, on the, on the, with the two uh, countries with the biggest nuclear arsenal in the history of the world, staring each other down. For what? For, for whether the Donbass region is ruled by Kiev or mm -hmm. Moscow? Uh, you explain to me how that's America first. It's not. Um, I, I had um, great hope, and if we hold the Senate, I have hope that the Senate and the House will uh, grab the purse strings uh, and stop this over there. I think this is absolutely corrupt. You have to be a moron to think we could send, you know, $60 million or $60 billion over there uh, and expect that there's no corruption. There's This is riddled with corruption, and it it could very well quickly turn into World War III. And I don't know a single American who is saying, oh, yeah, we should have boots on the ground there. We should be involved in that. We relate to the people of Ukraine as being decent people that just want to be left alone. But that's not what that story really is. That's just one component of the story. I'm not sure that, because it, it feels to me like, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, um, it feels to me like this administration wants a war, wants it with Russia. Well, it, it certainly seems like what they want is to prolong the conflict and to, to bleed Russia dry. It seems like the, the attitude is that we have not been successful in defeating insurgencies, but we can be successful in supporting one. 
So we could maybe draw Russia into what we've been drawn into in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Somalia, in Pakistan, in Yemen. Dave, do you think that's possible? I mean, you know, when we were in Vietnam, everybody knew Russia was, you know, working against us. We knew that. But they didn't make announcements all the time. This administration has done something I've never seen before, and that is, oh, we just send over this weapon system, this weapon system, this one's coming, they're going to get more of this, and uh, we're, we're even on the ground now training. Countries used to deny those things. <laughs> they're coming yeah, out they're... and saying, no, that's, that's what we're doing, which automatically puts us into a war stance. Yeah, and, and Glenn, the, the biggest difference between all of the proxy wars uh, against the Soviet Union, well, I mean, the big difference is this isn't the Soviet Union anymore, yeah. but the big difference and in after. this conflict is that this is on Russia's border. That, that makes this a whole different thing. Look, when, when uh, the Soviet Union put nuclear missiles in Cuba, Jack Kennedy said, I will nuke the world if you keep these here. And we all agree that he was right. Like, no one thinks that, that that was not a reasonable line to say, we cannot have a knife in our throat. That is unacceptable. And right now, this war, however you feel about it, is on Russia's border. Now, there, it, I'm not saying that Russia is justified in invading. Not They're all. certainly not. I don't think we were justified in invading uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, maybe Afghanistan, but certainly not yeah. to have a regime change against the Taliban. Uh, but you know what, Glenn, as you know, about 90 percent of the things that are happening across the planet right now are not justified. That's not the question. The question is, what is the risk that we are incurring against our country and for what benefit? And as you guys have all been talking about this whole night, as we're watching our country fall apart, why are we flirting with a nuclear conflict 5,000 miles across the globe when we can't even figure out our own problems? Can I be, can let's, I be really— Let's spread liberty through America before we spread it through Eastern Europe. So can I be really cynical here? Um, you know, I've, I've talked about for 20 years that these times were coming, and it looks very similar to what I laid out long ago. And mm-hmm. the last thing on uh, chalkboard that I wrote about these times coming was you're going to have an implosion of trust where no one will believe anything in the system at all. We won't know what is true and what is not, and we'll start looking at each other. Then you will start to have the banking go down, you'll have the economy go down, um, and you have all of these things. But what it takes to finally make that last turn and get America to forget what America was is a world war. And to me, it just seems a little too convenient that we're here and the thing that they could grab all of the controls of speech, of the media, of anybody that is speaking out, they can grab those controls because we would be at war. Is that too cynical? It certainly benefits, benefits a lot of powerful people to have an external enemy. And this is this has always been the truth for authoritarian regimes, right? This is how they benefit. And I got to say, I'll point this out, and some of your audience might disagree with me on this one, but Joe Biden's just as crazy for saying that we would militarily defend Taiwan if China invaded. Look, we're not in a position to defend Taiwan militarily. We're not in a position to defend Ukraine militarily. What we need to be is what we were always supposed to be, which is a city on a hill. We're supposed to set an example for the rest of the world by being a free society. And we don't go around the world enforcing freedom on other countries who maybe want it and maybe don't. And every time we try to do that, we lose our own soul. Then this is, this is what America is suffering through right now. And you're, you're absolutely right, Glenn, that this is the perfect distraction for powerful people. And, and that, that what we need to focus on right now is holding our own society to account, our own leaders to account, to work on our, uh, our freedom here. And then ho- the best we can hope for is that other people will look at us and go, well, look how successful they're being. Look, we spread freedom throughout the world more effectively by, by being more prosperous than the rest of the world 
than we ever did through the point of a gun. And it's not even prosperous. It is it is the way we ran our society. The, the crossing of the Delaware uh, with George Washington, that painting was painted by a German for Germans right after the Communist Manifesto came out in the 1850s. That's not an American painting. The Statue of Liberty was built for French to be able to teach the ideas of America to their own people. Those were both for their own people. Okay, thanks, uh, Glenn, back there talking to Dave Smith. New York Times says John Fetterman has a 77% chance of winning in Pennsylvania. So we're looking about a GOP House with only about 228 seats. Somewhat of a challenge for Speaker McCarthy, somewhere between unmanageable and ungovernable, says Matt Glassman. Right? What happens when you have to extend the debt limit? Will, Will Kevin McCarthy even become a majority leader at all? So, looks like GOP, except for Florida, is underperforming. Democrats are running about a point ahead of our expectations, says the New York Times, outside of Florida. So, no signs of a red wave. Let's have a look here. Dr. Maria Ryan, uh, who advised the campaign on health care issues. Dr. Ryan, as you watch the results come in, your thoughts and also. I will skip that. It's the opposite, the flip of that, actually, at this point. Absolutely, myself included. Now, what's interesting is that Georgia, Walker is just barely, uh, he's just barely head of Warnock. It keeps ebbing and flowing. Now Walker is at 49.1. Warnock is at 48.9. Walker uh, with 73% of the voting cannot afford to be falling away from 50%. But uh, in Georgia, Kemp is, you know, he's he's cleaned it up. He's at 54 to Abrams is 46. Uh, So there is a big lag between Walker and Kemp. Uh, I think the Atlanta area, the suburbs of it, probably it's where this lag is coming from. Anything to say about the differentiation here, Patrick? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's well-traveled well, um, ground, isn't it, in terms of the, uh, the relative strengths and weaknesses with this Georgian electorate between uh, Walker and Kemp. I think the, the rule of thumb on the ground among Republicans has been that, assuming, anticipating that Kemp would be uh, a, a bigger winner than Walker if they both won, but certainly would win his race against Abrams relatively handily, was that if Abrams, uh, sorry. if Okay, NBC News has projected that J.D. Vance will win in Ohio. This is News General Baldock, he came on strong. All of D.C. said this guy can't win. McConnell and his forces supported his primary opponent. He ends up winning this late primary, but he needed to raise too much money in too short a period of time. And so, uh, you know, he just couldn't defy gravity. I mean, it's a heck of a close race, and uh, he only had a couple million bucks, and he got on TV at the very end. But he just it it was too little too late. 
So, well, John, I don't but, know if you agree with that. I mean, you can't always defy gravity on this. I stuff. know. And what, what the other part is, too, is people were counting him out as soon as he won the primary. They're saying he wasn't going to win. And uh, so you got a close race. And a lot of these races, again, the Republicans have started out losing by bad margins, and then they come back and they, they recover, like you've seen in, like you're seeing Oz close the but, gap but do in you, Pennsylvania. Do you agree in these races that, like, yeah. in Arizona, we got Blake Masters, we have the same phenomenon. He's way down. Right. But he couldn't get enough support throughout the whole race. He went through periods of time when he was dark because people were arguing over whether he had a chance. He always had a chance. Yes. And, and the other part is, too, is those candidates had to win tough primaries. Yeah. Like, like Arizona, I was working for, you know, we Jim We both Lehman, were, yeah. Jim Lehman. So, yeah. you know, he was a very good candidate, but Masters had to survive that primary. When you survive the primary, you're out of money, and all of a sudden, you know, the Democrats are sitting there with a boatload of money, and they're attacking you during the primary. So, uh, so that's what was going on with Hassan, with her resources. That was going on with uh, Kelly having the Democrat Senate Committee attack uh, Masters. But, We'll see about Arizona, and we'll and Nevada hasn't reported yet, so we'll see what happens there. So there's still opportunities for the Republicans, and we're still going to keep closing the gap and passing the Democrats as election day vote comes in, because Republicans vote on election day. And this idea that the the Senate races have been very helped by strong government government perf yeah. uh, performances, as Mark Halperin keeps bringing up, that really does seem to be true. And Pennsylvania, that could be the one thing that's tough for Oz, right. as Mastriano seems to be lagging a bit. Yeah, and also the same in Wisconsin, where the Democrat yep. may be leading. But we'll see what happens when more of the votes get counted. And, and so Kemp absolutely probably helped Herschel, so he's coming ahead now. And then uh, you, you'll see that in other states where, as the Republican vote materializes on Election Day, as they're counting those, uh, those precincts, then the Republicans do well. So it's still, there's still a lot of votes to be counted, and we'll see. So some of these races are going to take a while. The Nevada race is particularly interesting because yeah. it, uh, you know, you have this question about how, what will they get done counting tonight? Right, and then right. you have in Arizona this question about the people that want to go vote, and their ballots couldn't be processed. That's already gone to court. Right. I, I imagine Nevada's going to be in court, too. Yeah, and the bad part is the Democrats in Nevada control the process. Completely. Oh. And in Arizona, Katie Hobbs, who's running for governor against Carrie Lake, controls the process. She's the secretary of state. And in Pennsylvania, the Democrats control the process with Wolf, who appoints the secretary of state. So uh, so we just got to be vigilant and make sure that every vote's counted and honest and fair and see what happens. Yeah, if there is a red wave, it hasn't materialized yet. Okay, I'm going to end it here. Take care. Bye-bye.